Okay, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Hellas. Today's date, January 18th, 2019. Time is almost 9.30 p.m. Pacific time. Another Friday show. Maybe one day we'll get away from Friday. That's not my preferred day to do this, but that's the way it keeps landing. So we're going to stick with it. I was actually going to do it yesterday, and uh, I was extremely tired. I had uh, very much fatigue, and I think it was because of lack of sleep. So... I got some sleep, not as much as I probably should have, and I'm here, and we're going to do the show. We're going to have Trader Ruski tonight, and we may actually have an interview, believe it or not. So before we get going, I want to let everybody know we have a free roll, which is starting in one minute at 9.30. And the free roll actually already started once, and people played for about eight minutes, and then they got a notification that it was canceled. Yeah. Why was it canceled? Because I realized that the free roll was going to close late registration at 9.25, and I probably wouldn't get the show started by then, and everyone would be shut out who tried to register right when the show started. So I said, now, we can start the free roll a few minutes before the show starts, that's fine, but... I can't have the whole late registration period over. So I apologize to whoever was owning souls there for the first eight minutes. But uh, just re-register. You can late register all the way up until 9.55 p.m. The free roll this week, it's a cash free roll, as usual. $75 is being given away. $50 of it is from me. $25 is from I Am Greek. Thank you to him. The prize pool this week, there's only three people who are going to be paid, but the field is going to be small because the date of the show was announced uh, pretty last minute and it's starting late. You know, it's after midnight Eastern time, so not many people are going to be in the free roll, to be honest. So three prizes is fine. 40 for first, 20 for second, 15 for third. That's 40, 20, and 15. Next week, we'll make an attempt to start both earlier and perhaps on a Thursday night, which I know is better also to get a bigger live audience. I think people are out doing things on Friday and can't listen to this show as easily as they can on Thursday night or Wednesday night. And maybe we'll go back to Wednesday eventually. I just uh, I don't like to do another show five days after the previous one. There's just not enough to talk about, but maybe we'll do six days later. I'll check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert for those updates. And while you're on Twitter, by the way, follow Vegas Casino Talk. Exactly the sounds. Vegas Casino Talk. Go follow that account. Get it some followers. That's my other forum. You're always welcome to check it out and post there, VegasCasinoTalk.com. A bit of a different site than Poker Fraud Alert, but uh, kind of the same in some ways. Different crowd, though. So I'll quickly get through this intro, and then we'll get started. If you want to call the show tonight... 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the phone number. I have temporarily rehooked up the Mount Charleston line. You can actually call that tonight. 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. It got buried in snow in Mount Charleston, which has received uh, a good amount of snow recently, but it is functional again. 702-430-1808, that's the rotary phone on top of Mount Charleston forwards to the show. I had it turned off while I was dealing with Skype issues, which are still not solved. But uh, this week we're going to try something different. This week, 
if when, once I get Trader Ruski on here, if anybody calls into the show, I'm actually going to have to dump Trader Ruski and reconnect him. That's the only way I can do it. Skype has just become terrible. It's not user error. It's not user ignorance. It's uh, ignorance of the developers from Microsoft who have ruined the product. I'm still looking for a good Skype replacement. If you know of one, if you know of a replacement, I'll tell you what I'm looking for, to be honest. I'm looking for any kind of voice over IP software that can take calls and merge calls together. That's very important where I can merge everybody together on the same call. And that has a real phone number that can be called into. It can't be one that's just, you know, by uh, screen name only. It has to be a real phone number you can dial into and reach. So if you know something like that, Skype used to do all these things, but it can't do all these things anymore. If you know a piece of software that can do all these things, please let me know. I'm even willing to pay for it, but... uh, Skype is not doing the job anymore for the most part. It's semi-functional now, but not good enough. If you want to chat during the live program, you can go into the chat room. You need a flash-enabled device, meaning no iPhones and no iPads, but you can chat with the other listeners to the live show. If you're not listening live, don't bother. Nobody will be in there. The free roll, by the way, you need to know the rules to qualify for the free money. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, exactly as it sounds. Read those rules, understand them. Otherwise, you will not qualify for the free money. If you want to text me at any time during the show, or before the show, or after the show, you can. 775-372-8355, the same as our main phone number. You can text me there anytime. I may read your comments on the air unless you ask me not to at the beginning of your text, so beware. The call to listen line allows you to just call up a phone number and listen to the show from any telephone in the world that can dial a United States phone number. You don't need a smartphone. You don't need a data plan. You don't need the internet. You don't need a computer. No, you just pick up any phone that can dial and call 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736 is the call to listen line located in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Went down a few times this week, but I, I got it put back up. Should be functional right now. You can just call up and listen. Never buffers, just works. When we're not live on the air, you can call it and you can hear a past show running in full. It just picks past shows at random and runs them in full and goes on to the next past show it picks at random over and over and over again until we come back live on the air. That's the call to listen line. Other ways to listen to the show, you can use iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. These are all apps, by the way. Radio Public, though, for whatever reason, they didn't pick up the last episode and they are not responding to my emails to support about this, so I don't think It'll pick up any 2019 episodes until that is rectified. But Radio Public is another app you can use to listen. The live show can also be listened on TuneIn. TuneIn has both the archives and the live show. There's two entries for Poker Fraud Alert Radio there. And Eric Ryland's favorite option, Alexa. Yes, you can use your Amazon Alexa to listen to this show either live or past shows. If you want to listen to the live show or the same streaming rerun that's on the call to listen line, just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn. That's what you have to say. Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn. If you want to listen to 
the last show in the archives, say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast on TuneIn. The word podcast brings you to the archives. And once you're in the archives, if you say previous, or sorry, if you say next, it'll go to the previous show. And if you say previous, it'll go to the next show. It's backwards. Don't blame me. I did not design it. But we are on Alexa. It works. And if you have that device, now you can use that to listen to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Look, look at all the options I give you to listen to the show. You can even download the MP3 directly from the Poker Fraud Alert server. In fact, if you have an iPhone or iPad, you can just go to the radio forum and click on the MP3. And it'll just play. That's a very easy way to listen. In fact, when I go to listen, that's often how I do it. I try to give you as many listening options as possible. If you want more, which are not too much of a hassle for me and don't require me to uh, pay a lot of money out of my Jew wallet, then I will be glad to add more listening options for you. I want accessibility here to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Here is the agenda for this evening. I'm going to announce a new way that you can send money to me. Yes. That's the first topic, the most important topic is how to give me money. So there's a new way that you can send me money without any fees. You know how I hate fees. I don't don't think there's a human being alive who hates fees more than I do. I'm not even kidding. In fact, my dad said that. My dad, who hates fees himself, and by the way, he listens to this show. My dad listens to the show, so uh, he may hear me saying this, but I know he hates fees. I grew up watching him hating fees, but he actually told me that I actually hate fees more than he does, and he's right. I, I've never met a, another human being who hates fees more than I do. So I would not be promoting this if it had any fees on either side, but there's a new way to donate to the show or to me personally, and I'll explain how to do it. It's very easy, and as long as you have a debit card, then you can do it. Gavin Smith... Longtime poker pro has unexpectedly passed away. This happened earlier this week. He was 50 years old. That's going to be our main topic tonight. And it's going to be a funny one for me to talk about because uh, Gavin and I didn't get along. He didn't like me and I didn't like him. So despite his general popularity in the poker community, I'm not one of those people who thought highly of him nor did he think highly of me. And we've had words over the years, so I'm going to you know, I'm going to handle it fairly. I'm going to handle it fairly. I'm not going to hold back, but I'm also not going to dance on his grave. And we'll talk about the GoFundMe that's been set up for his kids. Some controversy about that as well. Speaking of death, we have a lot of death on this show. Speaking of death, I have something to confess. Some of you are going to be surprised about this, and I'm, I'm not joking around here, and I'm not exaggerating here. I'm not just saying something to get you to listen longer, but tonight on this show, I'm going to confess to engineering a cover-up in 2015 for the death of a well-known poker social media figure. Yeah. Someone died in 2015 who was pretty well known on poker social media, and his death was covered up to where up until today, just about nobody knew that he was dead. And the person behind that cover-up was me. So I know the FBI listens to this show sometimes. I'm not kidding. Sometimes they really do. So 
Listen carefully, FBI. I'm going to admit to a death cover-up. I really am. You're going to hear. And I will also admit that I'm only confessing to this because it was brought out by somebody else on social media today, and I have no choice but to address it. So I'm going to. We're going to have a possible phone call with Kristen, the girl we had on a year ago who told us she had a husband who was in prison for eight years. I gave you guys the update last week that she's no longer with him, but I I wanted her to give the update, and she agreed. But uh, then she said she's babysitting and uh, can't do it till the kids go to bed, and I said, oh, perfect. She's in Idaho. It's an hour later. It's already getting near 11 o'clock there, so, you know, that should be good. But then I messaged her and asked if she's ready. She she just read the message and didn't respond. So maybe she's getting cold feet. I don't know. But uh, I'll try to get her on. If we don't get her on this week, we will get her on uh, next week, provided she agrees. I mean, she already agreed, but you know, I don't know. She will only come on if she wants to come on. Not going to force anything here. The WSOP has decided to take a strange tactic this year as far as announcing their schedule. Instead of just dropping the schedule on us, they're releasing it in parts. So first they announced certain high-profile events, and now they've announced the high buy-in events. So if you go to wsop.com slash tournaments, you'll see what looks like a full schedule, but isn't. It's still missing a lot of events. But I'll talk about the events that have been announced that we didn't cover on other shows because... Uh, These were just announced a few days ago, including a change involving the main event, which I don't like. The Department of Justice has reversed the 2011 interpretation of the 1961 Wire Act, which was favorable for poker. So if it was favorable for poker, that interpretation in 2011, then it goes by logic that the reversal of such an interpretation would be unfavorable. Yeah, so we'll talk about what that means for us as poker players and gamblers. When good things happen to good people, Chino Ream has won the the PCA, the Poker Stars PCA main event. Aren't you heartwarmed about this? Aren't, Aren't you... Just someone with incredible faith in karma and the rewards one gets for being a moral, honest person when you hear things like that. But yeah, Chino Ream won the PCA main event. Question on everybody's minds. Will he pay those who he owes? We will discuss it. DraftKings held what was called a sports betting national championship. It's over, but it ended in controversy and now a lawsuit. Enough to where I can play this sound effect again. Phil Galfond, you know, he has that run at once poker site that he's been developing. It's going to be, it's already running in beta. He announced that they're going to be hiring a game integrity manager. Hmm. And he's encouraging the public to apply. Hmm. Now, who do you know that's been in online poker for a long time and has a lot of experience in online poker and 
has been a longtime activist against online poker cheating and cheaters, and someone who has involved himself in trying to make sure that there is integrity in online poker. Who, who is someone that might be good for that job? Hmm. I wonder who that might be. But the question is, does that person want the job? And if they don't, why wouldn't they? We will discuss this fascinating situation as our second to last topic. And finally, if my voice is not given out, we will revisit the topic I skipped last week. That is the HQ trivia scandal, which highlights the problem with contests for real money on apps. You can play real money strategy games on apps, not poker, but ones that don't involve any element of chance. That's legal, and it's for real money, but many of them are very scammy. Can you trust them? I will talk about that, as it's very tempting to play those. Even I've been tempted. We will talk about that in our final topic of the evening. That is our agenda. If you want to call into the show, 775-372-8355. Just make sure to call between segments or when I tell you to call, or I may not answer the phone. I may block you if you attempt to just hammer me with calls. That's the way life works on this show. Let's try to reach Trader Ruski. I hate these guys. See, I hate this. Listen to this. I can't turn this off. There's, there's no way to turn that off. What's happening, Jeff? Trader Ruski, glad to have you here. Glad to have you. By the way, before we start with this show, I, I was... I was browsing 2 plus 2 tonight, and I saw that some idiot troll with the name Tex Dolly, of all things. It's not Doyle, by the way. It's it's someone, it's like fake Doyle, but Tex Dolly on 2 plus 2, that's that's, uh, Doyle's Twitter name, by the way, bumped a thread from August on 2 plus 2 calling me out for the entire C-Money fake cancer scandal, which I won't bother revisiting tonight if you want to hear about that you can listen to the radio show what i did about that situation but uh someone bumped it to bring attention to the fact that i was being critical of the gavin smith gofundme and trying to get haters on board with uh bashing me again and i went back and read part of that thread and it reminded me of what bad psychological shape i was in in late August when that thread was created. And I know I've talked about it before, but uh, I, I really had a lot of problems then. I really, really had a lot of psychological problems in late August and early September too. Um, I, I was in very, very bad shape. I wasn't sure if I was ever going to be able to do this show again. I wasn't sure if I was going to basically be able to function again because I could barely function in life with the way I was then. I definitely was, at that point, mentally ill, which came as a result of a physical ailment that affected my brain in some way. And when I read that, first I got kind of pissed seeing these trolls there, including some people who had been kicked off of this site that were over there under fake names trying to kick me while I was down. But uh, 
I read that and I thought, I really am so much better today compared to back then. At least mentally. At least psychologically. I'm almost back to normal. I'm not quite there. But I'm almost back to normal psychologically. And I thought about how I was then. And I, I thought about how every little thing was a challenge. And it could take me up to eight hours to fall asleep. Um, I, I would feel like I was choking every time I'd lie down. I felt a, an incredible stress and heaviness upon my brain as if I had just experienced some sort of trauma. And there was a feeling in my mind 24 hours a day. I was losing one to two pounds every single day because the extremely level extremely high level of anxiety was raising my metabolism in a fight or flight sort of situation. Even driving short distances was difficult. I would freak out and panic even at a traffic light. I even I couldn't even go to stores without having trouble. Even in my own home, I kept having to go outside because I couldn't even stand being there. Uh, I had a lot of problems. And I wasn't sure if that was going to be the rest of my life. And I don't think I realized quite how bad it was at the time as I was going through it. I knew it was really bad. But I now looking back and seeing that and knowing that, I realize how much different it is now and how bad it really was. And I have to say, if I could have looked then and seen myself today and the psychological state I'm in today compared to back in late August and early September, I'd be very happy. I'd have been very happy to have seen this. And I appreciate it. And I'm glad, I'm thankful that I've come back so far from that. Not all the way. I haven't taken a plane flight yet, though I think I'm pretty close to being able to do so. As soon as the TSA nonsense that's plaguing airports right now, as soon as that's all over, uh, I'm going to give it a shot. But I think I'm close to back, and that's where we're doing the show every week. I've still got the physical problems, but the worst part was the psychological issues, and that's mostly gone. I'm mostly back to the person I was before all this started, at least psychologically. And I can't tell you how thankful I am for that. And I got to experience what it's like to not have your mind be quite right. I got to experience what it feels like to have clinical depression. I got to feel like, I I got to experience panic attacks and severe anxiety disorder. I got to experience these things. And I feel for any of you who go through this on a routine basis for years or decades or most of your life, because it was hell. And when it was happening to me, the only glimmer of hope I had was the fact that I knew that this came as the result of a physical problem and that this wasn't a hereditary issue or a lifelong flaw in my brain. And that gave me hope that maybe it could reverse, whereas people who've been experiencing this since they were teenagers 
it's much harder for them to do, or in some cases, impossible. But I got to feel what it was like. And let me tell you, you have my sympathy and my empathy if you are dealing with this problem yourself. And I know there are some people who listen to the show who are, or who have. And it's something you don't understand until you actually go through it. And that was my first time ever going through it, and hopefully my last. And I didn't understand. It's sometimes hard to think, well, I'll just tell myself not to be depressed. I'll just tell myself not to be anxious. I'll tell myself not to worry. doesn't work that way. does not work that way. You, you can't overrule your own brain with conscious thought. So, just wanted to put that out there. I just thought about it today. And I thought about it as, as frustrating as some of my continued problems are. It's a hell of a lot better than it was five months ago and four months ago. Anyway, let's get going. I want to tell you guys about the Cash App. The Cash App is a new way that you can send money to me or anybody else who's on it. And it's free for everybody. And from what I can tell, the company's reputable and pretty large behind it, so it's not it's not a scam. It's not something that you're going to get screwed with. At least I, I can't guarantee that. It's not my company. It's, nobody I know runs it, but it seems like it's legit. And it's been around for some time. And it's an easy way to send money. And the best thing is I can't even find any restrictions in their terms about anything having to do with gambling. Which, you know, you guys know PayPal has a huge bug up their ass about that, as do other money exchange and payment platforms. The cash, the cash app doesn't appear to. Uh, at the same time, I wouldn't press it. I wouldn't uh, overdo things about it. You know, gambling exchanges are making it clear that's what you're doing, but uh, it, be, it even has a Bitcoin. You can even buy Bitcoin with it, but, you know, I'd be careful about things like that. But the main reason I'm mentioning it is because I know some people have wanted to send money to the show for the free roll or just to donate or whatever, and, and yeah, the, then I have to give them these instructions involving PayPal, and the whole thing's a big pain in the ass. And I know some people just wish they could just whip out a credit card and do it. Well, you still can't whip out a credit card, but you can whip out a debit card, and you can send money to me with no fee. I think there's a limit of like 250 bucks or something, and then you have to verify yourself to send more. But you know, most of you are not going to send me more than 250 bucks. The only way you'd send more is probably from uh, buying World Series pieces. But we're still a number of months away for that. So, but anyway, it's very easy to remember the URL to do this. Okay, it's cash.me, like cash me, cash.me slash dollar sign dandruff. That's it. Cash.me slash dollar sign, you know, because you're sending me money, dollars, slash dollar sign dandruff. That's it. No spaces, just dandruff. Like the word dandruff? Actually, this is stupid. It's not. It, you have to capitalize it properly. I didn't realize that. That's stupid. That is stupid. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll admit that's one flaw. <laughs> you, have to, you have to capitalize the two Ds in dandruff. Dan and druff both have to be, you know, the Ds in both have to be capitalized, but no spaces. Cash.me slash dollar sign dandruff with capital D for Dan, capital D for Druff. 
stupid. I don't know why. Why, why make a case sensitive? It's a pretty clean and nice app. But anyway, that aside, if you go there, you'll see it says Todd would tell us. You'll see it says zero dollars. Then you can erase that and change it to whatever you want to send me. And then it says debit card number and optional note. Now, again, don't put anything in the note about free roll or, or gambling or anything like that because uh, th- that could be problems. That, that could cause some problems. So just leave the optional – either put nothing in the optional note or just put your screen name, something like that. Uh, unless your screen name has the word like poker, I wouldn't put anything. Nothing – even though I don't see anything in the terms about it, just let's not screw with it. <laughs> you know, let's, let's play it safe. But uh, you'll see it says debit card number. You just enter it and then click pay. Now, does that mean you're giving me your debit card? No, I have no access to that. It will take the money through your debit card and give it to me. That's how it'll work. I'll never see your debit card in any way, shape, or form. I think I'll see your name, but that's it. So cash.me slash dollar sign dandruff with capital D's for both. No spaces, nothing like that. Simple way to send money through your debit card. So keep that in mind. Also, there's something else that I want to tell you about the Cash App that is important if you like money. If you like money and if you realize that I'm a Jew and that I like money, you can get a free $5. But this is not why I'm doing it. I'm not advertising it for this, but... You can get a free $5. You can get me a free $5 at the same time if I refer you. So if I refer you to the Cash App and you enter my referral code, which is different for each person, so I can't give it out here, then you'll get $5 and I'll get $5. No strings attached. So if you want that, just text me at 775-372-8355. 775-372-8355 and I will send you an invite and we'll both get our $5. Why not, right? Okay. <laughs> Figured I'd mention that too. But I, I promise you that's not why I'm not trying to make like 5 bucks at a time here. I, I'm just mentioning that if you're going to use it, if you're going to sign up, you know, why not just get us both 5 bucks? But But I'm more interested in having that just because it's a new way to send money that's easy and free on both ends. Totally free on both ends. That's the great thing here. All right, so let's move on to our main topic. Our main topic, which everyone's been talking about in the poker community, and that is the death of Gavin Smith, poker pro Gavin Smith, who's been around poker for... Well over a decade, very colorful character, about $6 million in tournament caches. Uh, I know he was on Poker Road Radio at some point with Joe Seabock. He had a lot of friends in the poker community. A lot of people were very upset to hear about his death, especially because it was unexpected. I still don't have the full details about his cause of death, but uh, I heard that he died in his sleep. I believe it happened four days ago. I'm not sure who found him. Unfortunately, it was probably his kids, but uh, I, I don't know. I don't know the details, but I know that he died unexpectedly, and I heard it was in his sleep. 
Sounds like a heart attack to me, but who knows. He was only 50 years old. He was born in November of 1968. He only turned 52 months ago. He was less than three and a half years older than me. I always feel strange to talk about these deaths, especially when the person uh, doesn't kill themselves in some way. When the person is close to my age. But uh, the poker community was pretty shocked by this, even though Gavin Smith was not exactly the picture of health or clean living. So the word spread pretty quickly. I first heard about it when I was on the Real Grinders Facebook group and I saw Ray Davis posted that there was an unconfirmed report that Gavin Smith had died. And uh, Ray Davis was pretty broken up about it because uh, Gavin was his friend. And uh, then I looked around Twitter and other places on social media. I found Todd Brunson was talking about it. And enough people were talking about it who were credible that it seemed like it was very likely that Gavin Smith was dead unless some terrible hoax had been perpetrated and people fell for it. But I, th- I thought it was very likely it was true that he had passed away, and, and it turned out it was. Uh, Gavin Smith uh, did die at age 50. So what came to my mind when I heard that? What came to my mind? I know some people in poker were, were very sad over this. His, his friends were very sad, and of course for good reason. If, if you know, I've had friends that have passed away, and it's been very sad for me. In fact, I even, I even told a story on a recent show about a friend I found that passed away that I hadn't spoken to in over 20 years, and it made me sad when I found out that he had died uh, in 2018. So for these people who had been seeing Gavin and communicating with him on a daily basis... To just find out he was gone, I can imagine it was quite traumatic for them. So, I can understand that, and I know he had a lot of friends in poker, and I I know there was a lot of casual poker fans who liked and admired him. Overall, from what I've seen, both after his death and before his death, he was generally pretty well-liked in poker. He was a pretty popular figure in poker. Not without detractors, not without haters, not without his critics, but for the most part, he was pretty well-liked, and he did have a lot of good friends who were big names in poker. There are a lot of big-name poker pros who got to be pretty close with him. So a lot of these people were, were pretty broken up about it. And... Something I didn't know until after he passed away was that he had full custody of his two children. He has two young boys. I don't know their ages, but I saw a picture of them. They look pretty young. I think probably both younger than my son, who's eight. So he's got two young boys, and he has full custody of them. So, of course, the first question that comes to your mind is, where's the mother? What happened to the mother? You probably don't see it very often where the father has 100% custody. Usually the custody is either 50-50 or shared but the mother has more or the mother has 100% custody. It's not all that uncommon for men to just 
run out on their family and leave their kids behind. I, I think it's terrible. I would never do that myself. I could never do that myself, even if I came to hate the mom. But uh, there are men who do that for whatever reason. They can just walk away from their flesh and blood. I don't understand it, but there's there's plenty who have and do. So it's not shocking to see a woman raising kids by herself with a father not in the picture. That happens all the time. But it's pretty unusual to have the father raising the kids by himself without the mother in the picture. But that's what was going on here. Gavin Smith died living in Houston. The mother of the kids, his uh, ex-wife, I don't know. I, actually, I don't know if they're technically divorced, but whatever it is, uh, the, the mother of the kids who was his wife at some point lives in Alaska. So not only does Gavin have full custody, but he was living thousands of miles away from the mother of the kids. So she had no access to them geographically. And that's also a big deal to just move out of state. I mean, the, usually you're not allowed to do that. Usually you can't just get up and take your kids to a different state when you're no longer with the other parent. Like if, if Benjamin's mom and I broke up, I couldn't just say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go live in Vegas now, bye, and I'm taking Benjamin with me. I could go live in Vegas, but then I'd have to give a custody of Benjamin. But I couldn't just take Benjamin to Vegas and say goodbye, come to Vegas, you're not seeing him. I could not do that. A judge would never allow it. A judge would tell me, if you want custody of your child, if you want to have half custody or any custody at all, you're going to have to stay close by to where you currently are. If you want to go live in Vegas, then no custody. (laughs) That's what I would be told. And if she wanted to move to a different place, she'd be told the same thing. So Gavin had full custody, full legal custody, and was legally allowed to get up and move to a different state, which he did. So that really raises questions. What was wrong with the mother? Judges do not like to separate kids from the mother completely. It's not uncommon at all for each parent to have 50-50 custody, but to have the mother totally out of the life of the kid, uh, usually the mother's got to be pretty messed up. So everybody thought, "Uh uh-oh, what happens now as far as the kids? And that was a very good question. The parent with the full custody has died. What happens? And these kids are going to need some kind of parental figure for a long time since they're very young. It's not like the kids are 17 and 16, which still would be pretty tragic, but uh, these, these are young kids. And so not only is it going to be very tough on them to lose their father like that, and really the only parent that they've known, but also who takes care of them now. So that upset people as well. And I think that's the most tragic part of this whole thing, by the way. I also thought it was pretty amazing that Gavin, of all people, got full custody, because he's not exactly someone living a clean lifestyle. This is someone who has been public about the fact that he's an alcoholic, that he had drug problems recently, that he has a gambling issue. And I don't, I don't mean his poker play. I mean, he was a very good tournament player, but uh, he had financial problems due to uh, money and bankroll management issues. So this is not exactly the uh, stable guy that uh, courts 
would like to award full custody to. So that just shows you how bad the mom must have been to where he got the full custody. Now, to his credit, he took responsibility. He took full custody from everything I could see. He really loved those kids. So great, you know, it's it's great that someone stepped up and did this and that uh, he was willing to take on that responsibility. And I, I give him credit for that. But what I won't do is I'm not going to come out here and praise him like he was a, a wonderful individual that I loved when I didn't feel that way. I didn't like Evan Smith. And the fact that he died is not changing that. That doesn't change my opinion of him. Was I happy to hear he died? No. No, I, don't, I didn't think he deserved death. Um, any problems I had with him were relatively minor. Basically, we just didn't like each other. I didn't do anything bad to him. He didn't do anything bad to me. We were never at war. We were never really battling. Uh, we just, frankly, didn't like each other and said so on many occasions over the years. So there was no communication and no nothing happened? You just rubbed you the wrong way well, or I'll, something? I'll, 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 get, I'll get into that. I'll, I'll explain what happened there. But generally, yes, you're, you're right. But, but I'll, I'll, I'll get into the more detail about that. But when, when sometimes when someone dies, people think, oh, no, I can't say anything bad about them. You don't speak ill of the dead. I agree that when, someone's, when someone dies, that unless they were really terrible to you, you don't have to dance in the grave. It's not. It's really not good form to bash someone after they're gone, especially because they can't respond. But uh, even if they've wronged you, you know you, this, that's not really the time to bring up all your grievances with them. But at the same time, I also don't think that's the time to whitewash what happened or change the narrative. If the person, if you and them, if you had issues with them, that you either just you know be honest about it or. Uh, uh, without belaboring it or say nothing. One of those two. But uh, I, I'm not going to come out there and say, oh, I'm so sad, this is so tragic. I, I admit for the kids it's tragic, Then I feel terrible for them. But uh, uh, was I sad to hear that Gavin himself was gone? No, I wasn't sad. At the same time, I wasn't happy. I was, I was kind of just neutral. I'm like, oh, wow, that's that's interesting. Well, it's a... I mean, it's too bad for him, but but this is someone who I didn't like, didn't like me, and you hear someone like that dies, uh, you know, it, it's hard to have much emotion as far as uh, feeling sorrow about it. And I, I have to imagine that's the way he would have felt if he heard that I died. I don't think Gavin would be out here saying what a wonderful guy I was, or how sad he was to hear about my passing. I, I don't think he'd be saying that. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't. I wouldn't expect him to. In fact, I wouldn't want him to because it wouldn't be sincere. So here's my history with Gavin Smith. And I I had a number of things occur involving him. and Nothing major, but uh, a number of things occur over the years. So I first met Gavin through that whole group that he was part of in the mid two thousands, there was kind of a a little poker click that started. And the guy kind of at the center of that poker click was Joe Seabach. And this is before he joined UB and became unpopular and pretty much was run out of poker that way. Uh, Joe Seabach was very popular at that point. And there was this group of people that hung out. I'm not going to name them all, but uh, 
Gavin was part of it. Uh, Jeff Madsen is part of that group. Uh, Rick Fuller. Uh, then there were various like poker media people who were part of it. Uh, Joy Miller, who I strongly dislike, was part of that group. Uh, Tiffany Michelle. Like there, there's this whole group that uh, hung out. Brandon Cantu is another one of them was part of that group. So they hung out together. And I. I was never part of it, but my girlfriend at the time, Miri, was. I don't know how. I don't know how she got into that, but somehow she befriended one or two of these people, and then she kind of got brought into that group. So I got brought in by extension to where, like, they'd have parties or events or whatever, and then I'd, I would tag along with, with Miri. Uh, to be honest, I I didn't care for that many people in the group. <laughs> A number of them I just didn't like too much. I didn't vocalize it. I didn't argue with any of them or fight with any of them, but uh, uh, Jeff Jeff Madsen was pretty cool. I liked him, but uh, uh, most of them I didn't care for all too much, but, you know, I tolerated it because Miri liked these people. And one person, though, in that group who was just always abrasive and kind of a jerk to me was Gavin Smith. Just from the moment I met him, he was just always kind of rude and abrasive. And not like in a joking, fun way. He was just kind of rude and abrasive. So I thought, oh, this Gavin guy is kind of a dick. That was that was what I thought at the time. However, I I did not want to create any confrontations in that group. I, I you know, when he was kind of abrasive and rude to me, I didn't say anything back. I kind of just took it. It wasn't terrible, so I just figured, okay, you know, I know they all like him there. I'm not going to create a whole scene here. Nothing that bad was happening. So. Uh, that was my first encounter with him. That was probably around like 06. In 07, I had a poker situation with him. Uh, first of all, I, I, this is at this, this, uh, Harris Rincon WSOP circuit main event. It was a $5,000 buy-in or 5,300, something like that. It was at Harris Rincon in northern San Diego County. It took place in February 07, and it was during the L.A. Poker Classic, which took place at Commerce. So I was there at Commerce, and people at the table were saying, oh, you know what, I wish I was at San Diego right now, because I heard that is going to be the softest field of a 5,000 event that's ever been seen, because all the good players are here at Commerce for the LAPC, and everybody's neglecting that circuit event. It's going to be all fish over there. That logic sound, was sound to me. The LAPC, which is still a pretty big deal. In fact, it's going on right now. Uh, that was a huge deal in 2007. And really, everybody who was anybody in poker was at the LAPC. So I thought, okay, that makes sense. They're all here. They're neglecting that Rincon tournament. I'm not usually the type of guy to go play just random high buy-in, no-limit tournaments outside of the World Series. But, hey, you know, why not? This sounds like a rare good opportunity to do so, and it's not that far. So I made the drive down to Harris Rincon and registered for the event, and I was all ready to just crush the fish there with all these pros absent and neglecting it because they're they're at the LABC. Well, that tip I got couldn't have been more wrong. There were very few fish in that field, and of the... People who registered, I think there were like 180-something people who played. 
it was like all pros. <laughs> These are all like really tough players. Some of them were big name pros. Some of them were just like really good online guys. I mean, yeah, boy, that was a tough tournament. And Gavin was one of the people there. So I don't know if the word just got around that it's going to be easy because everyone's at the LAPC and then everyone went there with the same idea or if just that assumption was incorrect or maybe partially both, but that was a tough tournament. Well, despite that and despite the fact that I was short-stacked for a lot of the tournament, I was able to survive. And I made day two and I came back and, and by the way I found out uh, I was at Gavin Smith's initial table but the table broke very fast but while I was at his initial table he revealed to me that he was a lurker on Neverwin Poker and he like revealed a lot of details of things that he had been reading on the site so at the time he was a, a regular lurker on that site in case some of you guys date back to those days on Neverwin Poker Gavin was reading what you were writing <laughs> so uh, that was interesting I had never known that before and he never posted on there ever but he was a lurker so I learned that Then on day two I had Kind of like a Short to average stack With 23 people left They paid 18 spots And it was over 10k For a min cash so Min cash is kind of a big deal It's almost over 10k right And it was 280,000 for first place I, had, I was between short and average chips But I was closer to average than short and obviously a pretty tough group of opponents at that point. The tournament was tough to begin with, but now we're down to the final 23. I'm sandwiched in between two very good players. To my direct right was Shane Schlager. To my left, Gavin Smith. Well, it folds around to the cutoff. Shane Schlager's in the cutoff, and he limps. Don't know why. It's very unusual. I'd never seen him do it before. A little afraid maybe it was aces, but I look down and I see nine eight of diamonds. Trader Risky, what would you have done at that point? Fold it to Shane, he limps in the cutoff, you have nine eight of diamonds. What would you do? So, and you're where? Button. Yeah, I might take one off. Or you know. Well, so I I did more than take one off. I actually raised it. I said, okay, I'm going to yeah. raise this. I don't know I mean, why. You can raise, but I, I might even just call since you're I, button, right. I was consider- I was definitely not folding. I was either going to call it or raise it. And I, I thought to myself, well, I don't know what the hell he's doing with this limp here. And if it's a limp re-raise, and so be it. Then I'll fold it. But uh, I'd rather take control of the hand here. And I'm going to I'm going to raise, and uh, I will see what happens from here. So I raised. Gavin Smith in the small blind called. Big blind folded. Fortunately. Shane Schlager did not three-bet me. He just called. So I thought, okay, well, now I've got two opponents. I hope I hit something. So I was hoping to at least get some good piece of the board, either a big draw with a 9-8 suited or you know, maybe get lucky and flop two pair or something. I, flopping the top pair 9 would be a little tough to figure out what to do given my stack size at the time. But I thought there was a decent chance I'd get my money in if I hit the board. The board came down. Remember, I had 980 diamonds. Board came down. All diamonds. And I thought to myself, oh my god, this is it. I'm going to, provided they have any piece of this, I might triple up here. Actually, I had Gavin covered. I had Gavin covered and Shane had me covered by a lot. So I thought, well, I'm, I may 
you know, what if I come close to tripling up here? I mean, I, this can really get me a nice stack and 23 people left and I'm all sure, surely going to cash if I do this. And wow, you know, provided that they either I don't get screwed by a fourth diamond or uh, and, and that they have some piece of this board. Uh, I think I'm going to do real well in this hand. I was I was picturing myself winning the 280k in the circuit ring. A little premature, but that's what I was thinking. Checked around to me, and I bet Gavin quickly calls. Shane quickly calls. I'm thinking, oh crap! At least one of them's got a diamond. If a diamond falls, I'm I'm just pitching this. <laughs> I'm done if another diamond hits. I only got the one card nine high diamond. The turn. Not a diamond, and the board is not paired. So my hand has gotten no worse. Not only that, but the card that hit would have made a straight. Someone had a straight draw. forgot what it was, but it was something that would have made a straight for people. Check, check to me. Well, given the stack I had, given the fact that I had to protect any diamond draw that was against me, pretty obvious what to do. All in! I'm expecting either fold-fold or tank-fold or tank-call, maybe. Thinking maybe I'm going to have some diamond chasing me and have to fade it on the river instead. The second after I say all-in, call-call. What the hell? How can they both call that fast? Really, it's like, call, call. Like, uh, as fast as it can possibly be. I go, what the hell? Like, it, it wasn't like I was so short. It was obvious. I, mean, I, I was putting in a lot of chips. How can they, bu- especially Gavin, who's going to bust. Shane, who's going to really take a hit here. How can they both call so quickly without thought? And then I saw Gavin turned over ace, ten of diamonds. Shane turned over queen, four of diamonds. Flush, over flush, over flush on the freaking flop. I know we talked about this recently, actually. I don't know why. But it wasn't, obviously, it wasn't about Gavin, because he hadn't died yet. But, uh, yeah, flush over, flush over, flush on the flop, and uh, Gavin obviously took it down. I was drawing dead. He tripled up. Shane kind of broke even, because he got the rest of my chips of what Gavin didn't get. I was out. Five spots to the money. Flush over, flush over, flush on the flop. The only time in my life I've ever seen it. I've never seen it involving me before or after and i've never seen it ever involving anyone at the table i've never been at the table and seen that that's the only time in my life and all the millions of hands of poker i've played that i've ever seen three flushes flop never seen two flushes flop a lot never seen three flushes flop very hard to have that happen and it has to happen to me with 23 left in a 5k buy-in tournament freaking brutal and I'm, of course, on the wrong end of it. Now, I don't blame Gavin for any of this, by the way. That was uh, just a cooler. But that, when I, whenever I would hear the name Gavin Smith, my first thought would go to that hand because it, it was so painful to, to see that. It wasn't a bad beat, but it was just... I mean, yes, one of the, just Shane having the better hand than me would have had the same result, but still, just so weird to see flush over, flush over, flush on the flop. That was my... Really, my main poker experience with him. I've I played with Gavin a few other times and over the years at the, the World Series, but nothing memorable happened. 
I last saw him at the World Series in 2018. He played the 3K buy-in Limit Hold'em event, which actually took place after the main event. Uh, how did I notice he was there? Well, because he was drunk and loud as usual. Gavin Smith was known for ordering drink after drink after drink while playing poker tournaments and just downing one after another after another. He would also order drinks for people at the table. In fact, he'd pressure people at the table to drink as well. Uh, this was not a guy who was cheap. This is a guy who, who would buy everyone a drink who wanted it. Which, on one hand, was generous, but also he just wanted people to drink with. He loved drinking. Gavin Smith absolutely loved drinking. He, I, I can only imagine how much alcohol he consumed every day. And as far as I know, he never got a hold of that problem. But really, like every tournament, no matter how big, no matter how important, he'd just keep ordering the drinks over and over and over again. So that's what he was doing at that event. And even though I didn't last long in that event, I, was the, I think I was the first one out, the first or second one out of that event at the 3K Limit Hold'em in 2018. But even in that short period of time, he was already hammering the drinks and being very loud, and that's how I knew he was there. He wasn't even close to my table, but I, I hear a loud voice of sounds like an obnoxious drunk guy, and I look over and I go, that kind of sounds like Gavin Smith. I haven't seen him in a while. Yep, that's Gavin Smith. <laughs> that's who it was. I, I didn't talk to him. He was all the way across the room. I don't even know if he saw me, but that was him doing what he always does. So he was he had a really, really bad drinking problem. And as you can imagine, that probably affected his health. Again, I don't know what his cause of death was, and I don't know if this had to do with it or not, or if this worsened whatever condition he may have had. He obviously had some condition to die in his sleep at 50. That's not common. But he did have a massive drinking problem. He also had a substance abuse problem. And I'm not spreading nasty rumors. He talked about this. Go Google interviews with him where he talks about this. He's, he was very open about it. This is this was not a guy who was putting on airs that he was clean and that was really uh, a, a drunk and a drug addict in, in private. No, th- this was someone who admitted that he did these things and admitted it was a problem and, and, and said he was trying to work on it. And I, I think he got off the drugs, but the drinking, I don't know if that ever got under control. The drinking was, was really his main issue. He also had issues with money management. Now, he was definitely a very good no-limit hold'em tournament player. There's no question about that. He was very successful at it. But despite that, he went broke a number of times. There's an Alaskan listener to this show. He calls himself the Eskimo. Not Eskimo Clark, by the way. He's not alive anymore either. But uh, this guy, the Eskimo, told me some years ago, and I, I remember announcing it on this show, that Gavin was playing regularly at a 2-5 no-limit underground game in Anchorage, Alaska. And that was kind of like how the Mighty Have Fallen moment for the guys going from playing high buy-in tournaments to playing 2-5 no-limit on a regular basis. 2-5 no limit is that's an okay game to play if you're a recreational player. 
But if, if you're a poker pro, especially once a high-stakes tournament poker pro, to be playing 2-5 no limit on a regular basis in Alaska is, is a pretty far fall from where you once were. So I figured, okay, well, he must uh, must have had money management issues, bankroll management issues, and someone who drinks a lot, that's not a surprise. You know, it's... Uh, well, that could have been him just trying to get away from the wife out of the house, and that was the only game in town, too. Yeah. <laughs> as they were fighting, you know? Yeah, it, it could have been. And that, that's why he was in... I had wondered why he was in Alaska. The, the, I found out last few days why he was in Alaska was because his wife was originally from Fairbanks, and uh, Fairbanks is a much tougher place to live in than Anchorage, by the way. It's much colder and much more isolated. But... Uh, yeah, I guess she wanted to stay in Alaska. I know she, his wife, kind of in some ways reminds me of Amanda Leatherman. She just kind of showed up in the poker community during the time of the poker boom, and she was young and pretty and blonde, just like Amanda Leatherman. And it seemed like she got close to a lot of guys in poker very quickly who were successful in poker, just like Amanda Leatherman. <laughs> so there's a lot of similarities uh but uh she and Gavin got married I'm not sure what year I think 2010 or 11 something like that they got married Her name prior to getting married was Case K K A Y C E Edstrom E D S T R O M Case Edstrom you can google her you can see some pictures of her from the 2000s, like 2008, there's a picture of her at a poker table. Very pretty, you can see. Case Edstrom. She is now 35. So as you can imagine, you know, back in 06, 07, she was pretty young. She's now 35, and she's the mother of those kids. They had two kids in the 2010s. Both kids are... Uh, Look, you know, they look pretty young. If I had to guess the ages of the kids, just looking at a picture I saw of them, uh, say maybe six and four or something, that would be my guess of the ages. But uh, or not six and four. I'd say like six and three, maybe. Was she a poker player beforehand? N- not that I know of. I, I she just I, very much like Amanda Leatherman. She was like a pretty young girl who just appeared on the scene. And then was uh, quickly befriended a lot of poker pros. There, I see a 2007 picture on her Facebook. So whenever whenever people's names come up in, involved in any kind of story of interest, the first thing I always do is look up their Facebook, including like people in the news. Like I try to see if I can find their Facebook, give myself an insight into who they are. So I did that, and I found her Facebook, and I found pictures as old as 2007. And there's like a picture of Brad Booth and some other guy. There's, oh, these, you know, these are such great friends of mine, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, that's when Brad Booth was a pretty big deal. She, I don't know if she was involved with either of the two, but she, she definitely was latching on at least friendships and maybe more with various uh, high-stakes poker pros at the time. Yet, as far as I could tell, didn't start off as a poker player. Just kind of came into the community. So, she's the mom, she was his wife, and she's the, you know, the mother of two kids, 
There is a picture of her on her Facebook taken in late 2017. It's her with an older woman. It looks like it's probably her mom. They kind of have a resemblance. She's still pretty. You know, for 35, she's still pretty. Is she as pretty as she was in 2008? No. But are most pretty girls from 2008 as pretty today as they were in 2008? No. Most people are... We're better looking 11 years ago than today. If they were adults 11 years ago. That's just a fact of life with aging, so I'm not going to criticize her for that. You know, overall, for 35, she, she, she's pretty. But uh, she's still in Alaska. And there were also some risque-looking pictures that she posted in 2016. I'm not sure when they were taken, but there's... There's a, they're all kind of blurry, but there's a, there's, a, there's a very blurry picture of her wearing this, like, really, really short dress and kneeling on a poker table, or not, kneeling on a table with cards, like on the table and in her hat. And then there's a picture of her in this, like, super short skirt, like what you'd see a stripper wear, and then... Some like bikini top, but you're only seeing the back of her, and it's a black and white picture. And there's a third picture up there where she's wearing like just her underwear, and then holding what kind of looks like either a white dress or a bridal dress. I don't know, blocking it where you can't see her breasts, but you can see the rest of her body, but you can't see her face. But these are up on her Facebook, so I'm not sure what these pictures were for or what they're about, and if they have anything to do with why she didn't get custody. I don't know if these are saying that she's a stripper. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But there's a, you know, most like 35 year old moms don't have pictures like that on their Facebook, but it had to be more than that though. I, someone found a 2014 interview with Gavin where he talked about how the mom is sick and he's been mainly taking care of the kids lately. So, sick might have meant on drugs. He said, my wife Case has been ill, so I've been picking up the slack and watching the boys while, while she's not feeling well. That's when they were still together. So, this interview was five years ago, January 24, 2014. So that might have been the beginning of the end. Maybe she had a bad drug problem then. I'm just guessing at this part. Maybe she had a bad drug problem then and he was trying to cover for her saying she's just been ill. Like, what's he going to say? Like if he's still with her, he's not going to say, yeah, my wife's a drug addict, so I'm watching the kids. Now. Like, he's not going to say that. He's going to say my wife's been ill. You know, that's, that's what you say. So that was probably the beginning of the end. And probably he couldn't stand it anymore and left her and then moved to Texas for whatever reason. And he... Got, he had to get legal custody of them. So, whatever the story is with her, she's obviously some a, a train wreck. She obviously has a lot of problems. You don't lose custody of your kids like that if you didn't have a lot of problems, especially to someone like Gavin who had his own issues, his own publicly stated issues. This is not a guy who appeared on the surface to be Mr. Clean and then behind closed doors did a lot of bad things. This is someone who admitted... In publications, hey, yeah, I, I drink all the time. Yeah, I do drugs. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm a crazy gambler. But 
That's weird moving to Houston of all places. Yeah, I don't know why Houston. I, I mean, he's from, was he from like Vancouver or something? I think. Yeah, he was or, from Guelph, Ontario, which is kind of in, in the Toronto area. So I don't. Yeah, I don't know why. Oh, he went, I don't know yeah, I don't know why he went to Houston. I, I that I never figured out. But I, I just found out a lot of this stuff in the last few days since since he died. It's not like I like I wasn't Facebook stalking Gavin Smith before this. There was uh, there was no reason to be doing this. So I only found out all this. The only thing I had known about him in recent times was that he was in Anchorage. I didn't even even know he had been. He was in Houston. I didn't even know he was divorced. I didn't know any of that. I heard something about having kids, and and I knew he was in Anchorage. That that was and playing two five over. That's that's all. And presumably broke or close to it because you know what? Why else would he be playing two five? That that was all I knew and all I had talked about him in recent years. Some of you might also remember Gavin Smith hosted an episode of Donkdown Radio with Brian Mikon after I left the site in either late 2011 or early 2012. I think it was late 2011. I was basically kicked off Donkdown during my issues I had there with Brian Mikon, which destroyed our friendship, which we've been over before and I won't bother to go into again. Mikon wasn't really friends with Gavin. They were on okay terms, but the two of them were in what I'd describe as friends. But uh, somehow he got talking to Gavin and pitched to Gavin, hey, would you like to host Donkdown Radio with me? And it wasn't like a guest host. Like, would you like to be the, the future host? Like, it'll be the Mikon and Gavin show. I don't know what they're going to call it, but it was gonna, he was going to be the other host there taking over for me. Mikon had already tried Adam Schoenfeld, who was basically booed off the stage. People didn't like Schoenfeld, and uh, immediately we were like bashing him in the chat and calling up and bashing him. So, like Schoenfeld didn't last more than one episode because the the listeners hated him. So Mikon thought, "Wow, if we could bring in Gavin Smith, that might bring a lot more mainstream attention to Donkdown Radio, because Gavin Smith is a well-known pro. He was well liked when he." co-hosted Poker Road Radio, which by then was defunct. So Mikon was very happy to have him, and someone told me about it. And at the time, I didn't, I hadn't started Poker Fraud Alert yet, so I didn't have a radio show. Someone told me about it. And they said, are you, are, are you concerned? Are you worried that Gavin Smith is going to replace you and people are going to not care about that you're gone anymore? Because up till then, people were upset that I wasn't on the show anymore. And I said, no, it's never going to last. There's no way that Gavin Smith is going to show up reliably every week to do this. He'll do it one week for a novelty and then already be tired of it. That's what I said. That's what I said, and that's what happened. <laughs> but it also didn't help that when he was on there um, and bashed me, I think Mikon brought me up or some, someone or something, something brought me up. I can't say it was Mikon for sure, but I listened to the episode and I was wondering, you know, is this going to be a bash rough fest because Mikon didn't like me anymore. Gavin never liked me. So I was wondering, is this going to be like a show where they sit there bashing me? And for a while it wasn't, but then my name came up and Gavin started bashing me. Nothing too horrible, but he was bashing me. And then various people called up and bashed him. I I actually had defenders calling up and uh, ripping into Gavin. So... uh, I think Team MLK was actually one of them, believe it or not. Zach probably didn't sit well with him either. But either way, I knew he wasn't coming back. I'm not going to take credit for 
my supporters running him off the show. I just knew this is not going to be something he'd want to do every week. So sure enough, he never came back, and that was that. I had one other incident with him uh, earlier than this. In in, uh, in 2007, I had, uh, or th- sorry, 2006, I had become friendly with Chantel McNulty. For those of you that don't remember or don't know, Chantel was a very pretty young girl who kind of just appeared in the poker scene, just like several of them around that time, and hooked up with a number of guys in poker. I got to know her because uh, she was involved with Neverwin, with Dustin Neverwin Wolf. So that's how I got to know her. And she and I got to be friends. She had a very nice personality. Nice meaning like not so much as kind. She was kind. She came off as kind also, but she was just very easy to get along with if you were a guy. She related to guys really well. She liked sports and she liked gambling and she was. It's just very, very easy to relate to. It was almost like you're friends with another guy, except it's a pretty girl. So a lot of guys really took to her. Something that I was always amazed with with Chantel is somehow she made time in the day for everyone. She had so many male poker friends, but she made time for them all. She like talked a long time to them all and messengers and phone calls. And I don't know how she did. It was like she had 100 100 hours in every day. I don't know how she did it, but every guy I talked to, like, not only were they friends with her, but they all had the same experience that she gave them a lot of time, including me. Now, I had a girlfriend at the time, the same one, Miri, and I, you know, so I never did anything with with Chantel and never showed any interest in that way. Uh, she was known to be a, a gold digger. There was a big suspicion about her. Uh, but I... It's interesting, but she told someone about me. She said that she never bothered to flirt with me because uh, she could tell that I just wasn't the type who was going to go for that since I already had a girlfriend. That's what she said to uh, someone she knew. Otherwise... She, and she probably couldn't squeeze any gold out of you too, yeah, Jeff. That's that, probably that, a major that, factor. You're right. I mean, that's probably the bigger factor. <laughs> probably the bigger factor that... Uh, they probably asked her, hmm, you know, I noticed you talk to Druff all the time, and Druff seems to be doing pretty well in poker. Why haven't you tried to have sex with him? And her response was probably... She's like, that's the reason. So, uh, anyway, why am I talking about Chantel? Because everything was going well, and she seemed like a good friend. Until one day I'm playing 200-400 on Poker Stars, and she's there, which she played sometimes. And she starts talking trash to me and saying really nasty, insulting stuff. And she had never acted this way before to me. She'd always been very, very nice and always been very respectful. I'm thinking, is she drunk? What the hell's wrong with her? Why is she insulting me like this? And So at first I'm just trying to laugh it off, but boy, she was getting nasty. Not in a good way. So I was getting pissed off, and I tried to call her cell phone, and nobody answered. And I'm thinking, is this really her? Maybe someone go on her account or something? No, that she started saying things that only, like, she would know. Like, inside things I had talked about with her. Not, like, secrets, but, like, just, like, inside jokes we had. Like, she made reference to some of them to where it was clear she was there. It was clear that she was either on the account saying this herself, or she was with several people and they were doing this together. Something like that. But it, uh, she was definitely present for this. So I got really pissed and said, screw this. I'm, yeah, I'm 
I'm not, I'm not talking to her anymore. I, I got really pissed that this was done. But she went on and on. It was really nasty and mean to me, and I, I, I didn't understand it. We were supposed to be friends. And it wasn't like joking. So I came to find out later. I was at a, a tournament in Reno later. It was in 2007. I think March 2007. And she came up to me and tried to profusely apologize. And I said, first of all, why are you apologizing months later? You know, I tried to contact you about this. You didn't answer me. I finally said, screw it. And you know, why, why am I only hearing about this months later? And, and, and second, you know, how can you possibly excuse what you did? And she said, you don't understand. It wasn't me. It was Gavin Smith. I said, what do you mean it was Gavin Smith? She said, it was, Gavin was on my account and he was doing that. And I, I told him to stop, and he wouldn't listen to me, and he kept doing it. And I said, well, that couldn't entirely be true, because some of the things that were being said, you only knew. Gavin didn't know some of the stuff that you said under that account. So it had to be at least both of you. And she said, no, it was him, it was him, you, you don't understand. I go, listen, you're not telling me the full truth here. I believe, she said, no, you can ask Gavin, he'll admit it, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't care what you think of him, go, go ask him, I'm sure he'll take credit for it. I said, no, I believe he was there. I believe he was responsible for a lot of this. That probably explains why he was so nasty. But uh, you were there too. She said, well, I was there. I was sitting next to him. I was asking him to stop. We were both drinking. I said, well, so, so then you were participating. So I never quite got exactly why she did it. I think probably they were just both drunk and Gavin's like, hey, let's fuck with that druff guy, the fucking asshole, and probably just you know, typed all this crap to me. And then he's like, uh, and then he's like, here, you say something. So she, it was probably something like that. It probably wasn't her idea. It was probably Gavin directing the whole thing, and then she kind of went along with it because they were drunk and screwing around together on there. But uh, I basically told her I didn't accept her apology, and I'm not talking to her again. That was that. But yeah, Gavin did that. And that was before we had any problem. Like, like you know, as I said, privately I kind of just didn't like him, but I we we didn't have any conflict before that. He just did that to me out of nowhere. So when that happened, it wasn't like I was shocked. It wasn't like, oh, I thought this guy liked me. I, I kind of had the idea that he, he just didn't care for me too much, but we never had any incidents that, you know, to where he should have been doing something like that. And again, it wasn't just like, like innocent little jokes. It was someone who was really trying to say the nastiest, um, worst things possible to get me angry. That's what the person was doing there under Chantel's account. I don't remember specifically what it was, or I'd, I'd tell you guys, but I, it, it's been you know, almost 12 years or more than 12 years. But uh, so th- those were my uh, experiences with him over the years. He he also said at one point that he really disliked me because I was mean to Joe Seabach because he and Joe Seabach were very close friends, and he didn't like the way that I went off on Joe since Joe was promoting the new UB. So, but I think he criticized him for that too, didn't he? I don't remember, but I know that he, I'm pretty sure he did. It's. It, it, very I mean, he wasn't on him like you were, obviously, yeah. but he certainly. He, he had stated somewhere publicly. Told him not to do it. Yeah, I he think. had stated somewhere publicly that I was an asshole and I was, you know, that, that I was giving it to Joe too much. Whatever it was, he was he was very critical of me for the way I was talking about Joe, and and it said that somewhere publicly. I forgot I forgot where, but it was, and that was what around 2010 or something, 2011. So it had to be 2010, 2011. It was gone after. Uh, Black Friday. So that was my history with him. So as you guys can hear, did we have any horrible incidents? Did you know? Did he owe me money? No. Uh, did we ever have any kind of 
you know shouting match in the halls of the Rio. No. Did we ever like harass one another? Other than the poker stars thing where he did it in the Chantel's account? No. Uh, were we actively looking to screw each other over? No. Were we enemies? No. Did he like me? No. Did I like him? No. Uh, so, when you hear someone like that dies, and that was your history with them over a period of years, I admit I've had just about no interaction with him in the last seven years or so, but still, if that's been your history with that person, you're, you're not going to feel uh, sad when you hear they've died. Now, I'll admit, there's some people who are afraid to admit that they're happy when anybody dies. There's, there's some people who were even afraid to say that they were happy when they heard Osama bin Laden was killed. Oh, I can't ever celebrate at someone's death. Yes, you can. If the person's a horrible person, of course you can celebrate their death. If it's a person that really has, has been uh, a thorn in your side, a person who's really, really made your life difficult and you hear they die, yes, you're probably happy. And if you don't admit that, then you're just not being truthful. But if it's just someone you just don't like too much, you just never cared for, you just never got along with, but nothing of note really happened very much, uh, you're not happy to hear they're dead. But you're not going to be sad either. If somebody asked me, um, what would make you happier if Gavin Smith were alive today or that he's dead today? I'd say, oh, no, I'd, I mean, I'd rather he was alive. I don't think he deserved death for any of the things that we did. So, you know, do I think it's fitting that he died at 50? No, I, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate for him, and I, I, I'm not saying he deserved it. I think he may have somewhat caused it by his lifestyle choices. I still don't know the cause of death. Maybe it was unrelated, but good chance it was related to, you know, even if it was a problem that wasn't brought on by this, it could have been something that was worsened by his drinking. So definitely, if if you were asked, you know, name some well-known pros in poker who have a very unhealthy lifestyle, Gavin Smith would be one that a lot of people would name. And that's a fact. Somebody texted me when I told them that Gavin Smith had died. They said, I didn't know much about him. But I heard that he was a jerk, but an honest jerk. That's at the, and I said, well, that, that actually brings me to my next point. I actually heard that while he, he wasn't a scammer or anything, but that I actually heard that he owed some people money just from his poor bankroll management. And he borrowed from people and just never paid some back. And that's that's what I had heard. He wasn't running scams or anything, but it was someone who... At the same time, but wasn't knocking himself out to pay past debts. Uh, I was told, and this is a third-hand story, so maybe it's not true. I was told by someone who was told by somebody else directly. You know, so this person supposedly had this happen to them, and they told a person who told me. So it's a third-hand story, and I can't verify it. But I was told that Gavin entered a game, a home game, on credit. Said, hey, give me 3K credit. They gave him 3K credit. He played. He lost the 3K. Left. Said, okay, you know, I'll pay you guys back soon. Uh, never paid. Just 
stiff the guy running the game for 3K. Don't know if this is true, but I, I heard that story. It's believable. And I believe it even more after reading this kind of strange but honest eulogy from a friend of his, Joe Stapleton, formerly of Poker Road Radio. This is what Joe Stapleton wrote about Gavin Smith. And remember, this, what I'm going to read you, while a lot of it is positive, it it does have coverage of some of his negative traits, including owing people money. And this is from a good friend of his. So this is not from someone who had an axe to grind. Joe Stapleton wrote this. I have gotten some flack, albeit very little, for mentioning that Gavin had his demons. I've always thought it was weird when people pass away and everyone acts like they were a saint. Gavin was no saint. Yeah, I totally agree with that, by the way. Totally agree with that. I saw the same thing with Devilfish. Devilfish Elliot, when he died, I I saw all these people just come out and, and praise him, what a wonderful guy he was. Ignoring the fact that Devilfish was a career criminal prior to getting into poker and then found wow I can win at poker I don't need to I don't need to steal anymore I don't need to be part of an organized crime anymore wow I, now I can play poker and, and and be legal cool and then and then when he was in poker boy was he disrespectful and abusive toward women including people's wives and girlfriends I mean the, the guy was was a piece of crap devilfish and when he died the the, the glowing things people said about him you'd never know it I was one of the few who spoke up at that point that uh, I said, look, you see, uh, Gavin Smith was just kind of an abrasive jerk, in my opinion, but he wasn't like Devilfish. Like, he didn't, he didn't have the history Devilfish had. So, like, Gavin, I don't feel like I have to go speak up and say, hey, wait, hold on here, this guy was bad. You know, Gavin, I don't think he's a bad guy. He was just someone, I just found him to be kind of rude and abrasive, and we didn't get along, okay? Uh, but as Stapleton wrote, he's no saint. So I'm, I'm glad someone's you know, coming up and saying this and being kind of realistic about him. This is what uh, he went on to write. The first time I met Gavin, he berated me for choking at shuffleboard. The first time I proudly introduced him to my best friend, Gavin punched him. The last I saw Gavin, he spent nearly two hours destroying a live TV show I was hosting, and, and he also punched a rock and roll legend. I wonder who that was. I wonder who, which rock and roll legend he punched. He abused substances, though I heard he had really turned things around recently. He owed money. He aggressively and uncomfortably hit on nearly every woman he encountered. That part I didn't know. I never saw him do that, but okay. Now imagine how the enormity of the heart that must have been beating inside that man's chest to completely overshadow all those things. I can barely imagine it, but it was there. It was huge, and now it's gone. He was funny and loud and lit up a room in a way that I never will. He was an attention seeker, but never when it, beca- but never when it came to matters of generosity and kindness. He was obsessed with charity and insanely loyal, which I think was mostly so he could have an excuse to punch people. Gavin would have given you the shirt off his back, even though we all wish he would have kept it on more often. Gavin, Gavin's good qualities were admirable in any walk of life, but they were also important to the game of poker and to the people whose lives he touched, whether in person, on the radio, or on television. For those watching on TV, he made the game look fun. For those in the room, he made the game be fun. That's just what he brought to the world at large. We all have at least a handful of stories of absolutely golden things he did for us as individuals, all I will say is that when I started in this industry, I was broke and I was a nobody. When you're Gavin's friend, you're never broke and you're never a nobody. I'm sorry I have to mention the bad things. I really am. But I think it's important to take the bad things into context for, for people to truly understand the magnitude of the net positive Gavin had to have on all of our lives for us to still love him that much. 
We loved him in spite of those things, and I can't even really explain it, but we all loved him because of those things. And my God, did we love that guy. We loved him so much, we still do. So obviously a pretty positive eulogy for him, but, but acknowledging at the same time that he had these issues. So I bet if you were his friend, uh, other than being obnoxious and I guess having a habit of punching people, uh, I'm guessing it was kind of playful punching, but probably still like hard enough to where it was annoying. But uh, he's pro- he was probably like quietly generous and supportive behind the scenes to his friends. He was probably someone that, if you were friends with him, uh, you got to feel uh, very warm things about him. That beyond the abrasive demeanor, uh, was a good, caring person. And I think that's why we have a lot of people that are out there right now who are so torn up about this. And I never got to see that side of him. I, I, I only saw the side of him that was the rude, abrasive jerk. So, you know, I, I believe these people. I don't think they're making it up. And and I, reading this from Stapleton, that I, I can take that more seriously than the rest of the tributes I'm seeing, which are just all positive. This, at least, is acknowledging a lot of the, the flaws, inc- including the owing money, which I hadn't really heard much about until after he passed. I knew he was probably broke, but I, I hadn't heard about owing the money. And, you know, in the context of Stapleton's story, now I believe, especially that story that was told to me about the 3K that he played on credit and never paid back. I, I don't think he walked into the game saying, ha, 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 I'm going to free roll this game. But he's probably like, yeah, I bet I can beat this game. Oh, crap, I can't beat this game. Yeah, I'll, I'll get them sometime. Yeah, I'll get them sometime when I have the money. And then he kind of forgot about it. That, that's my guess. So, from that old, that, that description, though, you can see why there were some people who didn't care for him. Like, even think of the women that he hit on that weren't welcoming it. That's, a, you know, that's not appropriate. Even, even prior to the Me Too era that began in, in 2017... Even prior to that, it, it wasn't appropriate to just aggressively hit on every woman you meet. You, you got to show respect toward women. If they're not interested in you, if they don't seem to be into you at all, to, to aggressively hit on them, to just throw yourself at every woman you meet, it, it, it's, it makes an uncomfortable situation for them. I, I don't like seeing guys do that. I, th- I think it's... Uh, I. I Picture the way the women must feel when it's happening, and it must be very uncomfortable for them. So you, you can't just gloss over that. And say, oh, he was, he was, you know, he hit on a lot of women. Ha 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 You know, it sounds like he took that too far. So there were a lot of flaws the guy had for sure, and you, you've got to keep those in context. And I, I again, I believe if you were close to him, I believe if you were friendly with him, that uh, in some ways he was probably a very good friend. I think he loved his kids a lot. I think. Uh, I think he probably did a lot of nice things for his friends over the years. Maybe part of the reason he was broke is because he was overly generous with some of the friends over the years. So I'm not saying the guy was all bad, but my experiences with him personally weren't that good. But that leads me to talk about the GoFundMe. Let's talk about the GoFundMe, because that is a whole different matter. Let's go back to the two kids. So without Gavin there, one who will take care of them and who will support them. Will it be the mom? Will she get custody? 
is she even in the condition to take care of anyone now? Or is she still recovering from drug addiction or whatever other problem she had? Or will the custody go to some relative of Gavin's? Or might they end up in the foster system? So I don't have a definite answer to that question. But a GoFundMe was started by Josh Arie, finished third in the main event in 2004, longtime poker pro, kind of vanished from the scene for a while, but reappeared, I think, in 2017. So Josh Arie started that. Uh, as far as I know, Josh Arie has not been involved in any scandals. So I don't think that the GoFundMe is a scam in any way. I think that Josh was probably a friend of Gavin's who legitimately had a concern about the kids and wanted to make sure they're taken care of and knew that there's a lot of money floating around in the poker community. So here's what the GoFundMe page says. It says, R.I.P. Ol' Gavin Smith. That was his own nickname for himself. Uh, Ol' G. Smith. O-L apostrophe. R.I.P. Ol' Gavin Smith. Gavin was a beloved member of the poker community and a father of two boys, Kingston and Keegan. Gavin was a dedicated father with sole custody of his sons before passing away unexpectedly. Since his death, social media has been flooded with stories and remembrances of Gavin and the love that everyone had for him. The entire poker community is devastated by Gavin's passing, and it is in these times of loss and sadness when the poker community comes together as one to support the loved ones of those we've lost. Gavin's friends and his longtime lawyers and agents at Poker Royalty have organized this GoFundMe page to provide financial support for Gavin's two sons. All proceeds from this page will be placed in a law firm escrow account until a trust or another legal vehicle can be established to solely benefit Gavin's children. Again, this is started by Josh Arie. Uh, originally had a goal of $10,000, was then raised to 25000 was then raised to 100000 Why? Because they have currently raised quite a sum of money. At the moment, they have... One million dollars. No, who knows? It might get there. $67,000 right now raised from the poker community. You can even scroll through the list of donors, and it really is a who's who of names in poker. Some kind of no-namers, too. These some anonymouses, too. But a lot of names in poker donated. So, in one way, this speaks very nicely for the poker community, that they've gotten together, and a whole lot of people together have raised $67,000 already in three days. 440 people donated in three days, $67,289, still rising, for Gavin's two young children, whose father has passed away, and the mother probably not in a condition to take care of them. So how could this be criticized? How could there be anything to criticize about this, especially since I believe, and I think everybody believes, that Josh Arie did this out of the goodness of his heart, and that the money really will be held in some kind of trust, 
that everything they wrote there is true. So what could possibly be a reason why one might not want to donate to this? Well, the two kids obviously went through a lot. These two kids are probably never going to get over this. These two kids have a rough road ahead of them because I don't know if their mother's going to be in the picture at all, and their father's gone. The younger one may even be too young to even remember the father when he gets older. The older one looks old enough to do so, but the other, the younger one, I don't know, looks around three from what I can see in the picture. He's kind of bending down, so it's hard to see his height, so it's kind of hard to tell, but... Uh, anyway. Non-monetarily, these kids are in for some hurt. Maybe for long-term hurt. And it's tragic that they don't grow up without a father and without the only real parent they had. And when I think of this, that is what saddens me. That is what I think is the real tragedy. If Gavin had no kids, the way I would think of it is, okay, well, a poker player who lived a very unhealthy lifestyle, was an alcoholic, abused drugs, died early. Okay, you know, this happens. Not saying I'm happy it happens, but it happens. You can't say, oh, this is so tragic. But uh, th- this is the part. The part about the kids, that's that's truly tragic. That's truly sad. I'm looking at this picture, and I, I see the two cute kids, and I go, oh, boy, that's a... I can only imagine what they're going through and what they will continue to go through. Who's going to raise them? And, you know, just Especially for the one that's older, it's going to be even harder on him. So, what about the GoFundMe? Well, I guess it's the skeptic in me. I guess it's the person who has an immediate distrust of anything GoFundMe. Since GoFundMe, I, I nickname it Go Fuck Me because that's what it really is. It's, it's, there's so many scams on there. So many scams or semi scams. Semi scams meaning that uh, the person is requesting the funds for something that's true, but they're not. They don't need as much as they say, or they're not going to really use it for that. Or, you know, there's a lot of a lot of different ways that GoFundMe campaigns are, are not what they appear to be. Sometimes a person just doesn't feel like working, and they, hey, people are going to give me money. Why, why don't I get a job? You know, why, why do I have to work minimum wage if I can make, hey, you put up some sob story here and have people pay me to do nothing? A lot of that on GoFundMe. So I have a distrust of GoFundMe campaigns in general. So I guess it was the skeptic in me that I started to think of ways that perhaps this might not work out as intended. And the biggest one that came to mind was the fact that it is unclear who is going to raise the kids and what access they will have to that money. Now, I know it mentions about the trust and about lawyers administering it, but how closely will that be watched? So let's say hypothetically they end up with a mother. Let's say that the mother's issues had to do with drugs. I don't know if they did, but let's say they did. Okay? I think that's the best guess at this time. Let's say they had to do with drugs. Okay, They end up with the mother. The mother says, hey, I need you know, this many thousand dollars per month to take care of the kids. The fund has, let's say, $100,000 in it. Well, okay. you know, Sounds reasonable. You need this to take care of the kids. And then she spends uh, two-thirds of it on drugs to go up her nose. Was that a good use of the money? Even if one-third of that money went to the kids? Is, is it a good use of the money if, if, if two-thirds of it got spent on drugs? No. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I'm saying, could it happen? Yes. Could it easily happen? Yes. 
before donating to something like this, I would want to know not just who's managing it, but who's going to be receiving the money and how trustworthy are they? And that's an important piece of information to know. And what you can do is you could you could say, okay, I'm going to donate once I find out more details about that. That's what that's what I think would be the more prudent way of doing things. Uh, another thing was brought up, though this may not be true, so uh, take it as you may. But this came from Doyle Brunson. Doyle Brunson's son Todd is friends with, uh, or was friends with Gavin Smith. I don't know how much Todd talked to Doyle about the situation. But uh, Doyle entered the lion's den of social media. See, I was a little skeptical of this stuff, but there was no way I was going to say this stuff on Twitter and just have the poker community jumped down my throat. I I knew that if I dared say anything in mass social media, that I would be attacked viciously. So given that this isn't really that much of my business, I figured I'm going to stay out. If I thought there was some big scam going on, I'd say, you know, crowd be damned. I'll say what I want. But this, you know, I, I, as I said, I think Josh Arie really started it with good intentions. I think everybody organizing this GoFundMe, everybody behind that, I think they're doing it with good intentions. I don't think any of them are trying to scam here. So for that reason, I, I didn't want to say anything, but I said it on poker fraud alert, but I wasn't going to go say it in mass social media, but Doyle entered the lion's den. He wrote, this was, January 17th, yesterday, at 3.38 p.m. Pacific Time. He wrote, Is it true that Gavin had a brother that was worth many millions? The kids are supposedly going to live with him. Any truth to this? If so, why are we, the poker community, raising money for them? Oh, boy. Doyle, what are you doing? Doyle, how, how can you say that? Oh, my goodness. Even if you're Doyle, you gotta you gotta watch what you say. Well, sure enough, he got attacked very, very hard on Twitter for the, for asking that question. A lot of really, really nasty responses to him. Someone wrote, uh, you know, about why are we the, in response to why are we the poker community raising money for them? Someone wrote back, apparently we, meaning you, aren't. Might be a good idea to verify your facts before publicly speculating on a very large platform. The kids lost their dad who struggled financially for a long time. This is a trust on behalf of Gavin for his kids. So that was a guy who at least responded you know, kind of respectfully, but then some just were really brutal and mean to Doyle, just, just really attacking him hard. There were a few who backed Doyle there. Uh, a guy named George wrote... Gavin spewed money in the pit, abused his health with booze, morbid obesity, and no exercise, has a rich brother, and it's the right thing to do to give money because he has kids? Heard it all now. So that person agreed with Doyle. But after Doyle got battered by so many people, he finally relented and said, I guess it's good to show respect for Gavin, even if the money isn't needed. I'm already on in on the fund for the kids. So Doyle was shamed into not only taking back what he said, but also to uh, donate to the fund. Rick Fuller 
longtime friend of Gavin's wrote this. I can handle this one. The money is going to a trust set up by a trust attorney here in Vegas. It will be under the control of a committee who will be responsible for distributing it over the next decade or so as appropriate. So the question is, who is it being distributed to? I believe that part, but who is it going to? And is it true that they are going to Gavin's brother, who has millions of dollars? You may say, well, why does that matter what Gavin's brother has? Well, it matters a lot. If he's going to be adopting these kids, and he has millions of dollars already, then money is not needed. It may feel good to donate money in that case, but it's not needed. Now, maybe you think I'm being insensitive. But let's change it a little bit. Let's say that Jeff Bezos decided that with the loss of his wife that's divorcing him, he wants to add to his family, and he has decided to adopt Gavin Smith's two kids. Now, Jeff Bezos is going to lose some money in the divorce, but he's still going to be super, 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 super rich. Would you donate money to Jeff Bezos to raise the kids at that point? I don't think you would. I don't think anybody would. I think if it was heard that Jeff Bezos is going to be taking over raising those kids, I don't think a penny would be sent. Because it would be known that money would not be needed at all. So, well, nobody's claiming that Gavin's brother is Jeff Bezos. If he does have millions of dollars, then yeah, the money isn't what's needed at this point. I said on the site that if that's true... Instead of giving money, people should be making tribute videos about Gavin, things the kids could watch later on when they're older and see some nice things about their father. That, that would really mean a lot to them when they're older to watch these videos that people made at the time of Gavin's death and see all the people that liked him. Giving money to already rich adoptive parents is not going to help. It may feel good to do. It's not going to help. But here's the question. Is that true? Is it true that Gavin's brother is adopting them? And is it true that the guy is rich? Well, that is being denied now by none other than Joy Miller, who I really dislike. Disliked her a lot more than Gavin. She's still alive, by the way. Joy, Joy Miller responded by saying has a brother because for some reason Doyle had a brother, which he wasn't trying to imply the brother was dead. I guess it was like a typo or something, but it has a brother and a sister and a mother. None of them are filthy rich. I've spent time with them. Why don't you ask Brian Ballsbaugh because he knows Gavin's family as well. We've all spent time together. What a weird and kind of awful tweet. You should have asked anyone who knows this family. So... You never know with Joy Miller. She's not exactly known for her honesty. But uh, she's claiming that none of them are, quote, filthy rich. Though, who knows what filthy rich means? You know, maybe, maybe the brother does have you know, $2 million, and she doesn't consider that filthy rich. I don't know. It, it would be useful to know, though, uh, where the kids are going, if they're going to be officially adopted what the financial state is of the family adopting them. And then let people do what they want at that point. I, I just... I know what people are trying to do. I know they're trying to do the right thing. I know they're trying to be nice. I know they're trying to 
do something nice for kids that have just gone through something horrible and won't get over anytime soon or perhaps ever. I just sometimes think that people will engage in a knee-jerk reaction that they think is helpful without really thinking about, is this really what's needed? Sometimes money is not what's needed. Sometimes moral support or a nice note or a nice video that could be way more valuable to someone going through like this, something like this than money. Now, if money is needed, then yes, money is very valuable. <laughs> I'm not someone to say, oh, money doesn't matter. Don't give money. No. If, if money is needed and you give money, then, then great. If it's even that the family, let's say he's going with a brother who's kind of like middle class. Okay, fine. So, so you know, set this up as like a scholarship for them for the future for college. Great. I, I agree with that. Okay. Uh, but if he's going with a relative that, that really has plenty of money to where, let's say, 100000 to raise, it'll be a drop in the bucket for that person. Like maybe even it's nice to, let's say, let's say they, they have a $3 million net worth. I don't think they need the money. I don't think you need to raise money for someone with $3 million net worth. Um, even though 100000 is is something to someone with a $3 million net worth, it's, it's still... I don't see that being something that needs to be done there. But, yeah, if, if the brother's just a typical uh, middle-class guy, then yeah. Then go ahead. You know, I, I agree. Give the money. So, I now, do, I don't think this is a terrible thing. I don't think this is uh, something that we have to watch out for, or I don't think we have to worry about scams or anything like that. As I said, the GoFundMe seems to be done by honest people with good intentions, with a good plan in place, from what I can see, to try to make sure the money is not misspent. But if the person receiving it on the other end, if they're not trustworthy, there's only so much you can do. And it would be helpful to know how much in need is the new family. Now, if this were to be something just held for the kids until they're 18, that I could actually see, even if the adoptive family is rich. If they want to just do this for the kids to where when they turn 18, that each of them is given half of the fund, or you know, maybe later than 18, so they more responsibly use the money, maybe when they're 25, something like that. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But if this is some fund... So the kids can start off with some nice money when they're young instead of uh, having to start out from zero. Uh, that's that's fine, too. Because just because you, you may have rich adoptive parents, maybe the adoptive parents don't want to start you with anything. Maybe, maybe they would like to give them this and say, okay, this is raised by the poker community on behalf of your dad, who they liked so much. And now when you're starting off with this money early in life, now uh, early in your adulthood, now you it's because of that. And it makes you feel good about your dad, who you never got to really know. Great. No objection to that. But this kind of sounds like it's going to be used to help raise the kids. It's going to go to whoever adopts them. And the person already has a lot of money. I don't see the reason to donate. But okay. You want to donate, go ahead and donate. I'm not going to tell you not to. But uh, I, I think a little more information needs to be known. Even though the organizer of this GoFundMe is probably just trying to do something nice. So, 
that's it. Those are my feelings on it. I'm not going to go battle this out on social media. I'm not going to go argue with people about this. I'm not going to enter that lion's den. Just giving you my private thoughts here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Why? Because I like to give you my true and honest feelings about things. I'm not here to lie to the audience. I'm not here to say things that will sound good in a soundbite, or if people listen to the show later, who uh, might like Gavin or whatever. Like I, I'm not here to try to be diplomatic or come off as an ultra-caring guy about everyone and everything. I'm here to be a real person, and I think that's why a lot of you listen. Because you know you're hearing the real me, and you're hearing my real thoughts. So I'm telling you my real thoughts. Not the thoughts which sound the best, but just all my real thoughts. You going to say something, Trader Risky? Yeah, I was just going to say it's probably time to wrap up this topic and move (laughs) on to the next one. But I did remember when that guy uh, who was the executive at Fox named Gavin Smith died. Yes. When I heard about that first, I thought, oh, Gavin Smith died. So it's kind of like, oh, the second time, you know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that was just something that came to mind when I first heard about it. There's a thread on Poker Fraud Alert from 2014 saying Gavin Smith found dead in Palmdale, California in 2014. That was, I think that was the same guy. (laughs) um, Yeah, exactly. And and so people got mad at me for pulling that prank on the the board. And uh, I didn't realize that uh, there actually would be a premature Gavin Smith death uh, four plus years later. Anyway. Uh, yeah, okay, let's move on to the topic. Let's take a look at the chat room here. That's what the chat room has to say. But if anybody wants to call in, and by the way, Trader Rooski, if anyone calls in, I have to hang up on you and then call you. Like, Yeah, and no, I heard that, but I know the bad guy's anxious to call in, and okay, he's so, always okay, entertaining. Bad, fine, bad so guy, call in. So, get the bad guy on. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Boy, bad guy's just hammering the chat. 775-372-8355. Is the number you can also text that number? Let's see if we got any texts. Let's see from the nine one six Druff. If anything happened to you, we would set up a Go Fraud Me account for Ben. <laughs> I actually said on the forum, if something happened to me, don't don't donate to Ben. That money wouldn't be his problem. From the seven seven three, what the fuck? You reset the tournament. Had doubled up and trade Risky's out. Very shady. Did you double? I mean, did you uh, bust the first time? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I flopped a <laughs> set of kings, or I turned a set of kings. How lucky are you here? How got rivered. How lucky then, are you that you you, know. you, you 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 bust and get rivered, and then you get to, <laughs> you get to replay it as if the whole thing didn't happen? I, I do. I, do I, this too. I I feel bad for that guy. Um, and someone says, hey, "Hey, Todd, can I enter the free roll? Can't find the rules. It's saying I don't have permission." Yeah, you have to message Belly Buster. Uh, on the forum to get permission to to play the free roll, he gives you uh, he gives your account permission. There, we do this to prevent multi accounting. Okay, so uh, bad guy, you can call in. If we don't get a call from you shortly, then uh, I'll move on to the next topic. Another topic about death. Very uh, upbeat show here tonight on this Friday evening. All right, I haven't gotten a call. I'm getting too impatient. I will just. Move on. 
You you can't call the bad guy and patch him in. I, I, can you can you pa- can, yeah, if can. you patch somebody in? Yes. Does that then you have to call me back too? I, I, or is yeah, that I, I, that works? I don't remember his number though. I, I don't want to delay the show while I look it up. So okay, uh, I want to talk about another death that wasn't known except to except to a few people. A death that took place years ago, in 2015 specifically. Of a pretty well-known poker, uh, pretty well-known person in poker social media, and they died, and they just kind of disappeared from poker social media. People kind of wondered what happened to them, and I knew at the time what happened to them. I knew that the person died, and I chose to cover the entire thing up. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Asian Spa. Remember Asian Spa? Asian Spa. Wow, I didn't know. Yes, Asian Spa died in 2015. And so you obviously knew his true identity, yes. right? Because didn't you not know it for yes, a while? I, I didn't even know it ever came out. Right, I didn't know it for a while, but uh, I did know his true identity. And very nice guy in real life. Uh, I know he's kind of a Twitter troll, but a very nice guy in real life. And he really built a, a pretty notable character on Twitter. Uh, he liked to be kind of a tell-it-like-it-is guy, the one who would say something that everyone else is afraid to say. He'd probably be the guy questioning the GoFundMe here for Gavin Smith, my guess is, if he were still alive. Uh, but anyway, Asian Spa really made a name for himself. For a while, it was suspected that Asian Spa was either me or MyCon, or that perhaps we were both sharing the account. For some reason, we were under suspicion, but no. We never were Asian Spa. We never had access to that account. We never had anything to do with that character. It was completely separate from us. In fact, uh, at one point, it was a little bit critical of us, but uh, Asian Spa quickly came around to like us and become very supportive of us. And then when we stopped being friends, I, I don't know how he was with MyCon, but uh, he, he was still very nice and supportive with me. Always wrote nice things when I was playing World Series events, uh, encouraging tweets. Uh, even sent me an Asian spa patch to wear, which I wore on one one event. Uh, really liked Asian spa, but uh, I, I was pretty saddened when I found out in 2015 that he passed away. He wasn't that old either. I'm not going to reveal his identity, but. The good news for you, the listener, who is probably curious about his identity, is that it wouldn't mean much if I told you. He was not a known poker pro in any way, shape, or form. He was just a guy who lived in Las Vegas who was a local grinder, and not even at that high limit. But did he play at the Bellagio, or was he somebody we'd know if we played a lot at the Bellagio, or is it just smaller than that? No, he wasn't, he wasn't a limit hold'em player. So uh, and, and he, he I don't know if he played at the Bellagio, but he played just around town in various places. Uh, he was a kind of small to mid stakes, no limit player, and more of a recreational player than anything else. And he was just a big follower of poker social media and invented that character. And it it got a lot of play, a lot of interest, and uh, then he continued it. He even briefly had a column 
on Poker News. <laughs> they gave actually gave him a column on Poker News at the the peak of his popularity. So, it, what was the column about? It, it was it, what it, uh, it, what Asian spas to go to. It, you know, it was called the Muck, and he just write about just <laughs> random stuff. They still have the Muck, but uh, he he was one of the writers for the Muck. It wasn't his own column, but he was a, he was a contributor to the Muck. So, Asian Spa passed away in 2015, and I didn't know what to do regarding his identity. I didn't know, you know, should I come out and memorialize Asian Spa and tell everyone that he was a good guy, and, you know, just, I would give my honest feelings about him. I really thought he was a good guy. He was sometimes a, tw- a troll on Twitter, but, I mean, he never took it too far, and he was he really was a, a good guy. I agree with I am Greek, by the way. What, you can't tell us who he was? Well, I'm going to explain, yeah, explain why, and I'll explain why I'm only telling you guys now. Okay, it's three and a half years later or so since he died. Um, and you, you can figure this out. You, know, you can look at his Twitter. You'll see when he stopped tweeting. That's when he died. So I, I was trying to figure out how to handle it, and I decided that uh, because this was someone who was not controversial in real life, this was a, a nice guy in real life. This guy had a, a life separate from poker. This was a, a recreational player who invented this character that a lot of people f- found interesting. And I didn't want to change anyone's memory of the real man behind Asian Spa. I didn't want people who knew the real guy Googling him and finding people, you know, you know people who didn't like Asian Spa, people Asian Spa criticized. I didn't want to like post it like, oh, so Asian Spa was such and such. Well, you know, uh, you know like, I didn't want people Googling that and finding things about what he had written under that character. I kind of separated it from like the, there was like the character of Asian spy and the man behind Asian spy. I almost saw them as two different people, even though they were the same person. And I thought, you know, I, I don't want to give that away. I don't think it's my right to do because he was always secretive about it. In fact, it took a very long time. It was only shortly before he died that, uh, I, that I, got to know who he was. So I thought to myself, uh, if he barely even trusted me with knowing who he was, I'm not sure if he'd want everyone to know this after he's passed away. So I didn't think it was my right to reveal that. Oh, so you did know his identity before he died? Yeah. Not very long. Not very long. So, so, uh, I, I was I, I I didn't think that was right for me to do. I was also afraid if I revealed it at the time that maybe some clever people would be able to look up who died recently and figure it out and like I was like okay I, I you know it wasn't a well-known person but you know there's still ways to figure it out and I say like, okay I don't want to give it all I don't want to give it away. I'm just afraid it's going to give it away. He he uh he was also married and his wife wanted his wife getting hassled so I said, okay, I'm not going to say anything. Then I got an idea. Then I got an idea. I said, okay, so the man behind Asian Spa has passed away, and there's nothing we can do about that. But does Asian Spa have to die? And I thought about Andy Kaufman and how his alter ego, Tony Clifton, still lives to this day, even though Andy Kaufman died uh, over 30 years ago. I thought, what if I could take over the Asian Spa account? 
I would need the cooperation of his wife to get me access to it. So um, I didn't really know his wife, but I knew a friend of his wife. So I, I asked the friend to pass along the question to the wife. I said, yeah, I know she's going through a lot right now. I don't want to complicate things or be a pain in the ass. But uh, I know he was really he really enjoyed being the Asian spot character. I think he would have really liked if I could keep it alive. So even though he's gone, the and, and I would play it the same way he played it, and I was going to... That's what my plan was, to just to play Asian Spa the same way he did, same type of writing style, same type of language, same type of attitude. Um, and uh, I was going to keep the character alive. And she said yes. She actually said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Then she attempted to get access to it, and, and it was having a hard time. And she wasn't very computer literate, so it wasn't... like. For someone computer literate, it's easy. You just go on, you get their email, you, you, you request a password reset. She wasn't good at that at all. and was having a hard time with figuring out what to do. And in the meantime, it's like she's grieving over the whole thing. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to press this. I'm not going to keep hassling her to get me access to the Asian spot account. So I dropped it for some time. And then I messaged that friend a few months later and said, you know, if you want to try to get access now, there's been some time. The friend said, okay, I'm going to ask about it. And then the friend came back and said, yeah, yeah, she said she, she doesn't know how to do it. She can't get access to it. She just doesn't want to bother. So I'm like, okay, fine. So that idea died, unfortunately. But that that was the reason that uh, I also didn't say it is because I also didn't want Asian Spot to die. And I had told a few people who knew about this, or some people knew, you know, some people knew the person behind Asian Spot. So when... Yeah, so when Asian, when that guy behind Asian Spot died, they also knew Asian Spot died. So one of the people who knew his identity was uh, a female poker player n- known as Jean Riders. It's not her real last name, but uh, Jean Riders on Twitter. Uh, she's an older woman, uh, sometimes listens to this show, good friend of Brandon's. Um, she made a final table at the World Series uh, this past year. I think it was a triple draw. And a nice woman, and uh, you know, I've always gotten along with her well. But today, she was, uh, the, I think this is the first time ever that I've seen that she was uh, kind of annoyed with me and critical of me. At least publicly. Someone asked out of the blue, like, whatever happened to Asian Spa? And she responded that he actually, that he died four years ago. And that, and then she went on to say that Todd Wittellis has known the whole time. Ask him. So then I said, "Well, I guess I guess you're forced in my hand. I guess I've got to explain this whole thing now. I'll do it on radio tonight." And then she sent two messages, like kind of pissed off, saying. Well, I didn't agree with the, the, you know, this whole thing about keeping it quiet all this time. I thought it was a stupid reason, blah, blah, blah. So I, I think she believed that I was keeping it quiet because I wanted to continue being Asian Spa. And that's why I pressured everyone to stay quiet. But the, the, She must not be remembering right because I told her the real reason I wanted to keep it quiet is so people don't figure out who it is. And she agreed with that at the time. I, I think when I also told her that I wanted to take over the Asian spa account, I think then it kind of, I think over the years her mind morphed into only remembering that and believing that I kept his death quiet so I could take over the account. 
this is almost like a an insidious plot from a movie of the week or something where someone dies and then some other guy wants to take over his identity. But this is actually pretty innocent. I was actually doing what I thought he would want done. I, I would have thought that he would have liked that character to live on. Especially because he, he operated that character totally separate from himself. The character of Asian Spa had a completely different personality than he had in real life. It was a character. It really was just a character. And characters don't have to die. Characters can live forever. So I thought that would have been a nice thing, that a character that he made and was proud of could continue living after he was gone. And for a while I just kind of held out hope that maybe his wife would access it someday. Or I just... As the years passed, I kept saying, you know, I've got to tell everyone that Asian Spa passed away. And then I go, no, what, what if I still get access to the character? Or what if, I, what, what if that account expires and I can reclaim it in some way? Or like I started thinking maybe I, or maybe I could even make a new Asian Spa account and say, hey, I'm back. You know, I lost access to the other account. I was thinking of kind of doing that. And then I, I, I don't know. I, I was kind of wavering back and forth of whether I wanted to do that without access to the account or if I should wait it out and it just it just time kept passing and passing and I just didn't feel the enough of an urge to reveal this until today when my hand was forced where, where it was revealed publicly by Gene Riders that, that he's been dead for she said four years not quite four years but whatever it's been more than three so yes Asian Spot has passed away yes I asked everybody to keep quiet about it Yes, I was going to pretend to be Asian Spy and take that over. And that's the truth. So I, I guess I did cover up a death in the poker community. But I, I think it was for good reason. And uh, and I really liked him. I really liked him. And I was I was really just trying to do what I thought he would have wanted me to do. So sadly, that character can't continue. In fact, had I continued it, I, what I might have done is passed it down. I may have, you know, if I if I felt I was getting getting near my uh, final days on Earth, I was thinking of of like finding a successor Asian spot to take over after I was gone. Maybe Asian spot could just live for hundreds of years. That would have been cool. But unfortunately, now you guys know the truth. Hey, and Trough, by the way, I think Bad Guy's been trying to call in. I don't know if the phones are jacked, oh, but... Uh, let me try. You know, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Because it could be that... Yeah, he said he's trying. Let me, let me, I don't know if you're getting it, but... Let me, uh, let me try. Oh, I was... Uh, I was told that he played at the Palms Poker Room, by the way. That's, that's what someone's tweeting to me. Which is not in existence anymore. Okay, I'm, I'm going to try to call myself... My cell phone. I just want to call the main number. See what gets through. See if this bad guy's phone having a problem or our phone's having a problem. I'd like to think the bad guy's maybe too drunk to dial correctly, but no. See that's 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 that worked. Let me try the Mel Charleston line. See this is working. Seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. Bad guy. Show your caller ID. You have to show your caller ID. And you don't have bad guy on Skype. The Mount Charleston line. You can try the Mount Charleston. Bad guy, try Mount Charleston line. 702-430-1808. Try that number. And I, or if you want bad guy, uh, uh, 
you can text that number, 775-372-8355. Text that number, and then I'll have your number, and I can just connect you on. That's the easiest way. That is the easiest way. I don't have any text from you either. Uh, let's see here. Let me look at the chat. I bet bad guy's going off in there. Your phone's jacked, bro, 775 number. Are you nuts? <laughs> All right, he said okay, so we're, we're going to get him on here. Hopefully he's in uh, at least a semi-sober state here. Drunk bad guy can be tough to deal with. I will admit that. Um, he can make fun of me for going 1-2 and two today in the NBA. Uh, the only pick I won, which I won easily, was the under on the Warriors game. That won by a lot. That won by, like, almost 40 points. But the other two lost. One by a little, one by a lot. And, you know, it's tough. It is tough with these. The NBA is playing totally differently this year. So it's hard to pick unders here. The only one I won was suggested by SimpDog. And I thought, oh, you know, I think SimpDog's right, and that's the one I won. If SimpDog hadn't mentioned it, I probably wouldn't have gone with that one. Let's see. Let's see if he can text us here, then we will connect him on. See, I don't have a text from him either. I have nothing. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, I think uh, Warriors were a gift tonight. I, I I bet the Warriors and the over in the Celtics, so 2-0. Oh, good. Didn't. Yeah, it was good. It's funny. I was thinking of the under on the Celtics, and I go, "Nope, I don't. I don't think I like that." And I didn't do it. I was right. Yeah, they were only over by thirty. Yeah, <laughs> that was that I was glad about. But then I had, I did the the under on the Brooklyn Orlando, which didn't even come close. And then uh, I think I lost by like uh, fifteen or something. And then I then I did the under on the Portland New Orleans, which lost by like seven. So uh, that's the way it goes. So anyway. Um, and if anybody wants to talk about the NFL games this weekend, I'd love to hear some opinions. Yeah, you can call about the NFL if you'd like. Maybe bad guy if he can ever dial the phone correctly. Let's see. what we, I don't want to start a whole new topic if he's going to really call in. I mean, I'd like to hear from him, but uh, I, I don't know if we're going to reach him. I, I don't know. Oh, by the way, I want to talk about the server problems we've been having. Uh, sometimes... Not usually, but occasionally people are noticing they cannot reach Poker Fraud Alert. So, if this is happening to you, uh, please text me when it happens. You don't have to send a screenshot. Just if it can't connect, just text me like, it, can, it couldn't connect uh, you know, right now or at this, at this time, at 7.33 p.m., whatever. Like, whenever it happened, just text me. I'm trying to, get a, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here, and it's been very tough. Um, I did see some signs of, I don't know if it's DDoSing, but, and I don't think it's being done by anyone who doesn't like me. I think it's just Chinese, Russian type stuff, but I did put a stop to some of that, but I see it's still happening to some degree, and I'm seeing some weird error messages in the error log, so I'm still trying to figure this stuff out on this new server uh, of why it is doing that. It, it tends to do it, and then like a few minutes later it comes back. So if if you can't connect to Poker Fraud Alert, just try again like five minutes later. It'll probably work, but I'm, I'm still unhappy that this is happening, and it's been reported by a number of people. I've experienced it sometimes. So I, I know it really is happening, and that's, that's frustrating. But what can I do? <laughs> so... Um, <clears throat> I'm actually looking at the server right now. 
and the load is actually higher than it usually is. It's hmm. weird. No. I will concern myself with that later. By the way, this is going to be a weekly show still, in case you're wondering. Not sure what day, but we're going to do it about once a week. So uh, you can get used to that again. The days of this being once a month because of my health issues are hopefully over. Oh, Alan Kessler. Uh, I want to mention him. He won a Mercedes today. He won a 2019 Mercedes, and he announced it like uh, he announced it on Facebook like moments after it happened. Uh, I told him I'd call him about it, but he never sent me his number, so I guess I can't. So how do how what how do you win it? It was some kind of casino promotion or something where you you pick. Apparently, it was hard to win too. He got very lucky. It's, there's like all these numbers, and. You have to press them, and if you if you get three pictures of a car, you win. But there aren't that many cars on the, all the numbers, so to get all three being the car is pretty unusual. Like the Price is Right or something, right? Yeah, it was harder than that. It was something like 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 a lot of numbers on there, and you had to press three of them and get cars on all three. It's very hard to do. Three out of three, mm-hmm. or like three out of Th- three. Out, I think three out of three. It was something very wow. Hard. I, I I I want to ask him for details, but it, I think it was something like that. So. And did they try to get him do the thing like the happened to the lady in San Diego? I I don't know. That's a good question. If they're going to really give him the car, that would be interesting. Yeah, at least it was in Vegas, and that's an Indian casino. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm not sure if it's in Vegas. He travels everywhere. It could have been anywhere. Let, let me All see. right. Oh my God. Okay. So, so this <laughs> that would be genius. This, this, what he won was if he got fucked out of the car. <laughs> um. You know what? It looks like he did pick more than. Th- it looked like he picked seven of them. I see there's a. It looks like twenty five spots, and he had to pick. And it looked like seven of them are open, so three of them are cars, and then there's ten thousand, ten thousand, seventy five hundred, twelve thousand five hundred. So I, did he get seven picks? Maybe he get seven picks. Whatever it was, he won the Mercedes, and it's a CLA two fifty FWD. And the MSRP is about thirty four thousand, and the average retail price is about thirty one five. So it's a cheaper Mercedes, but a Mercedes nonetheless. I wonder if Alan's going to start driving that. I guess we'll see. Congratulations to him, though. I mean, it's exciting to win something like that. All right. Well, I'm not getting a call. Let me let me see if I got the text at least. Like, see, I'm not getting anything. I don't know what bad guy's doing. I think he's just. He could DM you too, right? In the chat. Yeah, I don't know what he's doing. He claims he's calling. He claims he's dialing. I I think he might be dialing his his bottle instead of the phone. I think he might be pressing the buttons on the beer bottle. That's what I think is happening. Do you think his kid maybe has one of those little toy phones? Yeah, maybe that's what (laughs) I'm Yeah, the the person in the background even liked that joke. Okay, so uh, I'm just going to move on here. I, I, I can't wait anymore. So the World Series of Poker has announced more events. They they are not ready to release a full schedule. I guess rather than make people wait until late January or February, I guess what they've decided to do is just release it in pieces, which is a little bit weird in my opinion, but that's what they've been doing. So they released the first group of events 
kind of like some high-profile events, seven of them. They they announced the dates for and some details about them on December 20th, which is pretty early. That was the that new Big 50 event, which is rake-free for the first entry. The Millionaire Maker, the Seniors, the Double Stack, the Monster Stack, the Crazy Eights, and the No Limit main event. So uh, that's those were the seven they had previously announced and gave some details about those. The only new one of those seven was the Big 50. Then it, it was... Uh, then they announced some more events, which were... Uh, uh, this was on January 15th. Oh, sorry, they didn't... They, they also announced that uh, the Colossus is coming back. And there were 13 more events you know, that they had announced. And that was done on uh, January 9th. January 9th, they announced the Casino Employees, the Super Turbo Bounty, the, uh, the Marathon, the Super Seniors, the Ladies, the Super Turbo Bounty, the Tag Team, the Colossus, which was coming back in a different form, the Mini Main Event, and the Closer, which is after the Main Event. So they announced those. Those are the 13 new ones they announced there. And now they have announced some more events, but it's still not complete. There's still plenty that they have to announce. I think there's going to be probably like 77 events or so, maybe even more. So now they have announced all the high buy-in events. This was done on January 15th. These are all the events with a 10K buy-in or more. May 29th is the Super Turbo Bounty, $10,000, 20-minute levels. May 31st is the High Roller, No Limit Hold'em event, 50K buy-in. June 2nd, the Short Deck No Limit 10K event. Short Deck is a rapidly growing form of poker where they take out the twos through fives. That's what's called a Short Deck, and the strategy is very, very different playing Short Deck. As you can imagine, there are far more made hands for that, especially straights. So a lot more made hands with uh, the twos through fives gone. Totally changes the strategy of the game. If you, I'll give you some quick advice here. If you have not read up on proper short deck strategy, at least a primer that gives you the basics on what to do and what not to do, do not try to play short deck or you will get slaughtered. You absolutely have to know the basics of short deck. I'm not going to go into it here. But if you don't know the basics of, short, of, of how to play short deck versus how you play regular No Limit Hold'em, you're going to get crushed. So definitely learn that before you attempt any of these either events or cash games. But there is a short deck event on June 2nd. The Super Turbo Bounty, by the way, is on May 29th. I think that's the first open event. I think, it, I think that's... The, yeah, the... The Casino Employees is, uh, when? I just lost it. Yeah, they're both on May 29th. Okay, so the first open event will be that Super Turbo uh, 10K bounty event. So that's May 29th. May 31st is that, that's the 50K high roller. June 2nd is the short deck. June 5th, the heads up 10K event, no limit hold'em. June 6th, Omaha 8, Limit Omaha 8, 10K. I played that last year. 
very, very easy starting table. I couldn't believe it at 10K how bad the players were. Didn't help me. I was still out first day. It's funny, like, like at the table, there were so many bad players. And I was there, and David Baker was there. And <laughs> David Baker got completely crushed, and I and I was out. Uh, I made a few more hours than he did, but we both didn't make it anywhere near cashing. And both both of us independently had the same impression that uh, there was like the easiest starting table you've ever had at a 10K event, and didn't matter. Just got beat down. Your friend David Baker, or the younger one? No, the the, the older David Baker that uh, loves me so much. So uh, June eighth, the Deuce to seven, no limit, low ball, 10K. June 11th, the 10K horse. June 14th, the dealer's choice, six-handed, 10K. Some people still think that dealer's choice means that the actual dealer makes the choice of what game is played. So I've had that question asked before. Is a, what if the dealer picks games I don't like? <laughs> For those of you that don't know, it's the, the dealer, they mean whoever has the button that chooses uh, which game to play. Seven card stud, 10K, June 17th. PLO, 25K, June 19th. It's called the High Roller PLO. June 20th, another deuce to seven, but this is limit deuce to seven, low ball triple draw. 10K. Will not be a big field on that one. June 22nd, PLO, 8 or better. I may play that one. Didn't play it last year. May play it this year. That's on June 22nd, 10K. June 24th, the Poker Players Championship, 50K. June 26th, Raz, 10K. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, when I said PLO 8 was on June 2nd, I'm wrong. It was, it was just PLO 8-handed. I misread that. You can see how that would happen. This is a, just a regular PLO, but 8-handed. That's June 22nd. The PLO 8 event for 10K is June 28th. June 30th is seven is, is uh, Stud 8, 10K. July 2nd, this is one I'll be playing for sure. Limit Hold'em 10K. I think July 2nd. Isn't that getting close to the main? Well, you're right. It is. July 3rd is the main, a day after the Limit Hold'em Championship. But even if I win that event, I'll still have time to play the main because there are three flights of the main, the 3rd, the 4th, and the 5th. If none of these events are rich enough for you, if even if the 50Ks seem like nothing to you, you say, I only play six-figure events or above. I'm sure that's a big portion of our audience who will only play six figures or above. So for you guys, I have good news. On July 11th, there is a high roller, no limit hold'em for 100K buy-in. It's July 11th. July 13th, six-handed, no limit hold'em for 10K, an event I'm guessing will be very tough. So those are the events. Most of these started three. Uh... The short deck starts at 6, of all things. I don't know why. It's a pretty late start. And the levels are 60 minutes on that one. so That's kind of a weird thing. Start at 6. The short deck starts at 6. They all start at 3, except for the main, which starts at noon. So those have been announced. 
Any changes? Well, as I mentioned on a previous show, it looked like the 10K events were probably going to be starting with 60K chips. And I was right. Every single one of these 10K events that I just listed here start with 60K in chips. So you're getting six chips per buy-in dollar up from five chips per buy-in dollar last year. And this is also less chips per buy-in dollar, fewer chips per buy-in dollar than you're getting at the lower stakes events where it's kind of all over the place this year. But the 10Ks are, are, and above are all uniform, where you're getting six chips per buy-in dollar. So the 100K event gets 600,000 chips. The 50K events get 300,000 chips. The 25K events get 150,000 chips. The 10K events get 60,000 chips. So what does this mean? This means that they're all going to use the same chipset. There's going to be different chipsets at the World Series of Poker. There have to be, otherwise people can smuggle chips between them and get a big edge that way. So I'm sure what they're going to do is use chipsets correlated to the amount of chips you'll get per dollar spent on the buy-in. So I have to imagine these I just listed will all be using the same chipset, but that chipset won't be used at any other events. The three... I am considering playing of all those are the Limit Hold'em, the PLO8, and the 08. Some of this will have to do with schedule, too. It is convenient for me that the Limit Hold'em 10K is right before the main, because I'll be there anyway, so I don't have to make a special trip for that. But I have to see the rest of the schedule. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of events they haven't announced yet that I would play, including the smaller buy-in Limit Hold'ems, the smaller buy-in 08, the smaller buy-in PLO8 and the mixed Omaha. They haven't announced any of those yet. So I may even play a shorter buy-in, a smaller buy-in short deck event. I might even play that. Why? Is it because I'm a great short deck player? No. It is because it is a new game to a lot of people. And just coming in with a good knowledge of the proper strategy in short deck at this point would give you an edge over a lot of the field in a 1500 event. A 10K event? No. A 10K event uh, would not do that. But uh, a 1500, you're going to have a lot of people who are going to enter who just think it sounds like fun and will have no idea what to do. So provided there's a like 1500-type buy-in short deck event, I will try to enter that. That should be fun. Uh, something that also came out, which I don't like, is that the main event is now going to allow buy-ins on day two. Oh, gosh. I, I hate that. I hate it. You can come in with a full stack on day two of the main event. And not only that, you can come in and not even be that short stacked. Why? Because people have been playing an increasingly conservative style at the main event as years have passed. Even a lot of normally wild players have decided for the main only they're going to play very conservatively. People just don't like putting a lot of chips in the pot in the main event unless they've really got something. And the reason for that is because the event moves so slowly that people have learned that it's much better for you to sit and wait for big spots where you're, you've got a very strong hand then put in spots, put in chips in marginal spots. You don't need to do coin flips at the beginning of the main. 
you don't even need to get all your chips in in a situation where you might be up against the nuts and drawing dead. So whereas in the past people would stack off if uh, they have a flush versus somebody else's higher flush, uh, nowadays you're going to have people who are going to be folding the lower flush. Not in the later stages, but in the earlier stages when it's so deep. So you now have like two-thirds of the people surviving to day two. Which means the average stack is not that much higher than the starting stack. It is higher, but it's not that much higher. It's not even double. It's not even close to double. So between not even being that much below average and also the fact that you're still very deep, so even ignoring what the average is, you still have a lot of post-flop play you can do. There are some people who say, screw day one. I don't want to hassle with it. I'd rather just come in, start day two a little bit below average, and catch up. Why? Because they save a full day. Because they do avoid any bad beats type situations that would leave them either very short or busted. Just because you're a good player doesn't mean you're going to get through day one with... uh, with chips, or with a lot of chips. So by coming into day two with a starting stack, what you're basically doing is just skipping over day one as if you played it and broke exactly even. So coming in day two at that point, uh, yes, you're not average stacked, but you did survive. And remember, surviving is an important part of tournaments. If you think about it, everybody busts in a tournament except for the winner. Even the second place finisher in the main event who wins all those millions of dollars finishes with zero chips. I always like to say, if you are not bothered by these late entries in these World Series events, if you think that's okay, how would you feel if people could buy in on the bubble? One before the money. Would you feel good about that? Probably not. Unless you did it yourself. Would you do it? Of course. I would do that for every freaking tournament. I'd play every tournament I could and buy in on the bubble. I'd make a fortune. Why? Because I'm going to cash the vast majority of time. And a few times I'll probably get a good cash. There wouldn't be that many times that I'm the bubble boy. So... It's almost guaranteed profit every single event. Now, you can't do that, but that shows you that at some point, buying in late, even short, is a big edge. So buying on the bubble, you can't do it, but if you could, would be a gigantic edge. Buying like buying in five people before the bubble, again, it would be an edge. So at what point is buying in late not an edge? I don't know. People have said, well, why are you objecting to it? If you think it's an edge people are getting, why don't you do it? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, I do like the earlier stages of the tournament because I feel that I personally am good at exploiting bad players. And the bad players are the ones who are more likely to bust earlier. So I like to be in there when the bad players are there and give myself 
more of a chance of finishing above starting stack for the day. So that's why I choose to do it. Also, I just I enjoy the experience of the World Series. I enjoy actually playing it and being there. I'm not looking to be there for the minimum amount of time. And I don't play tournaments every day. So I don't want to go there. I know in the main event you start off deep, but in these other events where you can buy in late and, and be short-stacked, but also have 75% of the field gone, I don't want to have to immediately double up or bust and play the event three minutes. Like, it's just, it's no fun. So even if it's a small edge to do that, I don't want to do it. But that doesn't mean I have to like it. That doesn't mean I have to... I I still think it is wrong to have it. I still think that goes against the whole point of these tournaments. And it's becoming more and more common where people are allowed to buy in on day two. And I think this is crap. I think a lot of pros who play tournaments all the time think of it this way. The time is money. That playing tournaments is no thrill to them. This is what they do every day. So they don't care if they're out fast. What they want to do is they want to save time. And they also may think that they get somewhat of an edge by just being fresh. By having played fewer hours. So some of them don't want to waste time playing in the early stages, knowing that even if they do really well, if they don't run as well in the middle stages, uh, then it's, it's, it's all thrown away. It's all useless. So why not just start when it really starts mattering? And if you run well there, you're right, you're right there in it and, and can kick ass. And if you don't run well, then you're out and you didn't invest much time in it. And that's the way some of them look at that. And the problem here is this goes against the whole point of what a tournament is supposed to be. A tournament is supposed to be a great equalizer. A tournament is supposed to be something where it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, as long as you can afford the buy-in. It doesn't matter if you are willing to rebuy, because you can't unless it is a rebuy tournament, otherwise you're just out. And it allows someone who has a short-term good run of cards to actually win a lot of money, whereas in cash poker that's hard to do, because... In cash poker, you're usually not going to win a very high multiple of the buy-in of the game. And soon enough, you're going to give it back. But in, uh, in tournament poker, you have a few days of just running exceptionally well at the right times. You, you can win, even if you're not the greatest player. Some people much better than you may wish they can rebuy and play against you, but they can't if they're gone. If you bad beat them and they're out, they can't reach in their wallet and buy in again. They're gone. Even in rebuy tournaments, they may rebuy, but you have a lot more chips than they do, giving you an edge. And the blinds keep going up, giving you an edge. So, I don't like... And and not only that, everybody has to put in the time to get there. I like the fact that tournaments start off, and everybody starts off with that same stack that is a tiny percentage of what they need to end up with to win the tournament. And usually about 10% of what they need to end up with even cash and have and be average stacked at that point. And you've got to work your way up from there. Everybody's got to work their way up from the, from the beginning starting stack um, and slowly move up. Doesn't matter if you're just Joe, recreational player, or if you're Phil Ivey. You've got to do it the same way. 
But now we're seeing ways that the pros who don't really care that much about only playing a short time if they run bad, and we're just seeing ways that they can skip over a lot of the early tournament drudgery and just jump right into it. So, okay, I'll just enter on day two. I don't care if I'm starting a little behind people. I saved an entire day. Ha ha, look at you guys. You wasted your time on day one. Now you lose a few hands on day two. Up, oh, look, we're the same. <laughs> like everything you did yesterday is wiped out. How do you feel about that? Part of tournament poker is also an endurance test. Can you play all these days? Can you play all these hours? I don't like that people just get to skip part of it and just come in as if they broke even that whole time when they weren't even there. I think if they're going to allow late registration, it should be maybe like two hours to start with a full stack, and after that start taking away from stacks to where maybe the very final time to enter you come in with a half stack. They'll never do it because that would discourage people from entering. They want to make maximum money. That's why they're doing it. And that's what's annoying to me. This is all about money. They're seeing other tournaments do it, and they're like, why not us? We've got to do this now, too. So now they are allowing day two entry to the main event. And by the way, they were allowing this at other 10K events last year. You could enter the 10K limit hold'em last year, I remember, on day two. And some people did. I just don't like it. I feel if you are entering a tournament, that you should be there at or near the start of the tournament. Otherwise, you should either not play or you should be penalized in some way for skipping over parts of it. You need to put in the time like the rest of us. Yes, I could do the same thing, but I don't want to. And I don't want others to. I just don't think that's what the spirit of tournaments is supposed to be. And... At rebuy tournaments, it's even worse. Some people, I I brought this up on Twitter, and some people gave me a hard time about it and disagreed, saying, well, look, the World Series, it's a freeze-out, you can't rebuy, and, I'm saying the main event of the World Series, it's a freeze-out, you can't rebuy, and everybody's pretty deep, so it's not even a matter of people, you know, pros just rebuy and then just have to get lucky right away. That They're they're just coming in later, but they, it's still deep at that point, and they have to play real poker at that point, so it's not that bad. But that's irrelevant. The point is they're still skipping over 10 hours of play. And it's so slow moving, they can skip over the 10 hours of play and not even be that short stacked when they come in. I find that obnoxious. Now, at rebuy tournaments, I agree it's worse, especially ones that are not slow and have a lot of people out. And you have spots where people can come in shortly you know, deep-pocketed pros who don't care that much about the money and just want to get really deep, that they come in with 70% of the field already out and they just start firing very aggressively and they either double up or bust. And then once they strike gold and double up, then they've got a decent stack, then they then they keep playing and then they become a force to deal with later in the tournament because they're typically the good players doing this. And the problem with that is that it makes it to where it's more likely you're going to have to deal with one of these players at the end if you do make it deep than if they had to play the whole way and um, and kept busting. When someone is deep-pocketed and they can just keep rebuying, rebuying, rebuying close to the end of the rebuy period, 
or close to the end of the entry period, then what this allows them to do is skip all the time and skip any time that might cause them to uh, lose what they build up. Just to, just take a few shots or take a number of shots at building something up with most of the field already gone, and now they don't have that many people to get through anymore. And now the chance of them making deep is much higher. And, that, and with a lot of pros doing this, the chance of you facing some tough pros at the end becomes much higher than if they had to go all the way since the beginning and possibly been stomped out by bad luck. So, I don't like any of this. They need to cut off the registration period earlier. Someone even demonstrated last year, I think it was in the PLO1K with rebuys, that what they did was... uh, they bought in and folded every single hand. They didn't even look. They just fold, 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 fold the entire way. Not sure when they bought in. I think they bought in, yeah, that's right. They bought in the very latest moment they could. And then folded every hand. And they made the money. Barely, but they made the money. They actually cashed in PLO, folding every hand blind by buying in the very last minute. What does that mean? It means a monkey could have actually registered and played and cashed in the event. You could teach a monkey to do that. You could teach a monkey to put chips out and fold his cards every time. Definitely could teach a monkey to do that. So a monkey actually could have cashed that PLO event. Can you believe that? And not by getting like insanely lucky by running incredibly well. I mean a monkey, no matter what cards he was dealt, even dealt the worst cards possible could have cashed that PLO event. Is that, does that mean that there's a problem with the World Series of Poker? If a monkey could have cashed? I'm not exaggerating. A monkey really could have cashed at that PLO event last year. It was demonstrated. Is that showing that these late buy-ins are a problem? These late buy-ins are a big problem. If a monkey can cash. <laughs> that, that was the uh, exit interview of the, of the first monkey at the World Series to ever cash. Said, uh, hey, so, so what exactly was your strategy that allowed you to get this far in PLO to make the money? Unbelievable. So I, I hate that. I, anything that makes it later to buy in, I, I detest it. I detest it. Okay, enough ranting about that. As far as I can see, bad guy never called in. Let's see if he sent me his phone number. No, I got nothing for I don't know what he's... I don't know if he's screwing with me or if he's too... I don't know what the hell's going on. I, I just don't know. Duped Samaritan in chat saying, this is such a 2013 rant on to the next topic, please. Would rather hear about how Bonomo is, is always at Druff's table, but was never really rude. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll move on, but 
this isn't a 2013 rant. They just changed it to where you can buy into day two. Just buy directly into day two of the main event. And believe me, a lot will. Not like the majority, but a, a lot will. You're going to see these guys just showing up on day two with their rack of 60K. What a joke. But that is the way it's going to be. The only improvement they've made is that uh, it's going to be a 12 p.m. start time. It's not, no more of this 11 a.m. crap. Everyone hated the 11 a.m. So that is gone. All righty. Trader, is he still with us? I'm here. All right, good. The DOJ has reversed their opinion on the 1961 Wire Act. They, they reevaluated it in 2011, 50 years after it was written. And had decided back in 2011 that it did not apply to poker. It only applied to sports betting. They just reversed that and said, no, it applies to all gambling. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What will the impact be? Well, let's discuss this. This is actually a two and a half month old story, but uh, it just really went public a few days ago. This was kind of buried under other news at the time, including a blizzard in D.C. I think there was some Trump-Russia stuff going on. I don't know. But whatever it was, it wasn't exactly a major news and it got by everyone. So it was just figured out recently. And... This may or may not matter in practice, but it's definitely a bad thing in theory, and we're already seeing some signs that it might actually matter in practice too, which I'll get to. Now, this will not interfere in any online gambling taking place within a state, because the 1961 Wire Act only deals with interstate betting. So if this is betting that is all taking place within state borders, where the casino you're betting with and the people you're betting with are all in the same state as you physically. It doesn't matter where everybody lives, but if you're all physically standing in the same state when this betting is taking place, then the 1961 Wire Act does not affect that because this is only an interstate betting law. So let's first talk about the legalized online poker rooms in the United States. They currently have rooms in Delaware, New Jersey, and Nevada. All three states are also now cooperating where they're willing to share player pools. And in fact, WSOP.com does exactly that. WSOP.com is a combination of players of New Jersey, Delaware, and Nevada. At one point, they were all separate. Delaware was a gigantic fail site because it's a tiny state that never got anywhere. New Jersey had the biggest player pool. Nevada had the second biggest one. None of them were doing particularly well. The New Jersey one was doing okay because it, was, it also had casino gambling on it, where the Nevada one does not. But from the poker standpoint, they, they all merged. And so WSDB.com is now all three of them together. You can't even tell what state people are in that you're playing with there. But it has to be one of those three. So what about those rooms? Well, as far as betting against people in the same state... This won't affect it. But as far as these 
interstate agreements to share players, that could be affected because that means bets are crossing state lines. So it might occur that these sites like WCB.com will be forced to separate again, which means the death of online poker in Delaware for sure. And Nevada and New Jersey will also be hurt because they can't share their player pool. I can't say for sure this is going to happen, but that might happen. Furthermore, states such as California, Pennsylvania, and especially other ones that have expressed an interest in having online poker may feel less willing to actually go through with having rooms because they know they won't be able to cooperate with other states, that they know their player pool will be limited. Now, California is a very large population state, so they can probably do without it, but some of these smaller and medium states will know that they will have fail sites if they try to do online poker and cannot share player pools with other states. The whole idea of states sharing with one another we thought was going to be the closest thing we would have to the recreation of something like Poker Stars, where pretty much everybody in the country, maybe except for a few states that wouldn't cooperate, that wouldn't want this in the first place, like Utah, for example, that most states would have their online poker rooms and they'd all be connected together. It would be like playing on a national room, even though it's a bunch of state rooms together. It would kind of function the same way. But this would prevent that. Now, how this how would this affect illegal poker rooms and sports books like Bovada? It probably wouldn't, because they are already operating illegally. They are unlicensed. They don't. They do not run out of the U.S. And if anything, this might strengthen them because it might slow down legalized online poker. What about banks that? might be involved in processing payments. Well, they might be told to watch out and to make sure that bets are not being funded for interstate gambling. So this is either going to result in nothing very big or something that's going to be troubling. There's no way this is good. At the very, very, very best, if nothing is really enforced from this, it would be neutral. But there's no part of this that's good. And a lot of it can end up being bad. So... Since this was announced, or not, since, since this was uh, kind of discovered and being brought up throughout uh, poker news and poker social media, there's a little bit of an update on it. And uh, let me find. I, I had the update up, but I lost it. Good, good show prep as usual for me. I know. So let me let me try to find this again. 
Believe it or not, I think Eric Ryland is the one who sent it to me. So thank you to Eric Ryland. Um, this is such a pain. He sent it on Facebook, and I got to get to Facebook. <sighs> I clicked on the wrong Eric Ryland. I don't believe this. Oh, see, that's the wrong Eric. This is. Why didn't I have this up before? I apologize here. I, I bet Dat Poker Podcast with Adam Schwartz, I bet they don't have this problem. I bet they don't have to bring up Facebook things from Eric Ryland during the show. I just have that feeling. Ugh. It's still not coming up yet. Facebook, they're kind of ruining it the same way they've ruined Skype, except it's not Microsoft doing it. Here we are. That's right. He's not. He's not on there. Is Eric Ryland? Okay. So, no, he's he's sending me screenshots. Why, why can't he just send me? Why can't he just send me a link to the article? Ryland actually sent me a screenshot of an article, with like only a little bit of the article in there. I just noticed this now. Uh, not only that, he sent a screenshot from his phone that has an invalid SIM card. <laughs> what a mess He's actually sending me from a phone with an invalid SIM card Why do you have an invalid SIM, Ryland? Okay, now I've got to find the real article It has to do with the U.S. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein Saying that businesses have a 90-day window to comply with the changes So I think it's on onlinepokerreport.com Let's find it there Here we are. Okay. Got it. Should have done this before, but I forgot. So here we are. So he's issued a memo that in 90 days, they're going to be creating, within 90 days, they're going to be creating a pr- prosecutorial guidelines regarding the changes to the Wire Act. So just to review, for those of you that don't know, In 1961, the Wire Act was passed, which made it illegal to place bets across state lines. And uh, it was called the Wire Act because usually money would be wired to place such bets. And this was preventing people from, uh, in California, betting with bookies in Nevada, whatever. This was aimed at sports betting. Was there any internet in 1961? No. No internet in 1961. Any kind of online thing you could do in 1961? No. So it was only about the telephone and the sending of money. It was like telephone wagering and then using wires to send money. That's why it's called the Wire Act. The problem is that the Wire Act wasn't 100% specific as far as whether it was just about sports or not. Now, it was clearly aimed only at sports. That was the only kind of betting that was done over the phone. But the problem was that a passage in the Wire Act was a little bit ambiguous as to whether it was just making sports betting illegal to cross state lines or if it was making all forms of gambling illegal to cross state lines, even though it's generally agreed upon 
that they were referring to sports betting. But all that's matter is actually what's in the law, not what they meant. And because that's the law in the books, that's what they have to go by. So that's why they're still talking about a 1961 law. So here's the part that was kind of confusing. This is in the law, the 1961 Wire Act. Whoever being engaged in the business of betting or wagering knowingly uses a wire communication facility for the transmission in interstate or foreign commerce of bets or wagers or information assisting in the placing of bets or wagers on any sporting event or contest. This is so convoluted. Uh, or for the transmission of a wire communication which entitles the recipient to receive money or credit as a result of bets or wagers, or for information assisting in the placing of bets or wagers, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned at not more than two years or both. That's a big run-on sentence. I don't, th- this would not pass English class, for sure. If you, if you, if you wrote this in uh, high school English, you'd get an F on this one. Anyway, what this whole long run-on sentence was trying to say is that anyone who uses any kind of wire communication facility to place bets on any, quote, sporting event or contest or entitles the person to receive, entitles someone involved to receive money for the placing of bets is in violation, okay? So here's the part that they're trying to figure out. One part of it specifically says on any sporting event or contest, but then a little bit later in that same run-on sentence, it says, or the transmission of a wire communication which entitles a recipient to receive money or credit as a result of bets or wagers. Hmm. So one thing says sports, the other one just says bets or wagers. So they're looking at it going, hmm, well, you know what? The 2011 DOJ opinion that this was clearly about sports, which I agree with. They were totally talking about sports here. What, what else could it have been? You couldn't play phone poker back then. You couldn't play phone blackjack. It was clearly about sports. That was really the only thing you could wager on over the phone. Maybe some kind of prop bets too, election prop bets or whatever, but, but it, it was just about all sports. It was betting on contests is what you, it was, Sport, mostly sporting contests. That's what it was aimed at, 100%. But they did place in the language, I don't know why they left out the word sports, but later in that same paragraph, just talked about placing of bets or wagers. So this allows interpretation either way. So while in 2011, the Department of Justice decided that it was only referring to sports bets and that it did not apply to other forms of online gambling, including poker, thus opening the door to possible legalization of online gambling, even across state lines. The DOJ has reinterpreted this to now say that it meant everything. Now, what did Sheldon Adelson have to do with this? Did, did, did he possibly influence this? He's a known hater of online poker. He's been crusading to stop online gambling 
to prevent the spread of legalized online gambling. He has been supporting politicians financially in their campaigns with the basic agreement that they're going to get on board with trying to make online gambling illegal. He even tried to get legislation passed. The Restore the Restoration of America's Wire Act, also known as RAWA, which would have made the original interpretation of this, that it covered all gambling, federal law. And this was after they had already reinterpreted it. That failed, mainly because both parties had reasons they were against it. Republicans were mainly against it for states' rights issues. Democrats are mainly against it for individual freedom issues. I actually agree with both of them, Matt. <laughs> so uh, that failed. Looked like everything Sheldon was trying to do in that realm failed, but maybe he had some influence here. So there is some belief that maybe Adelson finally pulled the right strings and got this to be reinterpreted. And there was room for reinterpretation because of that one line. Now, of the new opinion from the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel, known as the OLC, here is the key part of their new opinion. Only the second prohibition of the first clause of Section 1084A, which criminalizes transmitting information assisting the placing of bets or wagers on any sporting event or contest, is so limited. The other prohibitions apply to non-sports-related betting or wagering that satisfy the other elements of Section 1084A. The 2006 enactment of the Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act, also known as the UIGEA, did not alter the scope of Section 1084A. That's, that's the main point of what they're getting across. Basically what I just said. That, yes, they talked about sports betting specifically, but then they also talked about just betting and wagering. Wow, what's that? Sounds like a submarine. Reconnecting is a poor network connection. Great. Drop Trader Ruski off. It's a poor network connection. Let's try to put him back on here. Skype, Skype sucks. I can't tell you how much I hate Skype. I hate it with every fiber of my being. Trade Risky, there? You there? I hope I'm coming through clear to the audience. Yeah, Trader Risky can't connect to me for whatever reason. So anyway, you guys get the point. They took something that was not written really carefully and twisted it to mean something else. This happens... There's, whoa, 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 whoa. Trader Risky, you there? Yeah, 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 I'm back. Okay, good. I just, I forgot, I didn't turn my Wi-Fi off, and then I had to go walk the dog, so... Yeah. This happens all the time... We are in, doing a mobile. In, in, legal, in legal circles, where 
where the law is scrutinized, and if there's any little segment found that can be interpreted to be ambiguous or to mean something else, then uh, then everything can change. There's not just in matters like this, and in all areas of law, there are arguments like these, and especially when it comes to the passing of criminal laws or the interpretation of past written criminal laws, then this is really where special interests can start to get things twisted. And that's what's happened here. So I would guess that Sheldon Adelson might be behind this quietly. And now getting back to this whole thing about Rod Rosenstein, who is the U.S. Deputy Attorney General, that he has said that businesses are going to have 90 days, but after that they're, they're going to need to get themselves in line. So he said it won't take effect for 90 days, but uh, then it will. So according to Mark Hichar, a Wire Act expert at uh, Greenberg Traurig, which is a large law firm. In fact, that's the one Mason Malmuth uses, Greenberg Traurig. They have offices all over the country, including Las Vegas. I got to uh, speak to a Greenberg Traurig lawyer uh, quite some time when I had my issues with uh, Mason Malmuth, which I believe was last year. Was it last year? Either last year or the year before. Time, time's kind of flying by. But when I had that issue, uh, some long conversations with one of their lawyers about that whole situation. Probably ran up Mason's bill, too. But anyway, this is what Mark Hitchar said. He said, the opinion will affect not only internet lottery, internet gaming, and the interstate interstate poker compact among Delaware, Nevada, and New Jersey, but will also affect traditional lottery purchases via brick-and-mortar retailers. Now, why is that? Uh, oh, I see. So it says, language in the opinion supports the position that such intermediate, intermediately routed transmissions are sent in interstate commerce, thus lottery purchases, whether via traditional retailers or via PCs or mobile devices and internet gaming wagers that originate in a state and are processed in the same state but are routed intermediately out of the state. Oh, wow. Uh, could violate the Wire Act. Oh, boy. I didn't even think of that. But, yeah, uh, basically, if anything involving the bet ever crosses state lines, if the transmission ever leaves the state at any point, even if not handled by any human being, if if it leaves the state at any point, bouncing around from point A to point B, then it might violate the 1961 Wire Act because it will be considered interstate commerce. Right, and even if they had, like, redundancy at AWS or something. Yeah, that's right. You know, they could probably nitpick about that, even though that's not the real transaction. It's a backup. It's still going across state lines. Now, I don't know if they're going to actually enforce it to that degree. They, they may just be trying to enforce this as, as it would be obviously enforced, which would be just 
preventing of any bets being placed between two entities, wherever they may be, across state lines? That may be yeah, all I'm sure, trying to do. I'm sure they wouldn't, but if they wanted to go after somebody and needed something, no, they, that's yeah, what they go this, to. This, this right. This, this, could give, this could give them that ability, and it could also give them the ability to scare businesses that uh, are allowing such bets online into just saying this isn't worth the trouble. They could, for example, contact Caesars and say, hey, you guys are in violation of the law because uh, you probably will not have enough control to prevent the bets being placed within Nevada on WSP.com from ever routing out of state in the process of being placed. So uh, since you cannot guarantee that, you are in violation of the law and you're going to be fined or uh, prosecuted or whatever unless you, change, unless you shut it down or find a way to, to make sure it always routes within Nevada, which may be impossible. So they may just say, screw it and take the whole thing down. That's, that's what the concern is. Uh, now, I, I, my guess, and it's just a guess, is that they're not going to go that way. My guess is it's just going to be preventing any entities from any kind of interstate gambling. But we'll see. But it does seem that Rod Rosenstein is serious about actually demanding the businesses comply, which you think the immediate thing we're going to see is the interstate agreements between Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware will be over. Uh, now, this is, uh, this is also what it says uh, from Rosenstein. As an exercise of discretion, Department of Justice attorneys should refrain from applying Section 1084A in criminal or civil actions to persons who engage in conduct violating the Wire Act in reliance of the 2011 opinion prior to the date of this memorandum and, not, and for 90 days thereafter. So basically what they're saying is uh, that regardless of what we've decided here, this is not going to matter until 90 days after the date of this. Anything you did prior to that will not be affected. A 90-day window will give business, businesses that relied on the 2011 interpretation time to bring their operations into compliance with federal law. This is an internal exercise of prosecutorial discretion. It is not a safe harbor for violations of the Wire Act. That's interesting. So it's saying here that we're not promising this to you. We're just telling you this is what we're going to do. So don't, don't, don't try to hold this against us. Don't try. They're basically saying, don't say, oh, well, we had 90 days where that wasn't the law yet, and then the, the first day it's the law, uh, of course we're not ready. They're saying, you better be ready, because it already is the law. We're just telling you we're being nice, and we're not going to come after you for 90 days. But on the 91st day, if you're not ready, tough luck. That's, that's what he's saying here. He goes on to say, I am designating the criminal division's organized crime and gang section, gang sections, Chico Logo involved, uh, to review and propose the, approve the proposed wire act cha- cha- charges. The Justice Manual will include a new review and approval process for prosecutions pursuant to the Wire Act. Any department attorney who has questions regarding implementation of the Wire Act should contact the uh, Deputy Chief uh, Douglas Crow for further guidance. So that uh, it looks like—I mean, it looks like they're really serious about doing something. They haven't really stated specifically what they're going to go after, but they're looks like they're going to be doing something. And it's not clear right now what they're going to do about uh, what the states that are looking to legalize sports betting, if they're going to continue full steam ahead 
or if they are going to slow down here and watch to see how this plays out just in case they get burned by the we're doing it within the state, but it's somehow routing out of state temporarily before getting to the de- destination. Some states may be scared about that. Otherwise, this wouldn't affect the sports betting because that's all intrastate, and it's only planned to be intrastate. Intrastate, that is, meaning within the state. So, at first, I thought this wouldn't affect the new sports betting states at all, but now it might, and it might affect enough to where states planning to go ahead with it may hold off to wait to see the way the DOJ is going to handle this. So this is definitely a developing situation, one that is not good. And this is the opinion of uh, consumer policy expert Michelle Minton, who said, the more likely outcome is a chilling effect, which if I had to guess was probably in the purpose of the memo. Instead of legalizing online gambling, as legislatures in New York, California, and others have been debating for years, the states will likely sit back and wait for clarity from the DOJ or from the courts before wasting energy developing rules for a market that may never be legal. Wow, that's exactly what I just said. Now, now, I, now I feel good. I, I, I feel smart. because I, I just did that on the fly. I'm reading this article and then giving you my opinion that I just found because Rylan sent it to me. And I, I said exactly what she's saying. Well, I should be a consumer policy expert. What do you know? So yeah, we have to wait and see, but this could not be good. Now, uh, Trader Risky, I'm hearing on that kind of a in the background. Do you know what that would be? No, I'm muted. Are you muted? I was muted. It's weird. Oh, that happened. Something. You know what? That, yeah. I, I can tell you what that is. Um, this is an annoying. thing. I hear it now. No, that, that's different. That, that that definitely sounds like background noise. But the, Skype I, Skype does this new annoying thing that if a phone call is on Skype and it's muted, you oh, still oh, it, it still has kind of a in the background, even though it shouldn't. Like uh, it's. I, I noticed that too. It's not your fault. Okay, you can leave it there. It's fine. Uh, so it's not that bad. Andrew, what states have it, by the way? Do you know offhand? I don't know. I was just curious oh, which, who, well, who got there. Th- th- that's a good question. That, I was giving updates on this, and I haven't done it in a while. So let's, let's go take a look. Let's, uh, I bookmarked a page on ESPN, which, which had that, which was a, run, a tracker. Here, I'll, right here, I'll tell you right now which has it. It's constantly changing. Right now, the states that have full-scale legalized sports betting are Nevada, New Mexico, Mississippi, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and Rhode Island. And then there's two that have passed a bill but don't have the full-scale legalized sports betting yet. That is uh, Arkansas and New York. That's, That's where we are right now. Wow, so those were a few new ones, I think. Yeah, like Rhode Island. Since the last update, Rhode yeah. Island, New Mexico, Mississippi, I don't think we're on there. Yeah, New Mexico actually got it on October 16th. They booked their first sports bet. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, booked their sports bets in the middle of November, and uh, Rhode Island, November 26th. They're the most recent. But they, I don't, I don't know if any sports bets have actually been placed. I know that they... No, I think I, I think it was on November twenty sixth. So, yeah, this is uh, potentially a problem, not a good thing. So, can you blame Trump for this? Is this Trump's fault? Some people say, "Oh, Donald Trump, he did it to us." Not necessarily. Uh, yes, this these are his people in the Department of Justice, but keep in mind. 
that the most aggressive attempts to stop online poker occurred under the Obama administration. That's when Black Friday occurred. Those were Obama's people who did that. Am I saying those damn Democrats, you know, they hate online poker and Republicans love it? No. The truth is, this is really not an issue that goes along party lines. This is one of the few issues that you have people on both sides of the aisle with both opinions. You have pro-online gambling Republicans and Democrats. You have anti-online gambling Republicans and Democrats. And there's also different reasons why they are. Like, for example, a lot of Republicans that are for it are for it on, under the basis of states' rights. Some Republicans, even ones who don't really love the idea of online gambling, are so pro-states' rights that they feel that's more important than any kind of federal ban on online gambling. That they feel the states should do what they want, and they just hate the idea of the federal government ruling what the states can do regarding gambling. So, those are the Republicans who are for online gambling. Well, that's that's some of them. There's some who are just plain for it. Uh, then there's so there's there's really politicians all over the political spectrum who are on both sides of this. So so don't blame Trump for this. And Trump doesn't really care. I about think he's it. helping because he's keeping him so busy with all his crookedness and the shadiness. <laughs> you'd think they wouldn't have time to deal with stuff. Like this. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah. So I. I this is not Trump isn't sitting there, uh, you know, He's not waking up, going on Twitter while he's on the toilet, which he probably does. He's not saying, "Today I, I'm going to ruin uh, online gambling. It's going to be gone. It's it's going to be tremendously gone." He's it, that's not that's not Trump. That's not he's not he doesn't care about it. I guarantee he doesn't care about it. Just like Obama didn't care. It's whoever they have in place, and how they feel about it. Whoever they have in place at the Department of Justice, what their mood is about it at the time. That's that's really all that matters. It's it's not really about the president. It's not about the political party. Remember when Obama won in 08, people said, oh, here comes regulation and legalization of online poker. Hallelujah. Glad Bush is out of here. Now Obama's people are going to make it all legal. Obama, in fact, he's a poker player. I heard he loves poker. Yeah, you saw how that worked out. Now, Obama wasn't sitting here looking to kill online poker. He didn't care about it either. So, we'll have to see what happens, but not a positive development at all. Here's something else that probably isn't a positive development, except for maybe some who are owed money. Chino Ream is back in the news. Chino Ream has won the 2019 Poker Stars PCA main event, the one with the 10K buy-in. Chino took it down, and the prize he took down, that was a pretty big main event, he took down a pretty big prize. $100 billion! You know, even if that was his prize, he probably still couldn't pay back his entire debt. But no, it was $1.567 million. Still a very nice prize. Now, do you think Chino Ream had ten k lying around to enter this event? No. 
if Chino Ream had 10K lying around, it would be gone by the end of the day. He never has money lying around. He's, he's incapable of that. Okay, so he he didn't have himself in that event. Someone bought him in. So there's some money that goes off the top. And believe me, whoever bought him in was there. At least they were there once he got deep. They may have taken hopped on a flight and got over there fast. Uh, but they were there when he won, and believe me, they, they took their cut right away. They, they didn't take it on his word that he's going to pay them. They, they know who they're backing. And they get first dibs because when they back him, they say this. They say, Chino, we know you owe a bunch of money to people. But we're going to back you because you're a good player, which he is. But, Chino, if you cash, you're giving us the money immediately. We're going to go to the cage with you, and no matter who you owe, no matter how badly you need the money, you're going to give us our cut immediately. If you agree, we will back you. If you disagree, we will not back you. And I'm sure Chino not only agrees to this, but complies because he needs to be backed, and he knows that. So if he just screwed backers left and right, that would be the end of the backing. If, if people backed him and then he said, screw you, I'm not paying you, then that would be the last time he'd get backed. The word would get around, and uh, the only upside to backing Chino Ream would be gone, because if he won, he wouldn't pay you. So I'm sure the backer got their money. Whoever it was. I wonder if he donated to the uh, Gavin Smith GoFundMe page. That's a good question. But uh, Chino Ream uh, owes a lot of money going back many years. I'm one of the few people who ever got paid back in full by Chino Ream. The year that he made the World Series main event final table, I, for some reason, hadn't heard yet about him. The, the word wasn't fully out yet. So I was on Stars, and Chino said, Hey, would you like to uh, get $8,000 cash for 8000 in Stars chips? Well, this was after NetTeller was gone. So it was kind of a pain in the ass to cash out. And I said, Yeah, okay, sure. I'll take the 8000 cash for the 8000 in Stars chips. So I sent him 8000 in Stars chips. And how well did you know him at that point? I didn't know him that well. Uh, I, I knew who he was. I played. I played with him for years. I knew he was part of the group with the grinder and, and all, the, the, all those Florida people. But uh, I, I was unaware that he had these issues with just owing tons of money to people, and I knew that he had just. I mean, he had just won the million dollars that he was paid for making the November 9. Because what happens is they pay you the ninth place money right away, and then you wait a few months and play it, it out, play it out. He finished ninth, so he got no more. But here he had just gotten the million bucks. So I figured, okay, he just needs 8K on stars. No problem, right? Well, of course, then he never was responding to me asking for the 8K cat. When I'd ask him, he just either wouldn't respond or stall me. And I said, oh, no. And then I told Mikeon about it. He said, oh, no, you've just been chinoed. I thought, oh, crap. <laughs> I know what that must mean. So I was like, oh, shit. I just lost $8,000. I was, I felt so stupid for not checking into this. I just figured he just got a million dollars. How could it all be gone? But I didn't realize it's Chino Ream. doesn't matter what he gets. It's all gone very fast. He takes it to the pits and just bets insane amounts of money. So he was broke, and he rolled me for 8K. So... 
I started stepping up the pressure on him just in case I could get some from him. Maybe he'd come into it in some way. And after about a week and a half of badgering, he said, okay, I'm going to have it sent to you on stars. Now, I could have said, no, 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 no. You said you're giving it to me in cash. That's not our agreement. If I said that, I would have been a moron. At this point, I was thrilled to get it back in anyway. So I said, okay, yeah, yeah, send it to me. So he had Robert Mizrahi send it to me. I'm like, okay, I, Robert's probably going to get screwed here, but it's not my problem. I mean, they were good friends, so I, I didn't have to worry. I wasn't, this wasn't my concern at that point. If it's one of his very good friends sends me the AK, it's the same thing. So Robert Mizrahi sent me the AK, and that was that, and I, I couldn't believe it. Then I found out, I only found out a little bit after that the extent of really how bad it was and that it was known that he shot off the million very quickly and that uh, the chance of me getting that back was very low. Some theorize that he paid me because of my reputation for calling out scammers in poker and that since it wasn't as widely known then about the way he was, that uh, he was hoping to avert that from happening. So uh, I was not sent it with any condition, though. I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I, I didn't keep it a secret. It's not like I was told, oh, no, don't say anything about this. Like it, it was just sent to me, and I, and I did say something. So I, he didn't buy my silence. I'm just saying that he, he uh, uh, on the other hand, it's, it's true. I didn't like, go shout it from the mountaintops like I would have if I didn't get, didn't get the 8K. So I guess. How, lo- how long was it? Probably like a week and a half. But it, but it, oh, it was it was a long week and a half because I was told immediately I'm not going to get it and he and he wasn't being responsive and he was stalling me and he was supposed to be like giving it me like like the next day in cash and I was right there in Vegas with him so I'm like you know, I was I was I thought I'm just going to meet up with him and give me a K and I I had done that type of thing with other people before I'd done it with Neverwin before I've done this with other people that uh, you know they need money on on stars and uh, uh, if I know them well enough then I'll send it to them. Uh, Chino, I didn't know well enough, but he just won a million dollars very short time ago. So I said, okay, how could that be gone already? Well, it was. And he was really short-stacked, right, going into the final yeah, table? Yeah, he was. But then he, was, he got pissed, too. They asked him at the, the end of the interview, like, so so how do you feel about finishing in ninth place at the main event? He's like, how the fuck do you think I feel? It came as the worst possible result. I got really pissed to get asked. Right, because he was already spending the second and third million. <laughs> you know? So, I admit it was annoying. That's an annoying quote. I'd be pissed too if they asked me that. Like, it's, it's okay. If it just happened, if it wasn't like the three month delay, then that's a, f- a fine question to ask. But not, you've had three months to wait to go play off this final table, and then you go there and get the worst result possible. When they ask you how does it feel to finish ninth, at that at that point, that's that's kind of a nasty question. Anyway, because right, you're playing a you're playing a nine person sit and go where it's zero for nine, right, right, <laughs> and then eight, you know, eight million or whatever for first. Yeah, exactly. It's, so, not even the whole tournament anymore in your mind. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that was not a good decision on my part, but I at least had a happy ending, mostly happy ending. I didn't get my cash, but who cares? I got I got the eight k back on stars. Uh, Chino's greatest hit, greatest hit, perhaps, was involving the One Drop event. This occurred in 2013, and listen to this. Uh, Guy La Liberté, the organizer of the One Drop event, 
also the owner of Cirque du Soleil. Very, very rich guy, as you might imagine. He's the one who personally stakes a lot of the pros in the event. Now, the event alternates between 111 k and $1 million buy-in by year. So odd years, it's 111 k Even years, it's a million. Okay? So... In 2013, it was 111k, and Guy decided to personally stake Chino. Now, Guy, I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe because he's so rich, he wasn't sweating 111k that much. But Guy actually didn't—he <laughs> didn't really think about what might happen with that money. So. Guy knew it was 111k buy-in, obviously. Knew Chino needed it to enter. And the night before the event, he gave 111k to Chino to just go buy into the event. Bad decision! Yeah. Remember that one? So, he gave 111k cash to Chino. Said, okay, Chino, go register for the event. Chino's like, okay, thank you very much. He didn't go register for the event. He brought it to Baccarat. He lost it at Baccarat. There was no 111K anymore. So what does Chino do now? Does he go back to Guy and say, uh, could you maybe give me another 111K? No. Uh, does he call Guy and say, hey, Guy, I'm really sorry, but I'm not going to be able to play. I blew your 111K in the pits. I know I shouldn't have, but sorry. No, he just no-showed. He just didn't show up. So, so, so they're totally expecting him there. He's just not there. And Guy is like, what the hell? What happened to Chino? So they go, ah, you just got Chino'd. You just got Chino'd, Guy. So that was probably Chino's best-known ripoff. What could Guy have done to have prevented this, aside from just not staking him? Well, he could have done what I did and what Brandon did for Poker Fraud Alert members that were staked by C-Money and others. And that is walk them to the cage, make sure they buy in, and then walk with them to the tournament area and watch them play one hand. Because once they've played one hand, they are not allowed to get a refund. Because if you just, let the, if you just go with them to buy in, then they can go get a refund. They can unbuy in when you're not looking, and the same thing can happen. So what you do is right before the tournament starts, buy him in, walk with him, watch him play one hand, say, okay, goodbye, Chino, good luck. Then you can't get screwed. I guess you can if he chip dumps or something, but he's not known to do... I've never heard of Chino like cheating or chip dumping. He just rips people off for money. So if you're going to stake Chino, you never hand him cash, never. You buy him in and you make sure he shows up. You don't even make sure he shows up. You do it once the tournament's about to start, right? Right. right. That's what I'm saying. You, you, you do. That's what I mean. You, you. I said it wrong. You do it right before the tournament starts. Buy him in with him standing next to you, and then walk him over there, and do not let him leave until he plays one hand. Once he plays one hand, you can leave. That's exactly what I did. Like one step, for example. One step got bought in by C Money. So I met one step right before the event that he was going to play. Bought him in. 
you know, he had to technically buy in, but I, I stood with him as he bought in. Then I walked with him over to the tournament area, watched him sit down, watched him get dealt one hand. He folded the hand. That's good enough. I said goodbye. Why? Because even if one step wanted to, he could not do anything at that point. You cannot get a refund once you've played a hand. Even if you fold the hand. You, you cannot get a refund once you've played a hand, for obvious reasons. All the way up until then, you can get a refund. So that's what they should have done. This was uh, six years ago now, but it, and I don't think uh, Guy will ever be staking him again. So I don't know how much the backer got, but obviously Chino had some left over. The question is, is he going to pay people? Now, he has won other things in recent years, and I heard he did pay some back. I think it's more of like a race to get to him than so much a, a willful uh, intention not to pay you. So I think if you're there and he owes you money and you say, hey, Chino, you owe me money, he'll probably give it to you, or at least some portion. The problem is it's going to be gone very fast. Either people he owes or he'll shoot it off. So I wonder how many people rushed down to the PCA when he was getting really deep. They probably had to have the velvet ropes they used for the lions before the tournament started. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, there must have been a huge line at the cage. Like, oh, well, all these people cash? No, all these people are waiting for Chino Ream to cash. Uh, this is almost his best live cash, by the way. Uh, this is better than what he got for the World Series main event. Uh, he did once uh, win $1.7 million, But uh, that was a long time ago. That was in 2008 at the... Uh... Oh, you know what? He, did he f- I'm sorry. I thought he finished ninth. I guess he got seventh in the main event. I, I, I thought he got ninth. He got seventh. Okay. Was that one of the Mark Newhouse... Ninth years? No, it wasn't. No, eight two thousand eight wasn't. I thought he got ninth. For some, I, I must be confusing you with Newhouse, who got two ninths. That I know for sure. I remember he was pissed though, so I, that's why I thought. I remember the. I remember they had asked him how he felt about finishing. What I thought was ninth, maybe it was seventh. He got pissed, but maybe it was. Okay, whatever. He got. Uh, he got seventh. That was his best cash. So this is almost as good as that. He got fifth. Or he, he got one point five million compared to one point seven something. But the second best cash ever. In recent times, he had a 521k cash at the WPT Bay 101, finishing third. He's had a lot of other, like, kind of five-figure caches in recent years, but uh, that was his only six-figure cash in 2017 or 18, that 521k. In 2016, he got 705k at the WPT Seminole Hard Rock for winning that one, a 10K event. And remember, I'm sure the backers are taking a healthy amount here. He also got $1.1 million winning the WPT Championship in Las Vegas in May 2013. So he's had some big ones. million bucks in August 2011 at the uh, Epic Fail Poker League. The 20K six-handed. 
overall he has cashed over ten million. Ten point five million. That's not his profit, that's his cashing, but yet he's broke. And he should have got the free roll in that uh, yeah, epic yeah, poker yeah, tournament, the, the, right? The epic failed poker tournament. Yeah, he got screwed. One of the few times Chino got screwed. You know, even if his cashes were a hundred million lifetime, he'd still be broke. Like, how much money would Chino Reem have to win to where he wouldn't be broke long term? Like, what if he won a billion dollars? Think he could waste that? He can't in poker, but... It would, it would take a little time. It would take time, but, like, like if he won a billion dollars, you think he'd still have money in, in, in 10 years? I would think he'd have to. I don't know. I, I think I might actually bet he wouldn't. I think I might actually bet he could waste a billion dollars in 10 years. 10 years is a long time. You could waste $100 million each year, which sounds like a lot, but for Chino, like, look how fast... Look how fast he shut off the 111K, like it was nothing. Right, and if you have a billion, you just can't gamble. You'd have to gamble for an amount that me- that's meaningful. Right. So I think it would just be on this on a different scale. He'd just be gambling. Like, yeah. like, look how fast he shot off the million bucks that he won at the the main event. The one point seven million that he won at the main event. I mean, right? He only guaranteed a million then, but you know, still, like, you see how fast he shot that off, which put me in peril of getting that AK back. So I, I bet he really could blow a billion dollars. <laughs> I'll never have a billion dollars, but I, I, if somehow he won a billion dollars, so if somehow they had like a super duper high roller tournament and and he won it, he <laughs> he would be broke. I bet he's one of those guys like that. Like, look at some of these NBA players or rappers who have more than a hundred million at one point and go broke. I think it's kind of like that. There, I've always said there's no limit to how one can waste money. There's just so many different ways to waste it, even on a, a very large scale. Not just high-stakes gambling. You can make terrible business investments, just incredibly lavish spending with an entourage. There's so many ways you can waste insane money. It's very, very easy to waste money, especially with all these people coming to you then claiming they have all these great business ideas and it can all go up in smoke. So, uh, some people just don't know how to hold on to money. They just don't value money. I do wonder if some of Chino's talent in poker comes from the lack of caring about money. Sometimes in poker, it does make you a better player to not care about money because you can put that out of your head. That's not good for your bankroll. That's not good for your long-term financial health in poker. But as far as individual events, it may, it probably is to your advantage to not care about money. I think one of the most fearsome poker players could be a guy who could completely get money off of his mind while he plays tournaments. But then the second he's done with the tournament, he becomes a cheapskate. I think that would be the best of both worlds. But that's a lot easier said than done. Like, I can't not care about money when I play a tournament. I'm not saying I play scared, but I can't can't get that out of my head. Like, if I'm playing a 10K buy-in event at the World Series, like, I'm not going to forget I'm playing a 10K buy-in. I can't, like, just treat it like that totally is not a factor. Uh, But at the same time, I'm not Chino Ream who's, who's blowing all my money. I've said this about 
Neverwin before. I, I've said it about him. What's good about Neverwin is also bad about Neverwin. That the fearless attitude he brings to the tables, unfortunately, also causes bad bankroll management and bad life decisions. You can't just separate the two. So, we will see. The only thing I can say for Chino is he's... I mean, yeah, he does these shady things. Like when he asked me for that 8K and offered the cash, he didn't have the cash. He just he just wanted 8K and then thought he could trick me into it and then did. He was right. He could trick me into it. So, that's not what a good person does. And when people call him a scumbag and a piece of shit, I, t- I totally understand. And I agree. But... He's not doing this like a sociopath. He's not doing this because he enjoys scamming. He does this because he has a gambling problem. It's not an excuse for him, but the thing is, he, he's not someone who doesn't want to pay you. He just is someone who is selfish and wants to stay in action, even if he has to screw you to stay in action. But when he wins, he knows he owes money, and if you get to him quickly enough, he'll probably pay you. There are those who will rip you off, and then when they win, won't pay you. They'll dodge you. That's not really him, from what I've heard. So I bet some people got paid here. If I were owed money by Chino of any any amount, even the 8K, I probably would have gotten myself over there to collect it. So I wonder how many flights were booked at the last minute to the Bahamas to go collect from Chino. There had to be some. There had to be some people that weren't there already that rushed over there. Now, probably some were able to collect by proxy. They may have gotten a trusted friend to collect on their behalf and told Chino, hey, you know, I'm sending such and such person to collect for me. So, I may have mentioned this before at the World Series, and I, I, I wish I could name this guy, but I was told I can't. But I got in a shouting match with someone at this year's World Series in the King's Lounge, the high-limit cash room there, who owed a friend of mine money from years back, which I think it was 8K, of all things. Maybe it was 9K, either 8 or 9K, but it was something like that was owed to one of my friends from years ago. And then this guy kind of vanished from poker, and then he reappeared in... in, in uh, I think it was 2018. Anyway, I, I I talked to him about it in 2018, and I was very nice about it, but just told him, hey, you know, you owe my friend money. He'd like you to get a hold of him. And we got in a big argument about it. This guy thought that I was doing this not to help out my friend, but that I was looking for a piece, that I was basically being like a collection agent, and this is none of my business. And that he's not going to talk to me about it. And furthermore, he denied that he owed this person any money and told him, and in fact, pretended like he didn't know who that person was, which is BS. And he, then at one point, he tried to even pretend he didn't know who I was, which is especially outrageous, because the guy definitely knew me. And we got in a big argument and a big shouting match. The final thing I said as I was walking away is uh, these sound like the words of a guilty person. 
And then I started texting him and talking to him. Trash. He wouldn't give me his phone number. I said, uh, he's like, the guy told me, if your friend is so convinced I owe him money, have him text me. I don't want to hear from you. I said, okay, fine. Give me your number. I'll pass it to him. He says, if he knows me so well, he should have my number. I go, this is a very old debt. He, he, your number may have changed. He's nope, it's the same number I've always had. I said, well, what if he lost it or changed phones? It's been so many years. I said, uh, nope. If he knows me that well, where I owe, him, I owe him money, he would have my number. He, you know, he's purposely doing this just so he, you know, he doesn't have to give me his number and he can't get contacted by this guy. So fortunately, I was able to dig up this guy's number from like a long time ago. So then I started texting him. I go, oh, I do have your number. And then I started talking trash to him. And we were like going back and forth in text. So then I go to my friend and I told him, hey, you know, I told him the whole story. And I said, what do you want to do here? Do you, you, know, do you want to text him? Do you want to? He's like, Oh, no, just forget it. You know, I'm never going to get it. Screw it. You know, like, okay, well, can I call him out? No, please don't do that. Like, he, for some reason, he didn't want me going public with it. He just, he didn't want the drama. He thought he's never going to get it, so he doesn't want to be dragged into drama. He says, please don't. Thanks for you know, thanks for what you did. Thanks for attempting it. But, uh, you know, now that he's not paying to screw it, I'm not going to even bother. And please, please don't, he kept saying, please don't say that person's name. Please, please don't call him out. So I'm telling the story without naming the person. But we actually were shouting at each other in the uh, in the King's Lounge. But I, I don't see Chino acting that way. I, Chino probably would go, yeah, yeah, I owe you money. I owe, money. Yeah, I owe you money to your friend. <laughs> that, that's what I would picture with him. So if, if Chino owes you money, just track down when he's playing, when he's doing well, and just get down there. That's, that's my advice to you. He'll never voluntarily come and pay you. Like, I guarantee anybody who's not asking for the money immediately after he won is not getting paid. He's not going back to people, hey, remember, remember you owed, uh, I owed you money from uh, 2012? Well, yeah, it's a, here, here's that $15,000 I owed you all this time. Thanks for the wait. No, 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 no. He's not going to voluntarily come to anyone, but if you come to him, you have a shot. If he has money at the moment, which won't be very long. All right, seven seven five fraud fifty five seven seven five three seven two eight three five five. There is some controversy about DraftKings and a lawsuit. Interesting story, and it is quickly developing to where even I am just getting caught up on the whole thing. So here's what's happening. Here is what's happening. DraftKings held something called the Sports Betting National Championship. And remember, uh, DraftKings can actually take sports bets now because of the legalized sports betting in New Jersey. But they, they had a contest where each person has to pay $10,000 to enter. So it was a pretty high-stakes contest. And, of course, they took a rake out of it. But uh, it was a sports handicapping contest. And, as I said, a $10,000 buy-in. And there was a pretty large prize for it. Now, uh, 260 people entered. The top prize was... 
one million dollars. So more than uh, so two hundred people, two hundred sixty people entered. And this past Sunday, there was some controversy about it. I'm talking about uh, Sunday, January thirteenth, day three of the tournament, the final day had some trouble where the leader at the moment in the contest was prevented from making his final wager before the Eagles and Saints NFL game. So the eventual winner, thanks to that, ended up being Randy Lee, who was actually a poker dealer in New Jersey. He played on there as a R. Lee Jr. 86, so he's probably 32 years old. Uh, now, these are people placing real bets, by the way. So this wasn't just a, a contest in theoretical bets. You people are placing real bets. Now, I'm not exactly sure how the terms worked, but uh, you did have to play real bets. And uh, the and that figured somehow into, into the scoring, but uh, Randy Lee actually placed a final bet of 47,500 on Eagles plus eight and a half and won. The Eagles lost by six, so it barely covered. Uh, Randy Lee ended up winning 101,474. It looks like it's a contest to win the most money, but there must have been some restrictions on what you could bet, otherwise people could just bet really big in the first place and kind of uh, force themselves to win that way. So there must be some kind of restrictions on that. I, I don't know exactly how the contest worked, but it was to finish with the most money ahead. So Randy Lee finished $101,474 ahead. So he won that plus the million dollars for finishing with the most money. But the controversy came from this final game that. There's a guy named Rufus Peabody. He was Opti5624 on the site. He was actually leading. He had an $82,000 positive result after winning his last bet on the Patriots minus 3.5. So because that game was kind of slow... It was 41-28 Patriots, so there was 69 points scored, and the more points in an NFL game, usually the the slower it is. So the Patriots game ended at 4.37 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, the Saints game, the very final game, began at 4.41 p.m. Eastern Time. So there were four minutes in between. So Rufus Peabody, knowing that he was the leader at the moment, he knew, he knew he was going to have to bet on that last game to try to secure his win. Uh, he, he was F5-ing his browser, refreshing, refreshing, refreshing like a madman during those four minutes. He's like, oh, thank God, there's a, you know, there's a little time in between. I've got to get this bet down in these four minutes, which was enough time, right? So he's going, refresh, 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 trying to... Being able, to, trying to be able to place his bet because he had to wait for the winnings from his Patriots bet because he bet everything in his account on that Patriots game, so he had zero. 
in his account. He had to wait for the winnings to be uh, posted. He had to wait for that to be credited so he could make one last bet on uh, on that game. However, for whatever reason, the winnings were not credited to his account until after the Saints game started. They were just slow. That's what Peabody said about it. So he, he didn't win because this league guy passed me. His league was able to place the bet and, and uh, Peabody was waiting for the money from the previous bet to post, which didn't post until it was too late. He said, I had spent the last two and a half hours running over all the numbers. As it goes at the end, I was going back and forth. Which one am I going to do? Am I going to pull the trigger? It was going to be a Saints bet or some kind of, or, or some, of some kind or the under. Unfortunately, I didn't get the chance. Now, we don't know that for sure. He's claiming he would have bet on, on one of those two winning picks, either the under or the Saints, which, which uh, both... Uh, actually, the, the Saints would have only covered on the money line. It would not have... Uh... No, but I think he was betting the Saints under. That's what I read a few days ago. More information okay. would come out. His quote is, it was going to be a Saints bet or some kind of under. So the Saints' point spread would have lost, but the, the under would have won. But anyway, he said, unfortunately, I didn't get the chance. So according to data that was on the DraftKings website, some players actually did get their money from that Patriots game before kickoff, and some did not. So it's not even like they were just slow with everyone, that for some reason, certain people got it, and certain ones did not. And how is that even possible? You know, I, mean, I don't know. Is it just something they put in the computer that's and what I would all think. simultaneously be graded? That's, that's, uh, I, I don't know. Now, it wasn't just him. There were several others who didn't get their bets back from that uh, Patriots game in time to make this bet on the final game with the Eagles and Saints. On that day, on day three... The bettors were only allowed to wager on those two playoff games. They, they couldn't bet on anything else. Uh, Rufus Peabody then posted a screenshot on social media of his DraftKings contest account with a one-penny balance at the time when the Eagles Saints kicked off. He posted it actually on uh, Twitter. It says, balance, one cent, game started. Can you imagine how frustrated he was? Can you imagine the guy just refresh, refresh, refresh. He's like, come on, don't start, don't start. Don't start. Damn it! I, 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 he, he probably broke things in the house. Right, but he could, he could have also, though, posted what he's betting before the game started. Right. That, that's you, know, it, you know, it's not like he's putting up money, and I'll, you know, so... Yeah, now, maybe, but maybe he didn't want to do that, because he might have lost. You yeah, know, he might not have been that confident. So, so that's a good question. Once this happened, did he purposely not say that so he could claim he was going to bet on whatever won and couldn't? Or was it just so shocking at the time that he didn't think of doing that? It could have been either. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't you have emailed them and say, listen, there's two minutes left. Just put 40000 on. Yeah, that, I think I probably would have. Right, right. Like, document it somewhere. I'm trying to bet this on this. And uh, so, yeah, it is possible that he, he didn't want to say it so he could try to free roll it. So it's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but it's a good point. So then DraftKings released this statement. We recognize that in the rules, the the scheduled end of betting coincided very closely with the finish of the Patriots-Chargers game. 
While we must follow our contest rules, we sincerely apologize for the experience several customers had where their bets were not graded in time to allow wagering on the Saints-Eagles game. We will learn from this experience and approve upon the rules and experience for future events. Come on. <laughs> I, I hate that last is that line. The we- is that the weakest statement you've ever heard? Yeah, I, I hate, oh, okay, thanks. I, I, I hate that last line is we're going to learn from this and improve in the future. Well, that doesn't help the people who got screwed now. You're all going to pay. We're going to have no problems at all. But, but next year, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, I, I hate that. And I've, ha- I've had that used on me before. I've had that where I get screwed in some way by some business. I complain. They acknowledge I'm right. And I say, okay, so what are we going to do? Well, we've learned a lot from this. We're going to be improving things in the future. We thank you for that. I said, okay, then pay me as a consultant then. If that's if if it's, if improve, I'm not your free consultant. If I want, I need it to be made right for me. I don't care about what your company improves in the future. That's what you do internally. I, I'm not working for you, so that doesn't make me happy to hear you've uh, improved things for the future. I, I actually had the, the ESPN zone in uh, in Anaheim. We went to have a fa- fantasy baseball draft there, and we were promised a room that could accommodate. Uh, uh, I think it was five people with five laptops. And we were given this tiny room that there is no way five people and five laptops could fit. You think, you know, how small could a room be where five people and five laptops couldn't fit? This was, was that, just, that's exactly what I was thinking. This, how small could this room have been? This really was that small where it really could not fit five people and five laptops. It was, it was a tiny, tiny room. Uh, it was almost like a closet. It was, it was, a, it was a tremendous, it was a, such a tiny room. So, uh, when so the man, the acting manager there was really obnoxious about this and just said, "Well, that's the room you booked. I don't know what they promised you, but you you were booked for this room. Uh, that's the room you get." And I said, "Well, is there, is there no bigger room here? Oh, there there is a bigger room. There's a room that that holds twelve people. Like, oh, perfect. Let's. Is there anyone in there? No. Okay, let's move there." Uh, yeah, we can't do that because it's a Saturday and that's a very popular room and someone may want to come in there and pay for that room and we can't put five people in there. I'm really sorry that, you know, they didn't, I'm really sorry they didn't, uh, whoever did this made this promise to you or you may have misunderstood or maybe you didn't communicate the laptop thing well. I go, no, no, let me show you. I'll show you the email we sent them that is going to be five people with five laptops. Yeah, I don't need to see it. Look, I just can't give you the other room. Like, the guy was uh, turned into, a, he was just really, really obnoxious. I don't need to see the email. Unreal. Yeah. So so anyway, uh, we had a lot of arguments with this guy, and uh, I think at one point they they passive aggressively uh, turned it really cold in the room, and uh, and when we complained about it, the guy walked in. No, it's not cold to me. It's in fact the thermostat says seventy degrees. I go, it's not even close to seventy in here. In fact, outside in the other in the rest of the restaurant, it's 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 perfectly fine. And here it's freezing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. There's nothing we could because you know what, I'm, I'm going to call. Uh, I, I'm actually going to call the health department down here because this is uh, this is below the 68 degrees that would be mandated to to you know to have the temperature here to be serving food to the public. And the guy's whoa 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 don't do that. <laughs> the, the conveniently the impossible thing to correct got corrected. So anyway, I called up the general man. I knew this guy was an idiot working on Saturday who just was being arrogant. I called up on that Monday, and the general manager said, "Yeah, he heard about this." He investigated this. He agrees we were 100% right. They met up with everybody there who was involved. They, it was a teaching moment, he described it as, and they've learned for the future. And he'd like to thank me 
for bringing it for bringing it to everyone's attention. So now they can do better for all customers in the future. So thank you very much, sir. I go, uh, uh-uh. uh, we paid for this room. You didn't provide what you promised. I want money back. And the guy was fighting me and I told him I'm going to take it higher up in corporate and, uh, really make a big deal about this. And he finally backed down and gave us some money back. But, uh, he, he really thought I was going to be happy that it's a teaching moment. He, he thought that was going to satisfy me. How much? I think we got back, uh, 120 bucks or something. So we, we bought food there too. So I think they gave us 120 bucks back. I think the, um, I think that's what they gave us. I, I f- they got off easy. They did get off easy. So, so anyway, they, uh, but I couldn't believe the that 2019 they, draft is not taking a buck 20 for that. No. So, so, so I, I'm telling you, I, um, I, I was so, and I've heard this before so many other times. This is a teaching moment. This, this is something we've learned from you. You've helped us for the future. We hadn't thought of this before. Now we've thought of it. Now our process is going to be better. And I always had the same result. Okay. Would you like to pay me for my consulting work then? And it's kind of, you know, it sounds like a flippant question, but that, that's, that's the truth. You did a mitzvah for all those people, Drew. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't mind if I'm helping future customers. I'm, I'm glad they won't go through the same thing as me, but that doesn't make me walk away feeling good that I got screwed. So anyway, uh, this is the same thing here. This is a dumb answer. Well, we've, we'll learn and improve upon the rule. No. How about you make it right for the people you screwed here? Now, I don't know what to do for Mr. Peabody because it is true, as, as Trader Ruski mentioned, he didn't say what he was about to bet on. So we can't just give him credit that he would have won. But uh, now DraftKings did. And get, he did win like 300G for fourth or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, he did get something. Yeah. So. Now, DraftKings didn't really explain the big question, which Trader Ruski has always, already wisely asked. How come some people got paid quickly and some did not? The New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement said they are reviewing the incident to figure out what happened here, especially with that. Is it even possible that uh, this was done on purpose for some reason. Maybe they didn't like it. I don't think so, but is it possible? I think the most likely thing is that maybe they already had something in place there, not for this contest in particular, but just for the sports betting, that larger bets are scrutinized more. Maybe that's what it, maybe the larger ones were held up longer. I don't know. It doesn't say that. I'm just guessing. So... I guess what happened here, I guess the way this was done, it was... uh, actually held in a uh, physical location. They rented some venue in New Jersey, in Jersey City. And there were tables, couches, and chairs, dozens of TVs, and strobe lights, two open bars. And I guess they were all together there, but I guess there wasn't someone there in the room that could have I guess there weren't any representatives there in the room that could have uh, taken care of this. Yeah, he got $330,000, so he ended up 670 k short had this really cost him a win. But, of course, it could have helped him if he would have bet on something that lost. Let's say he bet on the Saints spread, he would have, he would have lost. So, especially if he bet the entire thing like he claimed he was going to. So I, this could have actually helped him. So he said... I felt like I was in position for a 50-50 shot at the million dollars. 
Well, that's not a very good argument because that, he got 330000 So if he was going to go all in as he claimed he was going to, then yes, he could have won the million, but then he also could have uh, finished with zero. So his equity there would have been 500 k if it's 50-50. So he didn't lose as much as he's claiming. Still, he, he got screwed. Uh, so it says in the ESPN article, asked whether he had contacted legal representation, he declined to comment. Well, I'll comment now because... I know the answer to that. The answer is, yes, he has. Uh, he has uh, filed a lawsuit. So the one of the attorneys who is involved in this lawsuit, as you might guess, is Mac Verstandig, who loves to get involved in any of these uh, situations where a casino screws someone. Whether online or live, he, he loves. He, he gets. He's always looking for these cases. He's car, kind of carved out a niche for all of these types of cases. So he has filed a lawsuit, and uh, another attorney is involved too. Uh, let me bring this up here. It was uh, William Pillsbury, not related to the Pillsbury Doughboy, maybe he is, and Mac Verstandig. And the lawsuit says this, Plaintiff asserts that the defendant's negligent, arbitrary, and capricious operation of the SNBC, that's the Sports Betting National Championship, or National, uh, the Sports Betting National Championship, I think they... They met the SBNC, not the SNBC. While continually marketing to a national and large audience of participants was, among other things, an unconscionable commercial practice that denied plaintiff and the class of fundamental benefit uh, underlying opportunity to participate in the SBNC. Defendant's conduct has rendered the initial entry of fee entirely or substantially worthless. I can't say it's worthless. I mean, they won $330,000. But that they have filed this lawsuit, and it's actually not even be filed by this Rufus Peabody. It is actually being filed by somebody else. Uh, Christopher Leong was a contestant and filed it. I don't know where he was in the hierarchy of uh, places in this contest, but he's the one filing the lawsuit. And the complaints are as follows. Arbitrary and capricious acceptance of some wagers and rejection of some others. Prompter grading of wagers for persons physically present in Jersey City. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe that's the factor. Maybe the people in physically in Jersey City got theirs graded faster and those who weren't there. So I, I thought they all had to be there. I guess they all didn't. Uh, crediting some uh, SBNC participants with winning funds from a given sporting contest upon which bets were placed before crediting other, crediting other participants with winnings funds from the same contests, permitting at least one SBNC contest contestant to wager after the announced close of wagering in the SBNC. I want to hear about that one. That's someone who was able to wager late. General operation of the SBNC in arbitrary, capricious, and uniformly haphazard manner. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm sure everybody that didn't get paid, they could have doubled up into the money, is going to have a lawsuit. Yeah. 
right? I mean, yeah. they're all going to go all in on Philly in the under. And then uh, John Aguiar, former poker player, uh, he is an executive at DraftKings. I don't know how he got this position, but he's there. And he he has turned from a an activist type. I used to call him uh, kind of a younger version of me with the way he would deal with these poker scandals. He would call out poker scandals. He would uh, call out bad treatment of players by by tournaments and shady things done by tournaments. Uh, I had a lot of respect for him before, but then then he joined DraftKings and just became an apologist for them. It just seems like all he does is, is uh, make excuses for shady things DraftKings does. So it shows you what money can do to people. Or cushy jobs that pay you well can do to people. So the Joe, the Joe Seabach. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of what, it, that's you know, what not as there. extreme. But. So this is what John Aguiar said. He said, limits are complicated to answer in, in 280 characters, but they shouldn't really come into play in major sports. We don't really have a market-by-market market limit. Uh, it's a function of market size, odds, ti- odds time till start, etc. Uh, so the, John Aguiar, that was what he tweeted. John Aguiar is mentioned in the lawsuit... It says the defendant's advertisement through its agent, Mr. Aguiar, that betting limits in the SBNC shouldn't really come into play in major sports, coupled with the defendant's rejection of a myriad of wagers on major sports on apparent account of the commensurate bet sizes, constitutes an unconscionable commercial practice, a deception, a false pretense, a false promise, and a misrepresentation in connection with the defendant's sale of merchandise in contravention of New Jersey law. So they seem to believe that this had something to do with with the bet sizes, and that uh, that Leong, I guess, tried to make bets and they were rejected because they were too big. I'm trying to understand this, and Rufus Peabody uh, is, is claiming still that there's been no resolution. He, he tweeted yesterday, there's been no resolution between me and DraftKings at this point. I'm still considering all my options, including but not limited to being a part of all this, referring to the lawsuit filed by uh, this guy, Leong, and the attorneys involved. So they're trying to get this lawsuit uh class certified so it can be a class action and the attorneys are claiming that uh, there are more contestants who want to sign on to this they they wrote uh, should this honorable court for any reason find mr leong is alone insufficient to represent this class at least five other persons all similarly situated are prepared to join this case as named plaintiffs so they're basically saying that even if you find fault with leong's case we've got five other people who can come forward and, and assert the same thing so uh, they want this class to be certified. So maybe Rufus Peabody will join him. DraftKings does have pretty deep pockets. If you remember, they were involved in a, another controversy recently where uh, they... Was it they were FanDuel? Or are they the same thing? Haven't they merged... I lose track of this. I know they were talking about it. I'm not sure if it ever happened. Yeah, but there, there was that situation where they posted the wrong odds for a wager that made it hugely positive expectation to bet on something. So people bet, you know, bet uh, like a little money to win a whole lot 
on something that was fairly likely to happen, and then it won, and then they didn't want to pay it because it was a malfunction. But they ended up paying it. But I think it only involved like overall like one hundred fifty thousand dollars for those affected. So the bad PR at that point was probably worth it to avoid. But this is more money involved. This is much more complicated because you're going to have all these people claiming, oh, I could have won if. So this is harder to solve. I think. Yeah, and I wonder if any of those people emailed their bet. Yeah, right. And if none of them did, I think what would be fair at that point is to figure out what equity they had and then just assume, you know, maybe just figure out. yeah, some kind of equity calculation of what they really lost on average. If they could have made the right bet that they wanted to, not the right way, they could have made their desired bet. And then if we could run the situation a million times of the of the game actually playing in in you know different ways it could have come out, uh, what would the average amount of money that they would have won when it was all done? And that that was and then subtract that from what they actually won. And that's that was their equity in the situation. So figure that out in some way what their equity was. You can't just assume they would have won. Like 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 this Rufus Peabody, he he didn't say what his bet would have been, so he could have finished off worse. But I do believe he was robbed of some equity. So figure it out for everybody who was affected. Look at who didn't place the bets on that final round. Figure out the equity and, and, and pay it to them. That's what I think they should do. I think that's the closest they can get. I don't, I don't think these people automatically deserve first place money. Not like they were locked to win first place and suddenly prevented that. And I forgot, Jeff, the guy that won, did he, was his ticket graded from the first game or did he have action on that? I don't think it's said, but I, I th- he may not have been all in the previous game, so he may have had enough to bet. So Right, or if it got graded and then he had the money, yeah. then obviously that's a huge issue. Yeah. I think – now, I do think if anybody had emailed something just as the game was starting that couldn't get it placed, hey, I meant to place it on this, if that would have given them first place money or some, or, or some kind of better place money than they won – then then I say award it to them. But if, if, if there's no way to tell what they were going to bet, and then at the same time, if they were to have stated the attention of what they were going to bet, and then it turned out they would have finished worse, uh, then give them nothing, because then they actually did better by not betting. Then they actually suffered no damages. If they had stated their intention in some way before the game began, what they were trying to bet. Or even like a minute within a minute of when the game... Something where it's clear that they don't know what the outcome's going to be. So that, that's the way I would rule it if I, if I was the one deciding this. That anyone who somehow made it clear before the bet and could prove it, that, and then that would have won and put them in a better place, then pay them the difference. If it would have hurt them and made them win less, then nothing happens, they just get away with doing better, but they also don't get further damages. And those that uh, those that didn't do it either way, to where you don't know what they would have done, figure out their equity and give that to them. And that's it. I don't think this is malicious or intentional. 
I think it was just incompetence. But how, how stupid were they? I, I don't understand who's in charge there. Like, shouldn't they know with such a big, high buy-in, high-profile contest? Don't they see that one game is ending minutes before the other? Don't don't they see that this could be a problem? Shouldn't they have really taken care to make sure that these bets are all graded? It's not like they had thousands of people. They had fewer than 300. I bet it's just something stupid like the system just hung some of the bigger bets because they had to be scrutinized or some BS like that in the normal system and they didn't bother to turn that off. I bet it's something dumb like that because I don't understand it either. Usually these are automated. Human beings aren't the ones grading these things. But it's amazing there was no one watching for this, seeing that the games were going to be so close together. Very dumb. I I hope this lawsuit is either successful or more likely DraftKings backs down and he likes to pay people something, something fair. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. Phil Galfon's Run It Once site has a job opening. And it's for a supposed management position. And I had some people bringing my attention to it because they thought that I might be interested in it. Phil Galfond tweeted on January 17th at 3.43 a.m. Pacific, job opening at Run It Once Poker, game integrity manager. Come join the team. Now, I had emailed Galfond a while back when... They were first announcing Run It Once Poker, the site itself, not the training site, the poker site. And I had offered to go work there. I did not want some kind of lower-end job. I didn't want to be a programmer. I didn't want to be a customer service agent. Nothing like that. I wanted to be someone in management and also involved in some of the innovations of the site. So I emailed him uh, something explaining all of this, explaining why I would be qualified. I even explained, uh, in case he wasn't aware, my general activism of keeping these online poker sites honest and that having me on board would give it a lot of credibility because people would know that I would be honest with them. I wouldn't turn into a John Aguiar and just be a mouthpiece for the company. They would know that I would only deal with people fairly. And I think that would encourage a lot of people to want to play. And in addition, not just have the image of a honest site, but also I, I would have a lot to contribute in that I have two decades almost in the online poker industry. And while I've never worked for the industry, I've been kind of a watchdog for it, and I've been a player, and I know exactly what the players want and what they don't want, and what's important to them, what isn't important to them. 
and I also have a lot of innovative ideas which would make a, a site interesting and good and something that's never been tried before. So he wrote, he wrote back a nice email at the time and told me that, uh, you know, he thanks me for this detailed email and, and uh, he was impressed by it, but unfortunately they pretty much have their management team chosen and he knows that uh, the positions he has right now are not as senior as I would want, so he's not even going to bother offering them to me, but he'll keep me in mind for the future. So I said, okay, your choice. I, I also mentioned, and I, I remember when I, in the initial letter, I also mentioned my age at the time which I told him would be a positive because uh, I said that, especially with what happened with Full Tilt and everything, I think that, uh, you know, I, I believe that all the current people in management are in their early 30s, that I, I think it would be also uh, helpful for the market segment of the older population of poker players that there's someone in management that's closer to their age. So they don't feel like they're playing on a site with, yeah, run by just all young people, and that that would probably be perceived well. Also, that I would uh, my my involvement would also appeal to a market segment that uh, they might be missing right now. So, anyway, that was that, and then as he was. And this is much later, as he was announcing the various details of the site, slowly, and some various challenges they had. Uh, we criticized a lot of it on this show, and then I also criticized some of it on 2 Plus 2, in, in a respectful and constructive way, but I could tell he was kind of getting a little annoyed with it. Like, I, I, I could tell he was very proud of what they had done, and didn't agree with some of my criticism, and at that point he probably... <laughs> He probably soured on me some. Not that he was going to hire me anyway. By that point, it didn't. I wasn't doing it out of bitterness, but at the same time, I didn't have to like hold back because I knew uh, I wasn't probably going to be hired anyway. So I might as well just speak my mind. Well, then I was alerted to this game integrity manager thing, and I thought, hmm, maybe I should go make nice to Phil Galfond again and say, hey, sorry if, if my comments. Uh, uh, frustrated you at all, but I was just trying to give constructive criticism and help, which is true. I wasn't doing it from a nasty standpoint. I wasn't being mean or you know inappropriate about it, but I was considering applying for this position and explaining why why I would be qualified to be a game integrity manager. And I really would be. Because not only would I be good at detecting actual poker cheating and being able to separate what is really cheating and what isn't by looking at hand histories. I wouldn't want to be just pouring over hand histories all day. That'd be boring. But, but you know, if, if I'd like to be a voice in the process, like a, a management voice that they could bring it to and say, you know, do you th- we've determined this. What do you think? And show it to me. And I, I could be very good at being able to tell what is and isn't. But also... Um, I know a lot of things that a lot of people who look for these type of uh, cheats wouldn't necessarily know. I know what the signs of bots would be. I know uh, various tricks people use to multi-account. I I know a lot of things to look for, which I'm not saying nobody else knows, but uh, but I I really know a lot of different things to look for 
as far as uh, cheating in online poker is uh, concerned. And uh, so I thought it would be something like that. Game Integrity Manager. Just someone who's the manager of the game integrity, I thought. Someone who's the top person in determining uh, game integrity matters. Both policy and individual situations. I also know I'd be very fair. I would never be one who would always lean toward saying someone's cheating, and I also wouldn't be someone who'd always give those the benefit of the doubt. So I thought that I would be good for this position. But, again, I didn't want a job I have to show up to every day at a certain time and do grunt work. I'm not looking for that at this point in my life. So uh, if if that was the job, I didn't want it, and nor was I going to want to relocate it. it actually, so I clicked through. The first thing that doesn't exactly sit well with me, though I don't know if it really would require relocating to this place, it says Game Integrity Manager Malta Full-time. Uh-oh. Malta. That's not exactly my dream location to live. I don't think I could just get Benjamin's mom and Ben and say, Hey, we're moving to Malta now so I can be a game integrity manager. Let's pack up. That's the first problem. I don't, I don't know if we'd actually have to live in Malta, but it seems possible. It does say Malta full-time. Problem number one. Problem number two. Here's the description of the job. At first it sounds okay. It says the run-at-once game integrity manager is, in cooperation with operations and poker room management, responsible for organizing and handling all areas of game integrity, including related tools, policies, and procedures. Okay, that sounds good. Right? And tools, policies, and procedures... That's also probably referring to what tools are allowed to be used by the players. And that's also something one has to decide and be fair about. I'd be good at this. I really would be. So I was still considering it, except for the Malta thing, but maybe you didn't have to be in Malta. But then came the part that I didn't like. You will, colon... Contribute to day-to-day customer service operations, which requires shift and weekend work. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Shift work? Weekend work? Contribute to day-to-day customer service operations? So I'm going to be like a customer service agent now? What? I'm going to have my shift? Okay, sorry, Benjamin. Can't go out with you today. I know it's Saturday. No, 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 no. Uh, I'm, I'm working from uh, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. today. That's my shift here as I take customer service emails for Run It Once. Yeah, don't think so. And then it says, be an escalation point for customer service staff with focus on game offerings, poker rules, and game integrity. Well, that kind of sounds more like I'm just a glorified customer service supervisor. That someone makes a complaint that such and such person was cheating them and then customer service forwards it to me and says uh this guy says he's being cheated at this table and this hand number can you take a look 
I look. No, he's just paranoid. He's a fish. No cheating. Okay, thanks. Like, it's going to be something like that. It doesn't sound like any kind of real management at all. Someone in management isn't contributing to day-to-day customer service operations with shift and weekend work. You think Gil- Phil Galfon himself has shift and weekend work? I'm not saying he doesn't work hard on this. I'm just saying that I don't think he has any shifts or specific times he has to be there, except for meetings he might hold. I don't think the other managers there have that. Maybe they do, but I mean, that, that's not what I was looking for. I, I was looking for you know something I could do remotely. Don't laugh at that. A lot of like the poker stars, high end employees, they were working from home. A lot of them did a good job working from home, and they they didn't have a specific shift time. Then it says, "Here's the qualifications: you have very strong knowledge and passion for poker, including game variants beyond Texas Hold'em, with several years of active." I guess they mean active experience. Recent playing experience, online and offline. Experience in online gaming customer service, ideally specializing in game integrity. Well, I don't have that. Uh, data analysis and reporting, including poker tracking analysis software. I mean, I don't really use that, but I, I, I could easily. It's not. I know how it all works. But I see what they're looking for here. They're, they're looking for someone here who just knows a lot about poker, all variants of it, that knows enough about the game and knows about enough about online poker in general to where they could be forwarded a hand history of any game and then analyze it and say, yes, there was cheating, or no, there was not cheating. You need the skills he just listed there to do that. Nothing there about really setting policy, nothing there about uh, um, about setting up ways to prevent cheating in the first place or, 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 or figuring out which tools are appropriate and which are not. Or nothing like that. Just... You're getting customer service emails during your shift, and you're deciding who is cheating, who isn't. And when it says contribute to day-to-day customer service operations, which I think what I think what that means is this site is not going to be poker stars. It's not going to be huge. They're not going to have constant work for people uh, the, for security matters. So they don't want people just sitting here twiddling their thumbs, doing nothing, waiting for a cheating report to come in. So probably. While they're waiting for that to happen, they probably also take customer service emails, which sounds awful. Now, I'm not saying this is a terrible job for somebody who uh, it's either this or, or, or work some regular desk job or something. I agree for many people this would be a nice job, even if they had to move to Malta, but this isn't what I'd want. So, As I said to Matt the Rat when he brought it to my attention, I said, they lost me at requires shift and weekend work. That was it. But if you're interested, the job's still open. And you can contact them. It's put out on Twitter publicly, so it's open to everybody. Okay, now I'm going to talk about the HQ trivia scandal, but, but, we've been on the air now for... Looks like uh, four and a half hours or so. And I'm not going to skip this topic this week. It's the final topic. I want to talk about it. 
but I also am starting to feel the pain in my throat, which isn't quite what it used to be, as you guys know. So, rather than say we'll do the topic next week and then not get to it again, I do want to do the topic, and I'm not all that tired right now. I actually have the energy to do it. What I'm going to do is uh, take a little break. I'm going to play the Eric Benzamokin ad. And then I will come back after using a rinse on my throat to make it feel a little bit better. Drink some water. Maybe use the facilities. And then we will do our final topic. Traders, are you still with us? I am here. I'm starting to fade, though. Fading, okay. Well, What's the final topic again? The final topic is about the, the, the apps that have real money uh, competitions for non-gambling games. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, I remember about that. Yeah, and uh, and I've, I've actually been experimenting with some of these recently. Uh, not, I haven't spent any real money yet, but I have been looking into these to see if there's any opportunity. I'll get into the whole thing, but there's a scandal involving one of them. And I think people have to really watch out because there's a lot of pitfalls to these. Even though, even though they're legal, there's a lot of pitfalls to these that uh, you guys should all know about. And it's an interesting thing to learn about if you're not really aware of this whole world, which is rapidly growing, by the way. So it's it's uh, it's, it's it's a way people kind of substitute gambling instead of just it's a skill game like poker in some ways. When I say it, I mean, a lot of these things are kind of skill games in some way, like poker is a skill game, except there's just no element of, of chance involved, too. But there's a lot of shady things going on, and some people believe just because these are legal, they've got to be okay, which some have learned the hard way is not. So that's what we're going to talk about, and uh, I will be right back. Okay, Druff, and I am going to tap out. You're going to tap out. Tomorrow. So I, I had the feeling. Okay, but thank, thank you. you. Thank you for being and here, Trader and uh, and we'll see you next week, probably Thursday or Friday. And yeah, let me know. Fridays are always good. I don't have to get up for work early, so yeah, that's the that's next the day. Thing. Okay, well, uh, thank you. We'll talk to you later. And here okay. is the ad for Eric Benzamokin. Okay. Okay. Now, most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money... Or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally. And he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California, you can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar. And he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. 
This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, we're back, and we will do our final topic. Thank you for sticking around this long. And that, yeah, I, I use this dry mouth rinse. It really helps kind of bring back the feeling in my throat to where it's not all raw and dry. I actually use this before I go to sleep every night, too. I started doing this uh, shortly after I developed this LPR problem. It's the, the only thing I've found that helps me. It's not even supposed to help this, but it does. At least for me. So I want to talk about these skill games that you can play on your smartphone that you can win real money. And it sounds very enticing, and you may have seen ads for them, especially if you play other games on your phone. These companies are spending a lot of money to advertise during other games to get you onto their games. They have a lot of similarities to online poker. You deposit real money. You play against real people. You're not playing against the house. They are games of skill. And when you win enough money, you can cash out at any time. Sounds very familiar, right? Where the best players can win. Where a lot of recreational players think they have a chance, but they really don't. Maybe you even think that you could make a living doing this. Maybe the time for poker has passed. Too many good players now. Too few fish. Maybe the new era, the opportunity for the 2020s, will be these skill app games. Maybe just master these and you could make a good living. Hmm. Thought came to my mind. But what is a skill game? What is a skill game? What, what, what kind of skills are we talking about? Well, it can be anything. The reason these are legal is that there's no element of chance. And therefore, it does not violate existing gambling law. So there are three elements in gambling 
which have to exist in order for there to be an actual definition of gambling taking place. There is risk. There is prize. And there is chance. The risk is actually known as a consideration. Meaning that... So the consideration portion is that you're putting something up front that is of value. It doesn't have to be money, but you are risking something of value that you will lose if you do not win the game. That's considered consideration. Chance means there's an element of chance that you have no control over, that just luck is involved in some way, such as a deck of cards, dice, whatever. Something that just happens and can make you lose, even if you do everything perfectly. And then there's prize. Prize means that you win something. Again, of real value. Now, it has to have these three all together to be considered gambling. Once something is considered gambling, then unless you are licensed to offer that gambling, then you are breaking the law. If any of these three elements are absent, then it is not gambling, and then you cannot be prosecuted under gambling law, and it's probably legal. So, let's look at the free roll from Poker Fraud Alert. There is chance. Yeah, we have a deck of cards. There's, there's definitely chance. Is there a prize? Oh, yeah, there's a prize. First, second, and third tonight will win. So why am I not breaking the law offering that? Well, because there's no consideration. You're not risking anything. It's free. All you can do is win. The worst you can do is break even. So there's no consideration portion to it. Therefore, it is not gambling. So what about these apps, these skill apps? Is there consideration? Yes. You're depositing real money and paying that real money as an entry fee, which you will lose if you lose the game. Is there a prize? Yes. If you win the game, you will win a prize and your original stake back, just like a regular game that is gambling. But where it is not gambling is that there is no chance. As long as there is no element of chance, then it becomes legal. A really, really, really bad poker site attempted to do this about a decade ago. It was called Duplicate Poker, and it was awful. What was Duplicate Poker? Well, it took the chance element out by dealing everybody competing with one another the exact same cards. So this is how it would work. And it was a failure, by the way, but this is how it would work. Is that you would only have certain opponents. And everybody at your poker table would actually not be your opponent in the contest. You're not competing against them, even though you're playing hands against them. How is that possible? Because the only point to the poker you're playing is to finish with more chips than the others who are sitting in your exact seat with the exact same cards at a different table. So let's say you're at seat six. You're going to get the exact same cards as seat six in all the other tables, and everybody else at the table is also going to get the same cards as the people sitting at the other tables in those same seats. 
So the only difference is going to be the players you're playing against. And also, in your skill versus the skill of the other people sitting in your same seat at other tables with the same cards. And whoever ends up with the most chips in each seat is the one who moves on. So let's say there's 10 tables going. Then it's me in seat six against the nine other people in seat six. And if I finish with the most chips out of everybody in seat six, even though we all got the same cards, if I use those cards to get myself the most chips, then I'm the one who wins that round and moves on. That's how it works. There's never any heads-up play, because by the time you get to the end, uh, there's no way to deal the same cards to two people heads-up. It just ends with two people sitting at the table heads-up, and you both win the same prize. Well, people didn't like this. It was stupid. And what was really dumb about it is that game selection, which you couldn't select, it would just drop you at a table. That was huge, because if, if somebody got put with a fish who was just playing horribly and giving away their chips, even if not intentionally... The person at that table has a gigantic edge over you. You can do everything right, and you're still powerless to win because you're you're basically dependent upon the other players to lose to you. So that's one of many reasons it was horrible. So it didn't do well. But it was legal because it didn't have the chance element, because everybody you were competing against had the same cards as you. So back to the skill games we're having on the phone today. There are various games like this. There are trivia games. There are card games like Solitaire. Basically, anything that they can find that they can offer that requires some degree of skill where if there is a deck of cards involved that everybody you're playing against is also dealt the same cards. It's just a matter of what you do with it. And people compete for real money. And some people win and some people lose. So what's wrong with this? Is this really any different than poker? Haven't all of us who are winning poker players made our money because we played players who were worse than us? That's really what we've done, right? Aside from the few of us who've had some sort of fluke tournament score. The rest of us who have won have done so by mainly playing players who are not as good over time. So can't you apply the same thing here and just get really good at these games and then win the same way you were winning in poker? I thought the same thing. I thought maybe that's a a good opportunity. Well, there are a few potential problems here which can come up. First of all, you have to trust these unregulated companies to handle the games fairly. How do you know that you are not up against house players that might have some kind of advantage? Often you cannot even see when you get a score in something and you've got to compare your score to the other players you're playing against, you can't even see exactly what they did to get that score sometimes. You just have to trust that the score that it was reported they got was legitimate. And it's not not some kind of house player who's just given that score so they win. Or you have no idea that something wasn't hacked. There's no certification of 
the security of these apps. You also don't know if you're up against bots that can have an unfair advantage. You also don't know if you're ever really going to get paid. Just because it's legal doesn't mean that the company that is holding the money doesn't misuse the funds. Well, this last issue occurred to a company called, or a game called HQ Trivia. So on Kotaku.com, which is uh, a gaming website, they published an article entitled HQ Trivia Doesn't Always Pay Players Their Winnings and Won't Say Why. Does that sound familiar to... Boy, it's just like poker, isn't it? (laughs) You win, and then the site can't pay you, and then they are kind of non-responsive. Hmm, where have we heard that before? So apparently for months, players in HQ Trivia, when you'd buy in and try to win cash prizes against other players on the site or on the app, uh, for months people have been having issues getting their money. HQ Trivia is like bar trivia. And twice a day, there is a live trivia show on the app. People buy into it. Then there's a prize pool, like there is in a poker tournament. And then people would pick correct answers as fast as they can. And those were the quickest correct answers would be earning points and eventually get winners. Hmm. Let's think about what could go wrong here. Trivia. What could one do to answer trivia questions, even if they're not very good at trivia? In a bar, in an actual physical bar, you can tell people you are not allowed to use your phone or any electronic device during the trivia game. You must... Not use any device like that. They must all be put away or you disqualified. It's a pretty safe way to conduct the trivia games nowadays. But what about an app? How is the app going to know that you are not looking up the answers somewhere? Hmm. Well, the answer is they don't. How do you know that uh, people are not writing bots to quickly look up the answers on Google? and then answer the correctly very quickly. And how do you know that perhaps people aren't in cahoots with each other and maybe in a group together all quickly discussing answers with one another? Well, these things were happening. In March of 2018... In a $25,000 winner-takes-all contest, the winner was disqualified. And after 27 minutes of trivia, with only two people left, one of the two was going to win $25,000, the other one would win a big zero. 
the game abruptly ended, and one of them was awarded the twenty-five thousand without having to beat the other. What happened? Well, one of the two was caught cheating. Two months earlier, in January 2018, the Daily Beast, which is an online site, reported that a web developer had created a bot that could generate correct answers for HQ Trivia. And HQ Trivia claimed that they consider bots to be cheating, but laughably, they have no way to police people Googling it on another device or asking a friend. So, in February... At the very least, they tried to get rid of the bots. They closed a bunch of accounts. They also sent some cease and desist notices to people to stop using the bots. However, of course, with this much money at stake, there are still people who are still using bots. In March of 2018, on the 27th question, a player named Jarek Brual, that was his name on the his screen name was kicked out of the game so even though the other contestant named Kayla had answered that question incorrectly they were still the winner HQ trivia admitted that they kicked Jarek Brual because of violating the terms of service Jarek His trivia account was found somehow Is that true? His Twitter account was found And on his Twitter account He had talked about using bots for other games So it was clearly this guy was a botter And uh, Then he Locked up his Twitter so people couldn't see it anymore Once that was discovered but someone did capture uh, something that he wrote on Twitter on February 3rd saying, FYI, I had five bots ready for HQ, LOL. So he was even talking about uh, playing, uh, using bots on HQ trivia. But then it was found out that uh, Jarek and Kayla were members of a private group to discuss hacking trivia apps. And that also this group got together and would try to answer questions that weren't Googleable. So they'd all work in cahoots. So all this broke wide open and it was found that this was lucrative enough to where people were coming up with advanced ways to cheat between consulting with one another in groups to running bots and the average Joe even one good at trivia had no chance that was already problem number one but you'd think at least if you're going to win there and at least maybe if they've gotten rid of the bots at least you'll get your money right well no HQ sends their money by PayPal 
Now, I think there's other ways to cash out, but uh, PayPal only had a $20 limit to cash out, but that was removed in early 2018. So people should be able to cash out anything they want by PayPal. However, people were uh, trying to cash out with PayPal and said that their cash out button was grayed out, meaning there's no way to click on it. A lot of people have been complaining that their cash out button to PayPal was grayed out. I think the entire cash out button was grayed out, actually. The article's not totally clear about that. So they tried to contact HQ Trivia's customer service and were not getting responses. Some of them did get response, some were able to cash out, some were not at all. Some had delays, some just didn't get the money. Some of these people were only due small amounts of money, like 150 bucks. One guy told Kotaku that he'd been waiting since October to get 150 bucks. This is in January of this year. He was complaining. He said, I don't care to play HQ anymore since the experience of being unable to cash out is so frustrating. It's also frustrating that they decide someone's ineligible to win after they've divided up the money. So a lot of the money from the prize pool does not end up going to someone. So what he's basically saying is when they take money from cheaters, they just keep it. They don't redistribute it. There's also a concern that some people are being falsely flagged as cheaters. The official contest rules on HQ specify that entrants may not communicate with, work with, or otherwise benefit from more than 25 other persons while entering a contest if the communications between the entrants and those persons is facilitated by any technological means other than those explicitly provided. So what they're trying to say is if you're on one of these servers, a lot of them did it on, on Discord, a discussion platform, that if you're on any Discord server, that you'll be unable to cash out. Even if you weren't using the server to cheat. So honestly, I don't feel that bad for those people. You know, why else would you be on one of these servers if you're not trying to use it to cheat? But there's some concern that people are in just unrelated Discord groups Discord is a general site. It's not just for this. And if people are in a Discord group with more than 25 people, then it's assumed it's this, and they're being falsely flagged as cheaters. I'm guessing that's probably not an issue. I think if you, you know, I, I think probably not many people were falsely flagged as cheaters that way. But yeah, they, they should need more evidence than that. The, the, the whole problem here is a, a cheating, sorry, a, a trivia game for real money online is ridiculous. There's too many ways to cheat. And you know what? Bots don't even have to answer the questions for you. Bots can just read the questions and then communicate the answers to you on another device. And you can enter your own answers and it'll never be detectable. There's so many ways around this. Unfortunately, Trivia is just something that is too easily solvable by computer. So, and it's too hard to detect who's cheating and who's not. 
So that should not be for real money. You want to play trivia for fun? Fine. But it shouldn't be for real money, especially for sums of money like 25000 And now it's not even clear if the company is really paying people or if they're broke and if they've spent the money on deposit full tilt style and are just avoiding paying people. Maybe that is why they're happy to flag people as cheaters because then they just keep the money. Because apparently what happens is after the contest is over, that's sometimes when they'll claim someone's cheated. At that point, they just take the money. They don't redistribute it to players who would have finished higher if not for the cheater. How did they get away with this? Well, because this is unregulated. You can sue them, but that's about it. One day there might be a lawsuit, but the burden of proof is on the players. HQ Trivia can try to claim that these players were cheating, and that's why they can't cash out. And it's hard for the players to prove they weren't. If HQ Trivia presents false information claiming they were. As far as the cash outs, well, they can claim those that they're not cashing out are the ones who are cheating, even if they're not. So the problem is you're you're counting on these companies to do the right thing. You're counting on them not to have house players or their own bots in there. You're counting on them to actually pay you. You're counting on them to be fair about whether you cheated or not. You're counting on them to catch actual cheaters. You're counting on them for too much and allowing them to take advantage of you too easily. And even if the company means well, they just may not be competent enough to prevent the cheating, or it may be just impossible to prevent the cheating in the first place. Let me tell you about another game that I've come across. It is called... 21 Blitz. You can download it for free. This is not a trivia game. It's a card game. So at least you don't have to worry about bots in that way. It is a card game which is kind of a combination between Blackjack and Solitaire. And this is how it works. It's a pretty simple game. You have four rows where you can line up cards. You start out with everything blank. And every time you, you, you have a deck of cards that's shuffled randomly. And with each card, you have to put it somewhere. You have to put it in one of the four rows. You, you can't pass or, or skip it or anything. You've got, you have to put it on one of the four rows. And they add up in the same way blackjack hands add up. So twos through nines are worth the value on the card. The ten, jack, queen, and king are worth ten. And the ace is worth either 1 or 11. Whatever is more beneficial to the player. The goal is to make 21 in each of these lanes. Every time you make 21, you get some points, and then those cards disappear out of the lane. So if you make 21, you get 400 points. If you use 5 cards and make less than 21... So let's say 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, for example. That would be 5 cards that's less than 21, right? That would be uh, 20 there. So once you put down 5 cards and it's less than 21, you'll get 600 points. 
If you put down five cards that's exactly 21, you get 1,000 points. That's the best thing you can do. And there's two wild cards. That's the two black jacks. Jack of clubs, jack of spades. Whatever lane you put those down in, you'll automatically clear the cards there and get 200 points. There's two of those. Then you also get a time bonus where you have three minutes to do this and whatever time you have remaining translates into some points. That's it. That's that's the game. And it's, it's even simpler than it sounds from what I just described. You can download it. You can play it for free. 21 Blitz is called. So you can play for what they call Z, which they're free money tokens. You can also buy Z, but you start off with like 25 Z and you get more by watching ads and or get 5Z every two hours if you go claim it. Or you can play for real money. You can deposit and play real money. Now, the rake is pretty damn brutal on 21 Blitz. That's the first problem. You're playing other players. And the way you win a match, you're playing usually against one person, is whoever finishes with a higher score. It's simple. So if you finish with a higher score, you win. If you finish with a lower score, you lose. So it doesn't matter how many points you get. Like a, a good score, and, and the score is dependent upon the, the way the deck is shuffled. You both play with the same deck, so there's no chance element. But the deck is different each time. So sometimes there's a potential to get a high score, but same with your opponent. And sometimes there's a potential to get a low score. So there'll be times that you'll get a low score like, like 2,000, that'll be the winner. There's other times you'll get a high score like 8,800 and lose. Because it's all about what your opponent does. Sometimes the deck will make it very hard to make points because if you bust, that's the only thing I haven't mentioned, if you bust, if you go over 21, then you get a strike. If you get three strikes, the game's prematurely over. And then you just keep whatever points you had plus whatever time's left. So sometimes if you get too many high cards at the beginning and there's nowhere to put them, you'll get three strikes fairly quickly and you won't get many points. So a lot of it's how the deck falls. There is obviously a lot of strategy to this. They're constantly trying to entice you to deposit and play for real money. But there's rake in all of this. Even the free money games, even the, the free play games, they rake the free play money. So, for example, the game that costs 6Z, Z is their free tokens to enter, if you win, you get your 6Z plus another 4Z. If you lose, you lose all 6Z. So they're actually raking a third out of it, out of your buy-in. You're, pl- you're entering 6 to win 4. Uh, a little higher stakes, you'd, you'd enter 30 to win 20. Then you can enter f- for 60 to win 100, to, w- to win 40. Then you can enter 300 to win 200. So as you, as you see, they, they're actually even raking the Z, which is not even real money. You can buy it, buy them for real money, but you can't cash them in for real money. But if you want to play for real money, you can play for levels from a dollar, or actually for, from 60 cents buy-in all the way up to $175 buy-in. But to show you how brutal, if you enter for $175, you'll win 125 if you win the match, and they'll rake 50. Pretty bad, huh? These things take three minutes. So, boy, is the rake high. Not only do you have to be good enough to beat your opponents enough to show a profit, but you have to really be good to beat the rake. 
But there's one more trick that you may not be aware of. They kind of put it in the fine print. They try to match you with a player of similar skill. What's wrong with that? Doesn't that sound good? That you're not matched with someone who will crush you? That it makes all the matches kind of even? And this way, people who aren't as good, they're playing ones of the similar skill level, so everybody kind of has a chance, no matter how good or bad they are? No. What that's really doing is creating parity to where it's harder for anybody to really dominate and make money on there. They try to keep it to where everybody's winning approximately 50%. So guess who the only winner ends up being? Yeah, them with their giant rake. That's exactly what poker sites have wanted for years. Poker sites hate it when it's a combination of mega fish and tough pros. Because they know the mega fish are going to lose very quickly, not rake that much. The top pros will get the money and then the top pros will cash out. They want that same money to stay on the site and circulate, circulate, circulate. That's what they want, so they can keep raking it. They don't want it to quickly transfer from one player to the other who then cashes it out. Now, poker sites, it's harder for them to stop this. They've tried various ways, but a lot of them have backfired. But this app, by matching, quote, similar skill levels, they're making it very hard for anyone to really dominate on there. Especially because even though these games technically don't have any luck, they kind of do. Because the way each deck falls is different each time. You and your opponent are both getting the same cards, but a slight difference in the way you play may just happen to make the deck fall favorably for some person, for the other person. And they'll beat you even if your skill is better. Um, by false favorably, I mean like what a pretty obvious element of strategy on there is that you want to make 11 on each lane because then it's easy to get 21 because there's so many 10s out there because there's four of the 13 cards are 10s. So you'll get a lot of 10s coming out. So you have these 11s waiting, and then you get a 10, you can instantly make 21. A lot easier to make 21 with an 11 there than if you have like a 13, where you have to wait for an 8. So if you have a 7 already in the lane, and then your next card is a 4, obviously you put the 4 on top of the 7. You don't put a 4 in its own lane because you want to make 11 here, right? So since you're choosing what lane to put it in, a slight change in the way you're doing things could just... You could luck into the fact that a card happens to appear that will help you make 11 that uh, you wouldn't have had that opportunity had you used the previous card differently. So that's how some people can luck into winning who are of similar skill levels. Just in slight differences of play, the deck will fall differently even though it's the same order of cards, it'll fall differently the way their cards are placed, and they'll have one player will have more opportunity to make better hands than others. So they, they really try to keep it to where players are winning about 50-50. Now, you may think, well, there is one sneaky thing one can do. How about just throwing the match 
the matches that don't matter. Maybe either just like play horribly at the free money matches and then play really well at the real money matches. Or if you really want to risk it, play poorly at the 60 cent matches, look like a terrible fish, and then play one of the higher matches and then play really well. And then they'll match you with someone bad. I don't know if that works or not. But the problem is that uh, from what I've seen, the app isn't busy enough to where there are enough people playing at high stakes anyway. Even like, when I say high stakes, I don't mean thousands of dollars. The most you can enter for is 175 But there aren't a lot of people putting up $175 or even the level below it, which is uh, $60. Even the level below that, $30. So you're not going to have a wide selection of opponents. So on one hand, you could say, oh, well, that's good. Then they can't really match my skill perfectly. Well, yeah, but also the people who are playing for that amount of money are probably the good players. You're probably not going to get many bad players there. And you're probably, you probably are going to naturally uh, split a lot more of those. And the rake is just so high, I think the percentage you'd have to win is just too high for what you could expect unless there's a very large player pool where you could you really would have a lot of fish at the higher levels. I don't think the player pool is big enough for the higher levels. But there's some other problems. How do you know that you're really playing real players? The only way you know you win is when they tell you you've won. So you you know your score. Let's say you got 8200 points in this round. Okay, so now you're hoping your opponent gets less than 8200. And then it shows, up. Oh, what do you know? He got 8,600. Well, sorry. Sorry, you lose. Sorry. Better luck next time. How do you know you really just played someone who got 8,600? How do you know this wasn't a computer player? That they just hooked up to beat you? You have no way. There's no verification that's a real player on the other end. So, there's a lot of shady stuff that can be done. That you may never catch. That's impossible to catch. These are unregulated. They may not have your money to pay you when it's time to be paid. They can claim you were cheating when you weren't. They are judge, jury, and executioner to everything, and you don't have any recourse except for suing them, which is going to be tough. So I would stay away from all these real money competition apps. Even if you think you've come up with a system to beat it, there's probably someone who's come up with a better one. Like look at the trivia app with the bots. Now what about this 21 Blitz? Could a bot be playing on here? It definitely could. I believe a bot could be written to play this game perfectly. Now, it's not going to win every time playing perfectly for the reasons I stated. But I believe a bot could be written to analyze exactly when to put each card down or where to put each card down. And it could learn how to play optimally pretty easily. This is not that complicated of a game. And it's because each card dealt to you, you only have... Four choices, what to do. Lane one, two, three, or four. That's it. That's the only thing you've got to decide. 
So the bot would be keeping track of all the cards remaining. So here's here's just a simple example. Let's say you have an eight, and let's say two of the lanes are like fifteen and seventeen. You don't want to put the eight there; you'll bust and get a strike. So the only ones which you wouldn't bust are the two remaining lanes, which have a single five and a single six. So where do you put the eight? Well, a bot will instantly know how many sevens and eights are remaining in the deck and which is more likely to come up. So let's say that the bot knows that all the sevens are used up. Well, then you would not want to put the eight over the six because that'll make 14 and you can't get a seven to make it 21. So then the bot would put the eight over on the five. But if all the eights are used up, including this eight, if this is the last eight, and there's sevens left, then it would be smart to put the eight on the six. So the eight can, so the bot can make decisions like that that the average player couldn't do. Now, sometimes the average player will luck into beating the bot anyway. But there definitely could be bots written to do things like this, and it wouldn't even be that tough. And you're not going to know. You'll see you're losing. You won't know your opponent's beating you with a bot. So don't trust these games. It's not the second coming of online poker. Not regulated at all. Really nobody to complain to if you get screwed. And for all you know, you could be playing against house players. And boy, is the rake high. Even if it is legitimate, boy, is that rake high. Which is not a good idea. If you want to mess around for fun, go ahead. In fact, I think on 21 Blitz, they give you like $2 to play with after you've made 25 real money wins. Sorry, 25 fake money wins. You get two real dollars. You want to screw around with that, go ahead. But I would not advise investing any money in playing these games. Even if you see some eye-popping results, they like to display, you know, this person's just won $4,000. It's very tempting to think, I've just got to become as good as this guy, and I'll win $4,000. Wow, maybe this is easier than poker. Wow, maybe this is the next big thing I can do to make money. No, it's not. Trust me. In general... Apps which take money while operating. They're known as in-app purchases. These are contests. There are other apps that just you're not playing to win money, but you're just buying things within the app. Sometimes you're playing a game and you're buying some sort of a special power-up or feature in the game. These really, really need to be regulated because there's a lot of fraud There is a lot of shadiness going on, and no one's regulating these things. And a lot of people are getting ripped off, including kids. I just stay away from the whole thing. And I think the HQ trivia scandal is going to pale in comparison to eventual scandals we will find out about involving these in-app purchases, and especially involving these games for real money where we find out that cheating is rampant even cheating within the company well you know what that sound is that means the show is over but you got over five hours you have nothing to complain about don't don't tell me this is too short 
I gave you five good hours of my time. I gave you five hours and about twenty something minutes of my time. You could have gotten in your car from Los Angeles and driven to Las Vegas and even hit some traffic and gotten to there end of your drive and checked into your hotel and you could be sitting on the bed in your hotel room listening to the end of this show I could have kept you company that whole way so don't tell me this isn't long enough I'll be back next week probably Thursday or Friday health and everything else permitting I want to do the show every week and I'm going to attempt to do the show every week and one of these days I'm going to take a flight as soon as this stupid TSA stuff ends I'm going to take my first flight since all my problems started and if I can successfully do so, I know to most of you, taking a flight is not a big deal. And it used to not be to me. But if I can successfully do so, that'll really mean to me that I'm not restricted anymore what I can do. And that's important. Because I'll tell you, it's, it's depressing seeing ads for exotic places one can travel to when I know I can't go there yet. But I'm getting there. Well, thank you for joining us tonight. And thank you for sticking with Poker Fraud Alert Radio for all these years we've been on. And we will continue to be on as long as I can do this show. Including next week. Good night. Shalom. Shalom.